and good afternoon, everyone. This is Cheryl, and I'm so pleased to be here to welcome you to Tara and Rama's Saturday afternoon program, The True Planetary and Galactic History Herstory and True History Herstory of Nasara. Infinite blessings on this Saturday afternoon. We are going to proceed with our opening meditation and do some special work here for Ascension for today. So please join us in going into your heart center now. As you enter into that sacred portal to all that is, make note of your threefold flame and ensure that it is in balance. See this sapphire blue on the right, the divine masculine, the flame of divine will, divine power, strength, and truth. See on the left, the sacred rose pink flame of divine love and reverence for all life. Top center, you observe the yellow golden flame of divine wisdom, illumination, and enlightenment, and anchor your Christ consciousness. Take a nice deep breath as this integrates through you, and you are more easily able to experience the full emergence with your soul, with your higher self, with your monad, with your mighty I am presence. As our I am presence, we are one with the I am presence of all humanity. And thus we call them forth. Please state with me. I am my I am presence. And I am one with the I am presence of every man, woman, and child. I am one with the I am presence of all of my family members and loved ones. I am one with the I am presence of all humanity. And thus we invite them in to join us to experience themselves in their pillar of light as we do now. Anchoring the violet flame and the white flame of purity. Anchoring the frequencies that we require individually most at this time and see these precious frequencies going through your pillar of light as the energies connect directly from source through you into the heart of Mother Gaia. You are one with source, you are one with the earth and we recommit ourselves to being that bridge between heaven and earth the anchor for the new golden age and the open door that no one can shut. So as we call in these ascension frequencies and bring heaven to earth, we invite everyone to join us in unity consciousness at the level of the mighty I am. So we invite in for one and all, all, of our soul extensions, both planetary and galactic. All of our ancestors, all of our genetic lineage, our ancestral lineage, all the generations past and forward, 
our spiritual lineage, our soul families, and soul pots. We welcome for everyone, all of our guides and teachers, our healing teams, our beloved guardian angel, our beloved twin flame, our ascension council and mission council. We welcome all of the kingdoms, the plant kingdom, the tree kingdom, the mineral kingdom, the animal kingdom, the diva kingdom, the elemental kingdom, the fury kingdom, all of the kingdoms of nature to assist us. The whales, the dolphins, the unicorns, and all magical kingdoms. We welcome all of the realms of the angels, from the angels and archangels through to the cherubim and seraphim and all angelic healing teams. We welcome the assistance of all of the ascended master realms, the brotherhood of light, the sisterhood of the rays and rose, the order of Melchizedek, the radiant ones, all of the enlightened masters, all of the planetary and cosmic hierarchy of light. We welcome all of the Divine Mother Emissaries, Divine Father Emissaries, all of the healing teams of the Ascended Master realms. We welcome our friends from the Galactic Federation as well, especially the healing teams that we work most closely with from Arcturus, from Pleiades, from Sirius, from Andromeda, from Chiron, from Venus. We welcome the assistance of all the cosmic galactic universal healers that can be of service as we welcome the assistance of the entire company of heaven and our mother, father, God to overlight all that we do and magnify, magnify, magnify this ascension work 10 billion times, 10 billion fold, the maximum each can receive individually and collectively for both planetary and cosmic ascension. In this, we call forth all of the rays, all of the flames, all of the universal laws, all of the ascension waves. And with every energy and frequency, every prayer and evocation, every blessing, every grace, every dispensation, every activation, we ask that it be received on a conscious, subconscious, superconscious level within every cell, chakra, meridian, layer of our auric field, multidimensionally. We give thanks for this opportunity to serve and we extend all that we receive to Mother Gaia as well. We ask that she receives it in every chakra, meridian, layer of her auric field, multidimensionally. Through every ley line and song line, all the grid systems, the love grids, the light grids, the unity grids, all of the multidimensional grid systems. Through every molecule of soil, molecule of air, molecule of water. Through every portal and vortex and monument and sacred site, every place of power, every stargate and every city of light. That every location upon this planet truly become a city of light, that we receive the highest transformation, the highest consciousness, the highest ascension frequencies that truly makes this planet heaven on earth. 
as we go up this spiral of evolution with our mother, dear mother, Gaia, as she takes her rightful place as Freedom Star. Take a nice deep breath. We're going to focus upon the heart at this time. It is a time where the Immaculate Heart is celebrated and we ask ours to become Immaculate as well. We call forward that violet ray and that white ray of purity to anchor in through and around us and through our hearts, lifting our hearts, lifting the hearts, purifying the energy of every man, woman, and child. Let our purified hearts connect to the purified hearts of every man, woman, and child and the cosmic heart of all that is, that we might carry the purest divine love within our sacred heart, the purest love for ourselves, for the planet, and for all others. And we say, loving, I am present. Walk through me. Open the door of understanding. So I may become increasingly aware of the perfection of the new earth and of God, goddesses, abundant universal love for all people and all life at all times. As I am growing in awareness, may my questing mind push through the denseness of materiality into the awakening and rising spiritual consciousness of my true God, goddess reality. Let my sense of gratitude expand into a welcoming smile, a friendly greeting, and an expanding light. May I look upon all persons with the eyes of love knowing each as my friend, my brother or sister, not as a stranger. With this realization, my my, I am presence spread its radiant light to everyone I meet. O loving mind, thank you for the discovery that the consciousness of divine intelligence lives within everyone. May the light of truth illumine my mind as I grow in greater awareness that I am a beloved child of God Goddess. As I place my hand in yours to travel this earth's journey, guide me into doing the simple things that bring happiness to others. Show me how to give wisely of myself and my talents in areas where they are truly needed and acceptable. Let me say with conviction, I can and I will. As my thoughts dwell on the ascending spiral of light, of right thinking, right feeling, and right action. As I can and I will become a part of my consciousness, I open wide the gate of divine power within myself. Thank you for the blessings that are mine. Thank you for the opportunities that come my way. May I ever praise and bless, give and receive, love and be loved. 
and rejoice in the knowing that the light of God, God is, is eternally victorious, and I am that light. I am one with all that is, and I rejoice in this glorious truth. Please join me in saying, I am that I am. I am that I am. I am that I am. We know we have some summits going on. We have the G7 going on right now. We have other meetings going on, not only in England, but in Geneva. So for the energy of each of these meetings and summits, we say the following. By and through the light of divine mind, we invoke the full empowerment of every person and leader participating in the G7 and all the other meetings taking place this weekend and this next week. Assisting angels, please come and help to guarantee the best possible outcomes for each event in accordance with the highest good of all. We call upon the collective presence of each soul with special focus on those attending the G7 as well as President Biden and Putin in their meeting. May we all come into greater heart connection entering into the deepest experiences of conscious union with one another. Great Spirit, please bathe the facilitators and attendees at these meetings in the light of truth, clarity, and wisdom. Clear and expand the inner channels for higher intelligence to flow in more easily bringing with it the inspired solutions that we seek for this planet. Please raise the energy of each with the power of love. Activating the highest levels of coherence in the group energy field. Let love prevail. Let all people love. We ask that any darkness and corruption surrounding any issues being discussed at these meetings be purified and redeemed through the light of grace. May the truth be revealed. May the portals over England and Geneva be opened and expanded now as well as any other location that meetings individually or as a group may take place sustaining a continuous wave of enlightenment 
that assists in empowering the spiritual, political, societal, scientific, and environmental developments necessary for the harmonious evolution of all life on Earth. Let this vision be realized through the practical means of inspired right action. By and through universal law, it is done. So be it, and so it is. And we give thanks for this. We give thanks for this. We give thanks for this. So Monday is flag day. We're going to do a little bit of prayer work for this nation, including a blessing for our flag. Mighty infinite I am presence. So mighty guardian for America. Come forth in thy cosmic action of the unveiled flame of divine love and the eternal quenchless light. Blaze forth everywhere in and through our beloved America. Thy light as of a thousand suns. Charged with ascended master consciousness and fulfillment of the divine plan for their freedom and perfection. We say to the consciousness of everyone in the three Americas and in this nation, the United States, awake, awake, awake to the truth of this mighty I Am Presence and the full perfection meant for the Americas. Great ones release throughout them that activity of thy light, which takes possession everywhere of the Americas, the governments, and the people. Control their resources, direct their activities, fill them with thy lavish abundance of all good things, and release that ascended master consciousness, which compels divine justice to come forth for everyone within their borders. Surround them with thy invincible protection. Lays forth thy mighty activity of the light and love of the ascended masters and the angelic host that once and forever brings all into divine order through divine love. Charge forth thy full perfection everywhere forever. In the name of the mighty I am presence, we decree that the Americas shall be manifest as nations of ascended masters to lead the rest of the earth into their eternal glory and into the victory of the ascension. America, we love you. America, we love you. America, we love you. And our love and call to the mighty I Am Presence is great enough to bring forth your perfection now and keep it forever sustained. We charge you, our beloved America, with the ascended master's eternal victory of the light of God, goddess that never fails, and the mighty mastery of the I Am Presence expanding its perfection everywhere within your borders, 
so long as the stars remain and the heavens send down dew. So long shall our beloved, beloved America carry the grail of light high and feed the rest of the earth with the ascended masters outpouring of freedom and perfection of the mighty I Am Presence. America, we enfold you in our mantle of light and love. Within it is all power. We hold you sealed within our hearts and your mighty victory shall manifest every hour to the glory of the I Am and the Ascended Ones forever. So be it, and so it is, and we give thanks for this. Mighty I Am Presence, great host of Ascended Masters, mighty legions of light, Great angelic host, mighty cosmic beings who guard our beloved United States of America. Charge forth into the feeling of everyone within our borders. The Ascended Master's consciousness, love, and loyalty to the United States of America. Our country, the I Am country. God's country, the land of the light of God that never fails. Drench them with the ascended master's light substance and true respect for our flag, for our democracy, for divine government, divine governance that is of the divine selves of people for the divine selves of people, by the divine selves of people. Compel everything unlike itself, unlike, unlike that to, to be fully annihilated. From within our borders this moment and forever, release through the hearts and minds of everyone within our borders, whatever light and love is necessary to do this now. And keep it forever self-sustained. We thank thee this is done according to divine will. And so it is. And we give thanks for this. We give thanks for this. We give thanks for this. We call forth for the highest levels of abundance that we can receive at this time as we ask to be blessed after this amazing new moon, solar eclipse, with abundance. Mighty, infinite, I am presence, great host of ascended masters, Mighty Lord, the Mahakohan, and blessed, beloved, Sanat Kamara, and the entire hierarchy of life. By the power of thy mighty love, wield thy blue sword of blue flame, and project the lightning of thy love into the mass entity of humankind 
that has created the feeling and lack of money or any good thing. Blast a consciousness from humanity forever. Annihilate its cause and effect this moment and replace it by the limitless consciousness and lavish life from the Ascended Master's octave of life. Charge all with the Ascended Master's consciousness of the inexhaustible supply and the physical manifestation of every good thing by the power of divine love released into the physical use of humanity everywhere, this instant and forever. See that all humanity accepts this in its feelings and goes forward eternally free, supplied with ten times more than it needs of every good thing. See that all is used forever in the service of the light. See that everyone who serves the light is forever invincibly protected and never lacks for any good thing. In the name of the I Am Presence, I have spoken. And so shall it be released to the children of earth. We thank thee, thou great host of light, for thy ascended master's consciousness, instantaneous activity in fulfillment of this, our decree, for the freedom of all. And we thank thee, it is eternally sustained and ever-expanding. And so it is. We give thanks for this. We give thanks for this. We give thanks for this. And so it is with a heart overflowing with gratitude that we receive these blessings here today, both individually and collectively, for this nation, for each nation, for all across the planet. May they be sustained and maintained in the week ahead, ever expanding to perfection. And so, my friends, I ask you to remain in your hearts this week, no matter what appears to be going on on the screen of life. It is ours to demonstrate the Christ consciousness, the unconditional love, to hold the Buddhic wisdom and non-judgment. and to do our part in this transformation process by continuing to work with the violet flame and all of the magnificent tools that we work with every week. I thank you here for your divine service and I invite you for further divine service every Sunday and Monday evening for the Ascension Meditation and Activation Calls. We meet by teleconference call each Sunday and Monday, there's one exception coming up, and that will be July 4th. Please make note of that on your calendar. But otherwise, we're there every single week. 
twice a week. The calls begin at 8.45 p.m. Eastern Time, 5.45 p.m. Pacific Time. We have about 25 minutes of greetings, and then Tara and Rama give us a brief update. And then at 9.30, 9.30 Eastern, 6.30 Pacific Time, we begin our work of bringing heaven to earth in earnest with a variety of meditations and decrees and invocations, prayers and visualizations. Every program is unique. And we are the ones that we've been waiting for, so it is ours to be there to do the work and be that anchor between heaven and earth to bring it forth into full manifestation. So I encourage you to participate. The telephone number for the call, the main number, is area code 425-436-6260. Again, that's area code 425-436-6260. The access code is 946-7441-POUND. 946-7441-POUND. And we welcome you. We'd love to have you let us know that you've joined us because of the Saturday program. We have a wonderful, wonderful family of light that is so committed to doing this work of bringing heaven to earth. Please be a part of that. So at this time, as I pass the talking stick, I want to thank Tor and Rama for their divine service. I want to thank Rainbird for her divine service. Rainbird has got the colors of the flag on this uh, talking stick. Got the red and the blue that made up the violet and the white that we worked with as the ray of purity. It has the threefold flame colors, the blue and the pink and the golden yellow. So it truly does have every frequency that we could require at this time. Got a lot of joyful energy there too. With fairies and and crystals and in diamonds, lots of sparkles, summertime sparkles. So I send this talking stick with the sparkling light to you. Dear Rainbird, thank you. And thank you, everyone. Have a beautiful week. Please join us in the calls, and we'll see you next Saturday. Much love. Passing the talking stick. Okay, I got that talking stick. Thank you, Cheryl. So much gratitude for your divine service as well. Oh, so grateful to do that powerful work each each Saturday as we begin the program. So much gratitude. And so I'm here to do the housekeeping as we are a listener supported radio program and each of us that make it happen. <laughs> each week uh we incur expenses with BBS radio for their services of three hundred dollars. And that's what we owe for this week. So lots of gratitude for all those donations that came in that make it, made us meet that goal last week to catch up where we were behind a little. So lots of gratitude. Thank you for your contributions. And so we're looking for 300 this week. So here's how we, we make a donation to our account at BBS Radio. 
you go to bbsradio.com, you click on radio station two, and then scroll down, um, and you'll see for the Thursday program at the six o'clock hour, these are all Pacific times, a night at the round table with the panel, and then the Friday show is at six o'clock as well, and it is the hard news program with Tara and Rama. And of course, this program that starts at one thirty Pacific, and it, it is the true history of the Sarah and our galactic origins. So just click on that icon. That takes you to the Rainbow Roundtable account with, uh, or the Tara and Rama's account with BBS Radio. So uh, thanks for making that happen. Like that, we're so grateful to get to gather each week this way. So we're grateful for all of us. <laughs> So thank you for taking that action, and thank you for your generosity. So we're assisting Car and Rama with their needs as well, and the way we do that is through PayPal. Well, let's take a look for a moment what they need. Uh, they have three bills and um, the, uh, an online bill for for the kitty litters that they need three hundred and twenty dollars to cover those expenses. And then they also ha- have needs for um, just ha- household items, from toilet paper to <laughs> to fresh avocados. So <laughs> they're looking for food and gas money, basic laundry money, um, those things for Tara and Rama. So $520 is what we need this week for Tara and Rama. And here's how you make a contribution. You access their Rama's PayPal account. Uh, you can go to the website to do that, to find that link. The website is rainbowroundtable.net. And there on the home page, you click on the menu, you'll see a donate link, donate button at the bottom of that menu, pretty close to the bottom. Click on that. That links you to Rama's PayPal. So that's where you can make a contribution in any amount. So thanks for taking that action. Thanks for um, honoring Tara and Rama in that way for the work that they do here and honoring yourself. So uh, as you go to, um, as, you, as you have your own PayPal account, you of course can link to the friends option. And the way to do that is with Rama's email at PayPal. So that is Coran, K-O-R-A-N, 999949 at hotmail.com. And there, as you enter um, the amount you're gifting, as you as you go to Rama's site through that email, you get the amount that you want to gift to Rama, and then a window will show up, and that gives you the, the link to make that friends option. So that's how you can do the friends option. Um, and that's the information you need for that Rama's PayPal email. So thank you. Thank you for choosing that option. Either way, it's perfect. We're grateful for your contributions. And then I would also like to mention the access to um, the Fremart site so that you can join Fremart. You need to access the Rainbow Roundtable site. And to do that, we, we need to be specific about how it's done, because that way it makes it happen, right? <laughs> so here's a, here's how it goes. HTTPS colon forward slash forward slash www.shopfreemart.com forward slash T-A-R 
T-A-R-A-M, and that's uh, Rainbow Roundtable username, T-A-R-R-A-M. So that's how you access that, and that's where you can access, uh, that's where you can set up your own account, and then you can participate in the um, cryptocurrency, so to speak, the, the free march style of that, and that is called NextGen. And then also they have other abundance of opportunities, but they have amazing products for supplementing, uh, supporting your immune system and um, assisting with the environment as well. So check out those products that way. And lots, lots of other options for working on your abundance. So it's a, a good place. We've been there for five years now, this month. And... Uh, so it's a good place, and it's good to know that. <laughs> so there you go. That's how we work with that. So 13, thank you, honey in the heart. Thank you for your lives. I'm grateful we are all on our, on our lives together. Here we are doing this, whatever we're doing, and supporting each other at the same time, and there's only one of us here. So greetings, Tara and Rama. I'm passing this talking stick, and this Oh my, yes it is joyful talking sticks. And it just has all those good rays and and a lot of positive spirit and all the fairies and gems and crystals that go with it. So greetings, Tara and Rama, here comes that talking stick. Greetings. All you commanders, eagles, and angels. And Rainbird, thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you, Rainbird. Thank you, Cheryl. Thank you, Cheryl. Cheryl's off in the wind. Thank you, everyone. Yes. We are so grateful to be alive and be here. Yes. In spite of the nose on the faces of those Republicans trying everything they can to I uh, change our reality to something less than. And, uh, of course, we've got some... We've got some homework to do together. It's not the only time, but the Republicans have been doing this for 40 years, the, the minimum. Just kind of sticking that frog in the warm water. Uh, Terry McAuliffe, this, this recent uh, politics mason here, he was the former governor of Virginia before, and then he went to jail. I can't remember what that was for, but... He is connected with Bill and Hillary up to Crown Chakra, and it's about the money, honey. And now he clinched the Democratic nomination to become governor of Virginia again? Lord have mercy. You almost say. Okay, so it's just a litany of things that can hurt our ears about what's going on out there. Oh, it is. It is about the now moment. And to stay in that now moment, no matter how insane it's getting. 
And I will say the multiverses are overlapping into intersecting with each other and beings are showing up from all kinds of dimensions and it's a good thing. Yeah, we learned, this is on a separate subject, but it kind of was, our brother called us up today and he said he saw that Leonard Ord had died on, in September of 2019. Uh, Campbell Hop Springs, rebirthing. Leonard Orr and Sandra Ray. Well, she's alive and well. Yeah, she's still here. Yeah. I went to Campbell Hot Springs with a sister from Suter Fial, uh, Vex Tuss at the Green Healing Center place that I worked in Sweden with. That was so many years ago, I can't remember. 19, 1980, maybe. Mm -hmm. <laughs> oh. All we are saying is give peace a chance, everyone. Yeah. Mr. Biden is going to be uh, going to Windsor Palace on Wednesday to have tea with Her Majesty, <laughs> the hologram of the High Queen of England, the second. A very unruly passenger has caused the Delta airline flight that was going from L.A. to Atlanta, Georgia, to make an emergency landing in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma, and the, one of the pilots of the plane called on all the strong men in the in the cabin there to holding uh, down restrain him. I heard that he wasn't wearing a mask, and you know people are freaking out about this, and I don't know what to do, to what to say, because it is all about the matrix that's falling apart. Yeah, I'm just encouraging people. Uh, you know, to look it up in your respective state, uh, the North American Society of Homeopathy, and see if you have a way to email them or call them and ask, first of all, is there any certified classical homeopathists that are creating, uh, offering homeopathic vaccines? This is really helpful. Um, I'm just saying uh, hospitals in Houston, Texas are making it mandatory. If you want to keep your job and you're a healthcare worker, you have to get that vaccine. And for those kind of people right now that are about to lose their whole livelihood as they may or may not know anything about a homeopathic vaccine. So any sisters well, or brothers like out there you don't in, have a choice. In Houston or wherever you are, you know, just, I would just check on this. Um, and I haven't been able to get in touch with our homeopathist sister that we have taken the first dosage of our homeopathic vaccine last Tuesday. One thing it did happen is 
uh, it caused us to sleep more. Rama, the next day, took a 45-minute nap, which is unheard of. <laughs> and um, uh, the night before last, I just passed out. I don't remember anything. And I, I was just like gonzo for a long time. That's not usual myself. I'm just saying that. I noticed that. And then we've got to take our sec second uh, dose, which is three times more than the first. And we take them in time timing Tuesday in the morning, in the afternoon, and in the evening, four, four pellets each time. So we'll report on that. But when they're trying to you know, people that, for whatever their personal reasons are, have not chosen to get the vaccine to lose their livelihood. Lose their life? No. Oh, I understand. No, 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 no. Not lose their livelihood. Losing their livelihood because they are not willing to take the vaccine that's available which is a very good idea not to. I don't know whatever their personal reasons are, but to have them know that there's an option to get a homeopathic vaccine and all the credentials as if it were the other vaccines would cause great harm in the body, uh, and this has no harm at all, uh, uh, that's something to pursue. And of course, the uh, the pundits on the TV are told they can't talk about that, even if they were to explore it, and somebody, they wouldn't be allowed to say it, you know, and whatever. What else, Rama? Oh yes, Rama said this day to me. I received a call. Um, Late this morning, it was 11.50 a.m., uh, from Tom the Ringtail Cat, Larry, Curly, Moe, and Sweet Angelique the Cat. They said to me, Lord Rama, Joe Biden is trying to compete with China regarding infrastructure. That's a joke. They and light years ahead of us. Absolutely. To forget. They have, this is very interesting, but they build multiples of cities that are completely off the grid. And they did this like, oh, I know that it was at least seven, eight years ago when they were reporting it on 60 Minutes. Mm -hmm. And nobody's living there, but there are complete multiples, like something like 30 or 40 cities that are completely off the grid. Uh, I heard they were smart cities, meaning there were 5G or 6G. I don't know. I didn't hear that at all. Okay. I just heard it was off. They were all off the grid. Yeah. But anyway, that would be disastrous. Yeah, that would. And I'm not saying, not because China that developed 6G. Yeah. And I think they developed the 5G, too. So. And I think the Huawei I, is a good phone, yet it's way too pricey. <laughs> and they have two, like, 
uh, trains, uh, that at least two, they might have more by now. I mean, and there is a train, I'm not sure what level of finish it is, but it's traveling from China all the way to the Middle East, and then it goes underneath uh, a waterway, and it ends up in Europe. I mean, mm. this is already well in the in the making, and these other two trains that I know for sure, they go for thousands of miles, and they travel about, I don't know, somewhere between 175 miles an hour and 250 miles an hour. So, if Biden is competing with China regarding this thing, well, okay, more power to him, then you got to get a little farther along the road than trying to compromise with Republicans. 2.2 trillion, as AOC said, 10 trillion over a 10 year period, a trillion dollars a year. Then we've got something to sink our teeth into and use the alternative uh, technology. And where is the shuttlecraft uh, technology, Rama? Where is it? Uh, <laughs> gotta talk to the chief engineer. Meaning who? Uh, meaning the chief engineer, uh, the New Jerusalem. Um, so who's that? I can't remember his name at the moment, but I'll come up with it. Okay. Um, all right, Mama, you need to talk to people for a minute because I've got to work on something here. Oh. Um... I did hear today, living on the edge, they were talking about the crazy conspiracy theories with Mr. Q and how Mr. Trump is trying to get back in the White House by August and these people uh, living on the edge had um, a governor on. Governor Grissom, Michelle Lujan Grissom, and she basically called Mr. Trump out, calling him a domestic terrorist, tied in with the NRA and the other folks who, on January 6th, attempted to do a coup d'etat. And, let's say, there are ramifications for doing this kind of stuff, and it's big. And as we approach, you know, eight, eight lions gay. This is what Tom, Larry, Curly, Moe, and Sweet Angelique said today. As we approach this particular eight, eight lions gay, things are really going to increase. 
in magnitude with the frequencies around the sun. And there are stories out there about how the sun is going to go through a major upgrade. And I mean a major upgrade. And the solar flares are going to only increase. And of course, the galactics know how to shield the Earth from the solar flares that would, you know, destroy the grid. Yet, you know, there is that story out there where one of the solar flares that comes out of the sun sends a beam of energy all the way to Galactic Center, and the whole galaxy is going to get to see this. And this is a big deal. Other folks like Ed Dames, i got to say, with all due respect, they talk about this being a kill shot, that it would knock the grid out on Earth. What would? <coughs> with solar flare so strong that it would light up the aurora Borealis around Earth, meaning the magnetic field, and parts of the grid would go down maybe for a week or months. And that ain't going to happen. But did you say that solar flare would be visually seen by the whole galaxy, yes, not just people would. from Earth? Yes, it would. So, uh, so this kind of prediction about our technology going down is saying something. It's that saying we're so far behind. What it, what it is about is uplift, you know, not using the technology that Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk are playing with, but the free energy that Tesla talked about called the ether, the aether, energy that comes from the air itself. All the particles right now that are in our atmosphere, as you work with them, there's all the energy we need and more. <laughs> That's the talking stick. Okay. Well, Putin had a kind of interesting amount of things to say including complimenting Trump. <laughs> I was just like, oh, dear. I would just say that he has remained in a neutral space and made a comment or two that, besides that one, that had some merit, you might say. Some merit. And, um, so let me just go back there. See if I can locate this piece. It's well, when you've been around for 500 years, you know the art of mediation, negotiation. Absolutely. And it's about coming from the high heart, not about threats of war and violence and death. That's true, Ron. 
<laughs> okay, there he is. All right, just a moment. Go back there again. Momentito, everybody. I heard something. Mm -hmm. Um, what? Oh, nothing. Oh. Okay, just hold on a second. I have to move it back. Didn't quite work. Okay, now I can turn the sound up. Just hold on, everybody. Just want you to hear a little bit of this. What? Nothing. Just to believe it now, I believe that former U.S. President, Mr. Trump, is an extraordinary individual, talented individual. Otherwise, he would not have become U.S. President. He's a colorful individual. You may like him or not. And, but he didn't come from the U.S. establishment. He had not been part of big-time politics before. And some like it, some don't like it. But that is a fact. President Biden, of course, is radically different from Trump because President Biden is a career man. He spent virtually his entire adulthood in politics. Just think of the number of years he spent in the Senate. A different kind of person. And it is my great hope that, yes, there are some advantages, some disadvantages, but there will not be any impulse-based movements on behalf of the sitting U.S. President. We sat down for a 90-minute interview inside the Kremlin, where I pressed him on accusations he has ordered assassinations of his adversaries. The late John McCain uh, in Congress called you a killer. When President Trump was asked, uh, was told that you are a killer, he didn't deny it. When President Biden was asked whether he believes you are a killer, he said, I do, Mr. President. Are you a killer? <laughs> Over my tenure, I've gotten used to attacks from all kinds of angles and from all kinds of areas under all kinds of pretexts and reasons and a different caliber and fierceness, and none of it surprises me. So as far as harsh rhetoric, I think that this is an expression of overall U.S. culture. Of course, in Hollywood, there are some underlying deep things in Hollywood. Macho. I was going to be treated as cinematic art, but that is part of U.S. political culture where it's considered normal. By the way, not here. It is not considered normal here. I don't think I heard you answer the question, the direct question. Uh, I think it's the president. I didn't answer. I didn't answer. I will add if you let me. I've heard dozens of such accusations, especially during the period of some cruel events during our counterterrorism efforts in the Caucasus. And when that happens, I'm always guided by the interests of the Russian people and Russian state. And sentiments in terms of who calls somebody who and what kind of labels, this is not something I worry about in the least. Let me give you some names. Anna Polakovskaya shot dead. Alexander Litvinenko, poisoned by polonium. Uh, Sergei Bibinsky, allegedly beaten and died in prison. Boris Nemtsov shot. Moments from the Kremlin, moments from here. Uh, Mikhail Lessin uh, died of uh, blunt trauma in Washington, D.C. All of these are coincidences, Mr. President. <laughs> no, wait. Uh, look, you know, I don't want to come across as being rude, but this looks like some kind of indigestion. Except it's verbal indigestion. You've mentioned many individuals who did suffer and perish at different points in time for various reasons at the hands of different individuals. You mentioned Lazen. Lazen used to work in my administration. I liked him very much. He died, he perished, or died in the United States. I regret to this day that he is not with us. 
In my opinion, he's a very decent, very good person. And as far as the others, we found some of the criminals who committed those crimes. Some are in prison, and we're prepared to continue to work in this mode. But today, reports that Russia is offering to supply Iran with satellite technology that would help it target the U.S. military in the region. President Putin denying those claims. What an interview, and you can all watch more of Kier's exclusive interview Monday on NBC's Today Show, NBC Nightly News, and of course right here on MSNBC. Well, joining me now, I think that's enough. Congressman Cherry, that's enough because I mean we know that um, Miss Hillary in the deep state has laid some trips on Putin that are her doing. And that's not going to, you're not going to hear that on MSNBC. Uh, no. So we'll let that go for now. Um, mm. I want to play one piece before we go to our brother, um, Cryon. He's got some things for us today. Pramila Jayapal was pretty good with Al Sharpton as well, but I think we'll play this first. This is with Afshin Rattan, uh, Rattanzi, and I'll let him do the interviewing. Here we go. We're going underground on unearthing the stories buried in the so-called mainstream media coming up on the show. As the China and Russia snubbing G7 summit continues in Cornwall in the UK, we speak to legendary author, historian and activist Harry Daly about the meeting of the notable leaders and ask how hope can be grasped from the jaws of despair when it comes to Palestine pandemics, protests and the police. All this more coming up in today's going underground as after repeated threats against China and Russia, so-called G7 leaders in England continue to talk about the future of humankind from the economy to COVID to climate catastrophe. The summit, guarded by thousands of extra members of the UK's security forces, is facing massive protests, including from groups like Extinction Rebellion, used by Boris Johnson to justify new, arguably draconian, anti-protest legislation. So how can protests and dissent really make any difference when power more and more lies in the hands of the 1%? Join me now is the original Rolling Stones street-fighting man, author and activist Tariq Ali, who has been at the heart of civil protests for decades. Tariq, thanks so much for uh, coming back on. I should say it's been a week where there's been bombing uh, across Syria linked to these very G7 powers, obviously following on from May's 11-day war uh, against Gaza and, and Jerusalem. Your take, first of all, on uh, the G7 meeting in England uh, during the pandemic. I'm not totally sure, uh, and why they want to meet. I mean, why do they want to be a magnet for huge protests? This is largely a PR exercise to get their respective populations and citizens uh, ideologically prepared uh, for what they're going to be doing economically 
and which is uh, extremely important and what they're going to do re-China uh, and on a lesser scale re-Russia. I think the key issue obviously is, I mean, Biden's decision to ditch neoliberalism as we have known it and to pour in money, whether it works or not, we will see. But the fact that this is an, an initiative that has been taken by a president, it marks a shift within ruling circles in capitalism. And the second question related to that, which they have to discuss, of course, is how long these huge IT corporations can get, get away without paying any taxes at all in the countries uh, where they are, and, uh, where they invest and where they make money. Uh, whether they will come up with any satisfactory solutions is, of course, uh, a matter of opinion, because in most cases, these uh, the large corporations, the new billionaires, fund quite a number of political parties, both in Europe and the United States, so it's not easy to take them on. It will have to be a behind-the-scenes uh, protracted negotiations to see uh, how much these greedy vultures are prepared to pay. Well, so as they print uh, money, as they arrange the printing of more and more and more money, as you say, this, this very uh, fundamental change in, in neoliberal orthodoxy, uh, there are reports, again, of refugees trying to uh, cross the channel, to, across to England, and of course Biden's vice president has been in Guatemala telling uh, the uh, people of Latin America, do not come to the United States. I think Mark changed to the tweets from Biden and Kamala Harris during their election campaigns. Do you think they've learned something from the European Union they can pay off to stop the refugees from uh, from NATO nation wars? Of course, the question is, the European Union, as we know, paid off Turkey uh, large amounts of money to prevent the refugees from the Syrian war, which is now being prolonged and kept going by the West. This should be stressed. Uh, but they will not take on the responsibilities of war. They've never liked to do that in Europe. Uh, I mean, I once said, satirically, but half seriously, when you people decide to go to war, you should allocate amongst yourselves, preferably in public, how many refugees are going to come in at the end of these wars or during these wars. So if you're uh, escalating in Syria, you should say, Germany half a million, Britain a quarter of a million, etc., etc. So people are prepared, saying this is what these countries, our countries are going to war, and this is the result. Don't blame the refugees. Blame those who create the refugees. So Europe's position has always been marginally worse historically than that of the United States. The Americans, when they leave a country, uh, where they've either failed or inflicted heavy damage and just induced a stalemate, I'm thinking now of Korea and Vietnam, do take in refugees from these countries, but largely from a, a, a layer, a social layer of the population that has collaborated with them. They don't do it for everyone, but they do it. Uh, the Europeans tend even to, to not to do even that, as we see in some of the debates that are taking place. And in the United States, for this Democrat regime, to just carry on with Trump's policies and mouth sort of rhetoric, which is either the same or marginally even worse, and we just want them to take you. I mean, do you remember 
the brouhaha, the anger, when Trump did all this. How can he do this? Now you have a government which on this front and on foreign policy is doing virtually the same. So uh, it's um, it's on, on, on this level. I mean, Kamala Harris's uh, remarks to the South Americans are pretty appalling, but they don't even have Turkey to halt it. Erdogan, who does lots of different things at the same time, can be brutish enough to keep the uh, uh, refugees there, put them up in appalling conditions, and keep taking the billions that the EU supplies it largely it has to be said for racist reasons. I mean, why should these refugees, which are created by wars, being fought by the West, not be allowed to come to the countries waging the wars? I mean, they have a certain political and moral responsibility to do this. So if you don't want refugees, don't make wars. That's a lesson they refuse to learn as they think of, you know, where they're going to intervene next, a short bombing here, a raid here. They just carry on. They're doing it in Syria. Uh, they're doing it in other parts of the Middle East. Uh, a, a region now which has known no peace since the first Gulf War and the sanctions imposed on Iraq after it. There is a backstory here. And that backstory needs to be stressed all the time. For the younger generations, these are not today's events. These are events which spring up from the past. And the past was filthy and ugly. And no one seems to have learned any lessons. Well, we invite the Turkish ambassador on. Obviously, Turkey denies uh, racism. But your uh, uh, vision of, uh, of the world that... Complete odds with uh, the NATO nation media uh, coverage of the G7 as the G7's uh, uh, leaders talk about a rules-based international order and how uh, the fight now is against China. Obviously, Boris Johnson sending our aircraft carrier towards uh, Chinese maritime borders. Uh, do you think, um, I mean, is it a captive media that's covering the conflict? The media in the West has been deteriorating and degenerating since the collapse of the old Soviet Union, let's face it. And it's obvious that while the Soviet Union existed, they put up, uh, you know, the, one of the priorities was to show how different we are. So space on television and in the mainstream newspapers was allocated to some dissenting voices as if to mock the Russians and say, Aha, you can't do that, we can. And this process has now reached such a stage that the mainstream media actually is behaving more and more like the old craft I used to do when, you know, uh, in, in the 50s or even in the early 60s. Just effectively acting on behalf of the state and sometimes completely uncreatively. You can pick up more or less any paper, whether it's a right-wing tabloid or whether it's a liberal guardian. And on key issues, the line is virtually the same. And I think some of their readers and listeners are punishing them uh, for it. There are many other alternatives uh, uh, on television because of the development of technology. You can see news from on RT, on uh, Al Jazeera, on 
Delhi Sur on numerous other channels uh, that exist. So that monopoly has been broken, but obviously only for privileged people or people who can do all this. Not everyone in the world has a computer or a telephone on which you can watch this, but that monopoly has been broken, and that's a huge step forward, which is why they now want to control Twitter and Facebook as well. So many people putting up pictures from Palestine or interviews, I just told this breaches our whatever standards they call it. Is, it, is, that, what, is that what made this 11-day war in May uh, different to previous wars, because they couldn't ignore... Uh, the destruction and the mass killing of uh, uh, civilians and women and children. Absolutely. Uh, they couldn't do it. Uh, and, you know, these images, I mean, they've uh, punished uh, Al Jazeera by bombing their offices, uh, first in Kabul ages ago, then uh, during the Iraq war, especially after the Al Jazeera head of station said to them, these are our coordinates. Please make sure you don't have drone attacks and rockets on this place. That's exactly what happened. After they were given the coordinates, they used them and bombed the Al Jazeera headquarters. And there were disgusting images made by a Canadian documentary filmmaker who showed the entire Western media holed up in Qatar, seeing the fall of Baghdad. Uh, with American soldiers cheering and doing this and that, and they stood up and gave it a standing ovation this image. That is the level now of large chunks of the Western media. So, uh, uh, actually, the one should say that the recent attacks on Gaza, the images that have come out from that, have created not a sea change, I wouldn't use that phrase, but have created a certain shift, both in public opinion, which is shocked, not you know, that these things have been happening for years, but they're shocked now, in Gaza since 2008, if my memory is right, non-stop, and the pattern is exactly the same. Bombings, children dying, buildings being knocked down, shock, horror, disappears. It's never mentioned again. But in a small way, this has been going on every day in some shape or form, either in the occupied territories or in Israel itself or in, in Gaza. And the fact that the New York Times chose to publish on its front page the pictures of all the kids that died in Gaza is something that would have happened five years ago. Of course, Israel says that there were anti-Iron Dome software in the Associated Press Al Jazeera building that was, that was blown up. Tarek, we'll take a short break there. We'll hear more from legendary author and activist Tarek Ali after this break. Hold on, everybody. Hey, I'm silly. G7 summit continues in Cornwall, surrounded by police, to keep the protesters at bay. I'm still here with author and activist Tarek Ali. All media seems to not directly link it to the G7 leaders. This is Israel. This is evil Netanyahu faces a no-confidence vote tomorrow uh, in Israel. Uh, they don't link it necessarily to British, American, EU nation arms sales to Israel that's killing these children. Right. They never do. Why should they? I mean, that's something which is inconceivable for the West. Israel has been such a reliable relay for Western imperialism since 1948-49 onwards. 
that it's something they cannot consider is punishing it for what it is doing. And people sometimes say to me, but, you know, do you think this war could ever end? I think war could end within three months if the United States in particular and its allies imposed military sanctions and, if necessary, economic sanctions on Israel till it pulls out all its troops from the occupied areas to start off with and removes the settlements. They have to be removed. So I said that could be a demand, which in olden times some moderate Zionists supported, but that's all gone now. Israel itself is a state run by the Israeli far right, and still they give it so much uh, 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 leeway. So the war, the situation goes on, we wait till the next outrage, you know, the pattern will probably be the same. Mean the uh, first intifada, the three-year one, which lasted three years, forced the Israelis to negotiate, but they picked and chose who they negotiated with, the leadership in Tunis, not the leadership of the intifada in the occupied lands and in Israel uh, uh, itself. And this has been a problem which we don't discuss often enough, in my opinion, is that the collaboration of the Palestinian Authority and the Fatah leadership has been a disaster story. Even recently, I was told, as these horrific things were going on in Sheikh Jarrah, in Jerusalem, in Gaza, in other parts of the country, the PLO leaders in a number of places were using security forces to dampen down demonstrations on the West Bank. This has been their task. Well, the PA obviously denies that, says it's all part of the resistance, but certainly what you're saying is echoed uh, arguably by Hanan Ashrawi on, on this program in the past. Few days. I mean, uh, what about dissent? I mean, you, you talked about how dissent was uh, arguably allowed a little bit more room in the so-called mainstream media before the fall of the Berlin Wall. Now we hear evidence from the spy cops inquiry here in Britain concerning you, how they spied on you and the people around you. The demonstrators today outside the G7, uh, do they have reason to be frightened of the authorities, more frightened than even you were in the over many years fighting for civil rights? Well, I mean, they, they admitted that they had 14 officers that spied on me over 45 years. Was I frightened? Not really. And I'll tell you why. Because there's very little I said in private on political issues that I didn't also say in public. And they must have known that. I said it on television, I said it on radio, I said it at meetings, and I said it at home, the private dinners. It's not a big secret, what I think. And I'm saying, as I'm saying it to you now. So it's not a question of being frightened, it's knowing they do it, but asking, why do you do it? I mean, what do you need? Today the situation is completely different, as we know. When the German Chancellor, MP, under surveillance by our own secret police with the backing of the CIA or the CIA with the backing of our own secret police. I know. And do you remember not so long ago we were told 
how awful the Stasi was in East Germany for spying non-stop on its citizens. The West is doing exactly the same thing. Actually, they're doing it on a level much, much higher than the Stasi. Everyone can be spied on. So the people uh, demonstrating should be worried of infiltrators being sent into their ranks and, uh, you know, building relationships there or whatever sort. That is really only what they did. And <clears throat> the uh, fact that they can actually change anything by spying on people. I mean, actually, I'll tell you a story. There were spies placed in 1917 by the Ukraine, the Tsarist secret police, and the leadership of the Bolshevik Party and the Menshevik Party. What effect did it have? They actually made the revolution. And the funny thing is, the general running the Ukraine, I used to say, it's very funny. The Bolshevik spies, we put in the Bolsheviks and the Mon, they come and they're giving a description of similar situations and fighting with each other just like the Bolsheviks and Bolsheviks do. <laughs> These are the spies getting influenced by the organizations in which they were set to spy. I mean, they were, you know, obviously it was a different situation. But it, what's so different now? I mean, what will they get out of all these five big up people? I mean, they already have laws to lock people up for months without atheist corpus. That's going to be a disgrace. And there's a new anti-protest bill uh, coming coming through. I think uh, uh, some people are maybe surprised that at least Joe Biden has talked uh, about maybe stopping intellectual property rights for a little while on the COVID vaccine, talking a little bit about uh, Saudi arms sales to Saudi Arabia for use on Yemen. Britain stands fast, says we will continue selling the weapons uh, to kill people in Yemen. Is there a sign that some of U.S. allies are even more gung-ho than Joe Biden and his security apparatus? It's true that, actually. And uh, they do it, <coughs> you know, to show, to show their loyalty to the own concept of how the world is run, and to say to the U.S., we are defending you better than you can do yourself, which is pathetic. And this whole notion, which I've hated, you know, nonsensical notion, that there is something called an international community. It's not. There is no international community. There's the United Nations Security Council, where a veto can stop anything flat. And the United States knows this. It is the international community. It goes and does what it, it wants everywhere. As for Boris Johnson sending an aircraft carrier to uh, China, it's pathetic. It's to show loyalty. Uh, it's to show we are, we will be with you always. I mean, Blair was even worse than Johnson, actually, in sucking up to the uh, Americans. And they are very nervous now, having left the EU, that the key power in Europe, as far as the U.S. is concerned, is not Britain, if the truth be told, it's Germany. It's been that behind the scenes for some time. It's now sort of even over. That is the country with which the U.S. is really interested in maintaining a very close relationship. Britain, they take for granted. Germany, of course, and crosshairs over this uh, Russian Nord Stream 2 uh, deal at the moment. Yeah, you see, the problem with the German government 
has been there for some time, that as long as U.S. troops are stationed in that country, I mean, think about it, the war ended in 1945. The West put in well-known Nazis and fascists in key positions in the Army and Intelligence Services. 40 to 45% of the judiciary, the army, etc., top brass were not changed. Same in Japan, yet in both these countries, they still have uh, uh, military bases. And so both these countries, Japan more than Germany, have no real sovereignty. The hatred of Russia now is not related in particular to what Putin may or may not do. It's related to the fact that the Russian government has taken back its sovereignty. That Gorbachev in his weak way and Yeltsin in a completely craven way had given up on. We trust you. We'll do what you want. Uh, and got no concessions at all apart from verbal ones on NATO. NATO will not extend its frontiers, etc., etc., which they have broken with impunity. So it was necessary for any government in Russia to take back its sovereignty. And as far as the Chinese are concerned, who can doubt now that they are in many ways the sort of most important country in the world, economically, and they're not going to be treated like they were before. So all this military threats and saber-rattling and aircraft carriers is going to have no impact. The Chinese are the most important country in the world. Now, there are people in the United States who are thinking, we weakened Russia a long time ago, decades ago, by making a block with China. And we succeeded to a certain extent in doing that. Perhaps we should do a deal with the Russians to weaken China. They do what they think in those terms. That if we can get Russia on side, we can then use them. I myself am not sure that even if they try this seriously, it's going to work because people have learned uh, a, a few lessons. And, uh, you know, this what has been going on over the last five or six years has affected different parts of the world. I mean, I will say this to you, that it's very interesting that when Bolsonaro first came to power in Brazil, the Western media, including the Financial Times, were very pleased economically. It's not that Lula was that radical, but they were pleased. Now they're so horrified by what Bolsonaro is doing to that country. And Lula's standing and opinion poll ratings are going higher and higher and higher that the German and British ambassadors in Brasilia called on Lula and said, we want you to take power wherever the cost and we are prepared to support you. They'll probably deny this. I know it's a fact. As if Lula doesn't know what's been going on and who backed the coup against him and against Dilma uh, uh, when the, who backed it? The U.S. The U.S. entity. Well, just, just very briefly then, I mean, all the G7 leaders presumably are agreed that they want to overthrow the government of Venezuela still. Uh, obviously Boris Johnson hosted one way over here. Uh, Africa, just a charity case, presumably talked about his COVID vaccines and, and you say that Southeast Asia, uh, they seem to have lost it to, to China. Do you think something really significant is now changing in, in Latin America? Obviously, we have these uh, uh, rumors of a Castillo win in Peru. 
Yeah, I think that, you know, contrary to what some analysts said, I never believed the pink tide was totally over. Because the pink tide, as it was called, was effectively a form of left social democracy, sometimes not even too left, backed by mass movements against the right. That's what this movement was, that it's most radical under Hugo Chavez, uh, and radical, uh, you know, on a lesser level in other parts. I mean, we've seen victories now in Bolivia, where the coup of Jutopol Evo has been defeated. In Peru, they tried very hard to make this sort of totally corrupt, far-right Fujimori lady, whose father is an ex-president who is still in prison, charged with murder. Uh, uh, in Argentina, there's been a shift, so it goes up and down. In Chile, there's been a huge victory for people who want a new constitution, a huge defeat for the Chilean Centre Party uh, and for the right wing in Chile. So I one shouldn't give up on South America, and if Lula comes to power again, he will try and work, I think, with China and Russia and not with the Pepas who worked to try and bring him down. And in Venezuela, they failed so far. They thought that the Venezuelan army would crumble, that Venezuelan generals could be bought with dollars, and they would then organize a friendly coup to put this stooge, whose name I've forgotten, who they paraded around Europe and North America as the actual president. I mean, that's a joke. They don't even know what they're doing. No one takes this sort of behavior seriously. Whatever uh, Maduro's shortcomings, he stayed there. And still now, the Venezuelan state has been solid in resisting attempts to topple uh, Maduro. They, they have experience from the past. They know what happens when you do that. Well, there's more on Latin America on our YouTube channel. Derek Alley, thank you. Thank you. That's it. The show will be back on Monday to talk about a future very different from the one in business by G7 leaders in England. We talk capitalism, democracy, and the potential for war on China with venture capitalists and political scientists Eric Lee. Until then, follow us on social media to never miss a story. And if you're following on YouTube, comment below and tell us about the time you protested to something you believe in. Oh my, no more war. Intervention, everybody. Okay, I'm going to read one more thing before we go to crying. This is well done, and it's in com- it's in uh, compatible with Tariq's chat here with Afshin Ratanzi. And this is uh, Tom Hartman's daily rant from Friday, from yesterday. And it says here, Trump, who corrupted the highest office in America, must be prosecuted. Prosecuting Donald Trump and Bill Barr is not a matter of political payback. It is very, li- it has very little to do with Donald Trump or the Republican Party. In fact, it's about the future of our republic. As we can keep it, as Benjamin Franklin said. All right, so, um, and there's a completely honest image, I mean, real-life photo here of Donald Trump without his wig, and he's got an orange jumpsuit on, and he's got a little bit of a sweater over that, and he he looks the way he really is, and you can see 
a, a bit of a resentfulness and anger in his look and in his countenance and the age that he really is. So Honorary de Balzac said, quote, Behind every great fortune lies a great crime, unquote. Apparently, there are multiple great crimes behind the drunk fortune. Stretching all the way back to his stealing most of his initial wealth from other members of his family, as his niece Mary Drumpf is alleging in a lawsuit. Yet the crimes of Drumpf we should all concern ourselves with are his crimes against our nation and democracy itself. Not only is there little evidence that anybody, including the Justice Department, is interested in pursuing these crimes. Rather, also, Republicans in in state after state are going out of their way to facilitate future political criminal activity. America has always had a weird attitude about prosecuting the rich and the powerful. Think about it. Outside of Jeffrey Epstein, can you name one billionaire or multi-hundred millionaire who has been seriously prosecuted for criminal activity? And Epstein, Bernie Madoff, no, he never, he never, never quite, no, and they, no, but he, yeah, they put him in prison, but he he was just a lackey for the wealthy who put him up to it, Rama, Bernie Madoff, yeah. Epstein, after initially being convicted some years ago, was treated in a hands-off fashion and allowed to continue his crimes with the support of some very consequential politicians and Florida prosecutors, at least until he was shut up for good. But that's not true because Epstein's still alive and well, and he's that was a, a deep state Hillary Clinton setup to make it look as though he was uh, dead in prison. That didn't happen. They swapped a lookalike and stuck him in prison, and and then off they carded Jeffrey Epstein, and he's uh, doing just what he was above the surface, but now he's doing it in the underground underneath Tel Aviv. And the beat goes on, so just correct that piece. While there is a certain immunity available to very wealthy people all over the world, both because they can afford the very best legal help and they have politicians in debt to them, other countries still manage to prosecute their rich and powerful citizens. Yep, Sarkozy, the former president of France, is going away now. They're doing it a little late, little late, but they're going to do that too. And uh, what's the lady that was the head of the IMF? What was her name again? Christine Lagarde. Yes, Christine Lagarde. Christine Lagarde is wanted for embezzlement, and he. She did a lot of fraud and embezzlement and stealing money uh, with Sarkozy. So she's next. And uh, she is not a she. She is a he. There's nothing wrong with that. I'm just saying that she's covering it up. Okay. France's President Sarkozy 
was recently convicted of bribery, and Israel's Netanyahu is under indictment for crimes that would land him in prison for years. Neither of those democracies are trembling under the weight of this. <clears throat> Donald Trump brought criminals and fascists like Paul Manafort and Michael Flynn into the heart of our political system, and grifters and con artists such as Betsy DeVos, Elaine Chow, Mr. McTurtle's wife, remembering that her father is a huge shipping magnet who shipped the lethal concoction of Ebola to Africa on his ship, and uh, it ended up killing, some, they said, something like 11,000 people. I'm just going to beg to differ with those figures, just like all the other figures. You know, they're still saying under 3,000 people died at ground zero. It's over 90,000 and counting today. And Wilbur Ross into the White House itself. And Trump also brought in the extraordinarily corrupt lawyer, Bill Barr who had previously corrupted the Office of Attorney General for George H.W. Bush as well. As Barr was Attorney General in December 1992, after Bush lost the election, and Bill Clinton was about to assume power, Barr helped Bush engineer a massive cover-up of the Iran-Contra treason. As Reagan and Bush committed American weapons to the Iranians, as they would hold the hostages long enough to damage the presidency of Jimmy Carter to help Reagan win the 1980 election. America knew that both Reagan and Bush were up to their necks in Iran-Contra, and Democrats had been talking about treason, impeachment, or worse. The Independent Council had already obtained one conviction, three guilty pleas, and two other individuals were lined up for prosecution. And Walsh was closing in fast on Bush himself. And they've got a newspaper clipping here, and the title of this uh, story is Bush Pardons Six Iran Affair, Six in Iran Affair, Averting a Weinberger Trial, Prosecutor Assails Cover-Up. Bush Diary at Issue is the subtitle of the article over here. So, uh, and this was from the New York Times, December 24th, 1992. So, as Bush shut the investigation down by pardoning not only Weinberger, rather also Abrams, North, Ollie North, and the others involved in the crime. Destroy, destroying Walsh's ability to prosecute anybody. The New York Times ran the headline all the way across four of the six columns on the front page. The New York Times ran, yeah, I said that, excuse me, screaming in all caps, Bush pardoned six in a ran affair, aborting a Weinberger trial, prosecutor of sales cover-up. Bill Barr had struck more recently, working for Trump, this time Barr oversaw spying on both reporters and Democrats on the House Intelligence Committee, who were looking into Trump's ties to Russia. 
yet Drunk was also committing crimes all by himself, too. The Mueller report lays out ten specific examples of Donald Drunk committing the felony crime of obstruction of justice and dozens of others Dozens of other examples of his criminality in the White House are well known. Whether it's taking bribes from foreign governments, passing top-secret intelligence along to the Russians, or attempting to corrupt legitimate elections, there can be no doubt that Donald Trump was a criminal before he, he came into the White House and continued his criminal activity throughout the four years of his presidency. America has more prisoners than any other country on earth, both in actual numbers and per capita. The rationale that, quote, tough on crime, unquote, legislators have used for generations to justify harsh penalties in paying harsh penalties is that of, that as people are not held to account for their crimes, and as society doesn't see the example of people paying for their crimes, criminals will be emboldened and society will suffer under even greater levels of crime. Setting aside how that actually plays out in our criminal justice system, there is a lot of truth to the idea that letting criminals get away with their crimes only emboldens them and those who seek to emulate them. The Boston Globe is now out with a series of articles about the crimes of Donald Trump and and recently explicitly called for him to be prosecuted, specifically for the crimes he committed while in the White House. Their justification for calling for the criminal prosecution of Donald Trump follows the same lines. As he gets away with it, what might another morally impaired future president, say someone such as Ted Cruz, help me God, or Rick Scott, another one, be able to pull off using drums skating by as president? The Globe is absolutely right. Jack Kennedy was famous for smuggling women into the White House. And Republicans will never let you forget it, forget it. As they finally caught Bill Clinton red-handed, they not only tried to prosecute him, rather also they turned him into only the second president in history of our country to be impeached by the House of Representatives. Accountability is a big thing for Republicans. It seems even as it comes to lying about getting a... A B.I., what's that? Or does that say B.J.? A B.J., what's that? <laughs> but only when it's Democrats being held to account. Uh, I don't know what that means. Prosecuting Trump, Barr, and the other corrupt members of his administration and people around him is not a matter of political payback. It has very little to do with Donald Trump or the Republican Party. In fact, it's about the future of our republic. They must be held accountable. President Biden and Congress must appoint an independent special prosecutor or equivalent. 
and set up an office within the Justice Department to look into crimes committed in the White House during the previous four years. As we fail to do this soon, it will come, it will become practically and politically impossible. And as America fails to hold its rich and powerful to account, particularly the man who corrupted the highest office in the land, we will have truly gone down the same path as an increasingly corrupted ancient Rome, leading straight to the death of our republic too. We still don't have those things, but nonetheless, the demonstrations of being who we are are helping what can transform all of this into a real solid truth. While my daily rant will always be free, with no advertisement, you can support our work by upgrading to a full subscription. Okay, that's the end. And I'll just say, we make sure to remain in unconditional divine neutrality as we and then as we go forward here and listen to a cry on, um, we put all of this that we read and that we listened to from Tariq Ali with Ashin Ratanzi in that meditation practice so that a peaceful, harmonious transition through the whole thing and the medicine that goes with it can come to pass. All right, Rama. What is the title of this? How to pull energy from the future into the now moment. How to pull energy from the future into the now moment. Got to stay in the now. All right. Lord Cryon, you're on the air. Here we go, Rama. Greetings, dear ones. I'm Cryon of Magnetic Service. Many of you have not seen this in person. You're looking at something that is not unique. Something that has happened on this planet with humans since humans were here. Since the very creation story. Since you were implanted with that which is divine from the creative source which was a spiritual free choice that each of you has. Channeling is the way human beings communicate to the other side of the veil. My partner steps aside. In his method of channeling, he listens, but he doesn't know what's going to happen. Scripture was channeled. Can't you tell? The beauty, the truths that are there, the love. All of these things culminating in messages from the other side of the veil to humanity. I know who you are, dear ones. Who sits in front of me is known by spirit, by God. 
I've never been a human being. My soul is not like yours. I represent that which would allow for an entourage to come in to an area like this. It is not necessarily something that you would be doing in meditation. Because while this channel is open, it's open. And there's a small portal that comes with it. And in through that flows family who knows you. Oh, I cannot begin this channel without reminding you where you are. <coughs> this is a church, and in this church, marvelous things have taken place. Epiphanies that are miraculous have taken place. Healings throughout the pews have taken place, especially on the front row. Those who have life shifts and changes, those who have saved their own lives with the messages. And dear ones, in the process of this, energy is created. Can you imagine the energy that is created from a miraculous situation? And it flows and stays in the room. There's a lot of wood in here. The wood is still alive in so many ways. It's beauty, where it came from. And it absorbs that which is the energy that is so beautiful. You walk into a room like this, and if you could look at a multidimensional clock where everything is happening in the now, all of the miracles and the healings are happening now, right now, right now, all at once. This is how spirit sees this. Oh, I can tell you, there have been times in this room where every single human being was sobbing with joy because of what they saw in this place. There would be songs that were sung with full voice because of what they saw in this place when they realized God is good. There's a oneness that is present. An acceptance of all prophets, all belief systems. In a way that is a unifier of one God. One God is prevalent through the earth. Belief, belief is in one God through many prophets. But in this place, even the prophets are connected. You can see this in a lot of the symbols around this. A place of unification. The groups that have come for the worship services through the years have witnessed it all. And so you sit in a place that is already warmed up. It's already ready. The things that you might want to do in a place that's already there and prepared. The entourage who is here are family. What would be the family that would come in at this point? <clears throat> More than just those you've lost and loved, but the ancients that some of you have been. Difficult for you to understand the cycle of life, reincarnation. 
that which might be in your Akash is manifestable at a time like this. And literally through the portal comes who you used to be. You with you. Can you imagine a meeting like that? A cheering section of yous. And all they're doing is looking at you and I'll tell you what the message is. You're at the right place at the right time. Don't pay attention to how old you are. Young person, elder, doesn't matter. Because the consciousness you have is an old soul consciousness. And what you do next when you leave this room is critical. And it's not critical in your works. It's critical in your consciousness. How do you think about things around you? What do you see? Do you see the oneness in all? Do you see the God in others? Or do you see problems in others? There's a cheering section here. Some of you know and can feel it already. The ones you loved and lost, including my partner, is here. Are here. These are the ones, dear ones. The etherics are strong, that are invisible. And you would say, well, of course they're invisible, they're metaphoric and all, no, they're not. They are here and they're invisible. Just like some of the quantumness that is described by the scientists when they're looking at the experiments and they're saying, we never saw this before because it's out of 3D. When they look at the atomic structure and they say, look, there has to be at least 11 more dimensions, even in what we know here. And it's all, are you ready? Invisible. And so science is starting to understand that real things that have an effect on life and physics are invisible. Turn the page. You're now in a spiritual venue spiritual information. And I'm telling you it's no difference than the physics that is being studied today. Because God is the master physicist. And what you're looking at is a plan, a spiritual plan, where life never goes away. And it's recycled and it comes because souls are eternal. And the souls of those you've loved and lost the souls that you have been split off in ways you don't understand and revisit you right now in this place. Dear Brian, I don't understand any of this. I have one soul. How can I have someone who was another soul come and visit me when they're actually my soul from the past? And I will say, you really are an intellectual metaphysical person. <laughs> It's so complicated and it's so beautiful and the system allows, allows for these kinds of things to exist. It's all about the love that is there from the other side of the veil for you. It's the only reason they would be here. They're sitting here with you. Some of you can feel them and even smell them because it's time. You have a culture where the holidays are coming. Can you remember some good times when the presents were delivered and there was the smiles of your parents? 
Perhaps parents who are not here now. Delighting in the fact, the squeals of your happiness, the things that took place, the dinners that were there. I want you to hold that. I want you to hold that. Because that's not from the past. That is happening right now. All the good things that you can imagine about these holidays, the gift giving, the preciousness when you were children, the beauty that was there in so many of you, never went away. Dear ones, you think it's gone, but it is not. Time is always in a circle, and it's the circle of the now. And this now can always be experienced no matter how far away you think it is. And by the way, there's part of that now that you're not even thinking about. What about the future? If time is in a circle, what about the future? I want you to think for a moment about a future where everything that you're carrying today that would give you anxiety is solved. Health, finances, job, relationship, issues. I want you to think at a time where they are solved and you've moved on. Solved and moved on. Healed and moved on. Now I want you to put that in that same now as those precious times when the inner child opened the present and you could see the parent or present or parents celebrating you. Just like you do with your children. These are the moments of compassionate joy, future and past, that you can capture and hold and become that will extend your life. I'm going to talk about that later, about how the chemistry reacts. When you can hold those kinds of conscious thoughts some of them live in your brain, in your mind, in your synapse. They're yours forever. And here comes the holidays again. Dear ones, for some of you, these are trying times. This is one of the last meetings we will have before the culmination, the date of December 25 or 24 depending upon when the celebration occurs. <clears throat> Some of you have an opportunity to go back and be with family who doesn't understand you at all. It's a trying time for many. Old souls who have awakened to a different reality and have started to believe in things unseen. Planned synchronicity. Confluence of events that are not chance. Looking to the future. Answers that will come through conscious choice. Healings that have yet to be accomplished, but they're there. Problems which will be solved, that you don't know about yet. Past lives. The energy of colors, numbers. All of these things, which, by the way, are not new. 
These are things all which were celebrated by the ancients before your civilization ever got going. It's a return to the basic truth of earth, civilization, humanity, and the creator. All of these things that you're suddenly awakening to and considering are ancient. And you go home and there are those who don't agree. You think you're odd, strange, you may even be the black sheep of the family. Don't raise your hands. How's it going to go? For the few hours or the days that you're in a place you don't necessarily want to be in. I speak to those listening to this now. I've addressed this before. Every holiday I address this. But it's more profound now because of the new energy. A new energy that's showing itself on the news. <laughs> a new energy that you never thought would show up. Plenty to talk about. Plenty of opinions. But there's massive change. And it's a change you may have even told them is coming. That makes you more of a black sheep. Now let me ask you, and we're going to get real right now. Some of them will have altered personalities with dinner. Then they'll say things that perhaps are inappropriate, might even be hurtful, might even go right to your heart from those who are supposed to love you dearly or may even birth you. Comes from siblings and their friends, perhaps espouses. And I want to tell you, now is your chance to shine, old soul. Because you are sitting with family, real family. This is the family. And whatever happens with the biological family, don't let it wound your heart. Understand where they come from. They just don't know what you know yet. They just don't know what you know. And if they did, they would see things so different. They would thank you every moment of the day for showing them something that was peaceful and beautiful and joyful, that made sense, that was practical, that they could use every single day to get out of that, which disturbs them. But they're not there yet, and you see this in them. And all you see is the fact that God is inside them, not fully developed. They're their free choice. And that their words cannot harm or hurt and they're doing their best. They're doing their best to cope with what they don't know. Huh. Yeah. You are the master because you understand them. Those of your biological family, the places you come from, it's close to you, so this is the most difficult thing for some of you that will exist. I want you to smile and don't say anything back to them. In fact, you might even joke with them about how strange you are. And I'll tell you this, and I've said it before, what they will remember is that you didn't react, that there were no buttons pressed, and that you're a little bit more balanced than they remember. If there are children present, they're going to get it fully. Because they don't have an attitude adjustment 
during dinner. And they will see truth as truth is given by you, the balanced one, as you receive the arrows of the words and don't react. And if they've studied their Bible, they will think of one that's similar. <laughs> the birthday of the master that they're celebrating did not react to the arrows. Who loved all, who went forward no matter what was said, in a compassionate way, that showed the planet what compassion and love really is. They'll see that in you. And they won't forget that dinner in a whole different way than you could ever imagine. You see, dear ones, this is what the light worker does. You spread the light and the compassion. The truth is the truth and it cannot hide. The light cannot hide. Your challenge in these next weeks is to let the light out no matter what is said, no matter what happens whatever way. You know, compassion is king. And no matter how angry a person is when you're compassionate with them, instead of having an anger that is returned, it won't be long before they're hugging you. Because they feel the caring. Fear will do that. It will reduce a human to the lowest common denominator. It'll make them yell at you and not understand. The more you absorb and the more compassionate you are, the more the reaction is of love. You know this. That's the holiday message. All right. The entourage is here for a reason. And we're about to close. This entourage that some of you have been feeling will stay. There's going to be church services here tomorrow that do not involve most of you. And there will be things that happen because of the entourage that is here. The entourage would seem to belong to you, but they belong to all old souls. And this will be a wonderful service tomorrow morning. They will stay through the day. And then the last channel, I'll be invited to go back through the portal they came through. As the lights are turned off for the last time, after the ceremonies, everything returns to the way it was. This is an opportunity during the day, a catalyst, if you wish, to see things differently, to feel things differently, to look for solutions differently, and to marvel, perhaps, in that which you did not understand or know about. Things that are bigger than you thought. That's why you're here. It's a good time, dear ones, for you to be on the planet. And it's by design that you're here. Enough said for now. And so it is.
we're going to go to the very next one. Rama, tell us. Who are the Pleiadians? Hmm. How long is this, honey? 42 minutes. Okay, this one is 42 minutes, everybody. This is the place where healing graces us all. So grateful to be here together to do this. Here we go. And in this time, we will ask you to focus upon your feet and beneath your feet, the connection with the earth. And we ask you to affirm and to say along with us, I choose to be fully present in my body. Would you repeat that? In my daily life. And so now you allow your energy to become more connected with the earth, to open up to more of who you are, being more present with more of who you are. Knowing that that cycle is never-ending and that it is always growing as your body continues to respond to the energetic changes of the planet and the change within your DNA. What it means to you today to be fully present in your body? Well, it will mean something different tomorrow and the day after that and the day after that. And that we ask you to welcome. For that is your evolutionary leap. A deep breath, please. Hmm. So in that posture of being fully present, we ask you now to focus upon your crown the wondrous crown center and above to the center above. And we ask you, if you choose to affirm, I choose to express more of my greater wisdom in my daily life. And so your understanding of the intelligence of your being and what is possible for you to express and know as you grow your ability to become far more intuitive, to feel, to sense, to imagine, to think about, and then to know. Another deep breath. So now we have the center below and the center above. Shall we go to our favorite place? To the heart, please. Focus upon the energy of your heart radiating in all directions. Come into the fullness of what it means to express through the intelligence of your heart. Please affirm, I choose to radiate more of my heart energy. Creating greater freedom. And another deep breath. And so radiating from the very core of your being, being fully present, open to your greater intelligence, balancing wholeness through your heart, your wholeness, your holiness. Ready to be fully present. 
to enjoy the company of the magnetic master, our beloved Kriya. Greetings, dear ones. I am Kriya of Magnetic Service. And again, my partner steps aside and the purity of the message is enhanced. I say that for even he is experiencing differences in the energy of what he has done for 23 years, which is spiritual. The very process of channeling is also shifting. If indeed channeling is an open message coming from the portal of the pineal, and if indeed the energy of the planet is starting to support this, it means that that particular channel, that opening, that portal, is going to get bigger. And for him, it's different. For him, it doesn't necessarily feel comfortable. And this, he is even dealing with. More energy comes in. It, it affects his physiology. It affects what he's used to. And so even in the delivery of the messages, he has noted they become shorter. They have to. The portal is larger. More is being transmitted in the third language than ever before, even to the listener after the fact. Even to the reader on the page. There is an energy that is multidimensional that carries messages far beyond that which is verbal or written. And it rides along with this message as you hear it right now. There is so much more at hand as we open this and begin to speak. Each human in the room and reading these words or listening to this message has a life path which is unique. None of you the same. You might think that might be very complex. And yet for spirit is not. For the wholeness of all of you is hooked together. It is the oneness of a puzzle. Where the attributes of the one help the other. In ways you're not even familiar with. And so it becomes complex, but again we say it is sweet, it is benevolent, it is on purpose. So, dear healer, and I know who is here and listening and reading, if you are experiencing issues and problems, now you know why. If the, if the pipe is bigger, the water pressure may change. It may go down. The pipe is bigger if the delivery of the water is the same. The dynamics of what you are receiving as information and healing energy as a giver is changing. And you may have to adjust it in ways that you don't, you don't expect in order to get the same or better results. Know this, the design is that nothing is going to get worse, all right? That is the design. 2014 is the beginning of the enhancement of the old soul's ability to work on the planet. 
directly with the energy that you always expected as an old soul. It's the beginning of your time. And it's going to take a while, and some of you are not going to feel it for a while, because you're different. But in general, there should be a feeling in all of you, and those listening, there should be a feeling that the year is different than last year. You ought to be able to take a deep breath and say, I'm so glad it's 2014. And feel the difference and not just echo what somebody's told you. And that is the, the personal touch of you and your innate, the intuition that you have. And so we began a series of lectures, never telling my partner when they're going to occur, about demystifying the New Age. And in the process, we have said, this may very well be offensive. Especially to teachers who have a mindset that they've always taught a certain thing, a certain way. Let me address the teachers just for a moment. Dear ones, in the old energy, absolutely everything you got was, was pushed through a filter. A dark filter of old energy. So much of what you had were metaphors. We'll talk about that in a moment. That you then linearized and delivered the best you could. Nobody got it wrong. You did the best you could. But when you take the filter away and you see what it really is, please understand this is a gift. There's no judgment. As you open the eyes and see, oh, it's different than I've been teaching. Celebrate it. And then teach what you see. All these things that are coming about that are going to start to clarify what you've been doing may very well shift a little bit of the paradigm you always thought you had control over. It's going to be a little different. It's like those who hear the lyrics of a song and then finally see them in print and realize you've been singing it wrong. <laughs> the word is not that word. It's like that. So you might have been singing the song and teaching the song and enjoying the song and open the manual and finally you get to see it written down and you go, oops. <laughs> so you take a deep breath for a moment and say, it's okay, it's okay. Now I'll just know better and teach it differently. Human beings will take something like that and they'll twist it. And they'll look at their lives and say, I've been doing it wrong. Do you understand that's old energy teaching? That's an old energy consciousness? Perception. Perception about the future. The first thing we want to give you is an admonishment. To try to desingularize things. We have said this before. What you do as human beings in your perception is try to align things so that you are satisfied with the linearity and the compartmentalization that you have, have seen them. 
Even though some concepts are not that way, you create them that way. Now let me get more specific so you know what I'm talking about. Spirit has always spoken to humanity in code. If you've read the books of Revelation, it's in code. Nostradamus wrote in code so that his friends wouldn't know what he was doing. That's a little different. But true spiritual prophecy and sometimes the most profound messages, even to the indigenous, came in code. And the code were metaphors. Always metaphors. How does a multidimensional God speak to a single digit dimensional human being? And the answer is through metaphors. That's always been the code. And yet some teachers, especially of old, will have taken the metaphors and then looked at them literally and taught them as literal. This is common, and you all know this. The seven days it took to create the earth were not seven days. They were seven dispensations of benevolent grace where things were created in a way that made sense. And the result was the plan. But this is what we're speaking of. You know this now. You've seen the common sense of it, and you figured out This is what spirit really meant. So it's time to start applying that to some of the things that you hear daily or have been taught about metaphysics in general. The minutia in particular. And it's the minutia that will get you in trouble. Anytime you hear the word crystalline associated with Anything, whether it's a grid or it's a planet or whether it's an entity, do you understand that that is metaphorical and it remains, it, it means that which holds vibration or remembers. And instead, if you get a channeling that there is a crystal angel over here who is delivering messages or something of that nature, Suddenly, you have pictures of crystal angels. Suddenly, the angels have a name. Pretty soon, somebody's worshiping them. You'll have little little crystals made that will then be the crystal angel. Then somebody starts to channel the crystal angel. Do you see what I'm saying? I want you to start understanding that messages, even including mine often are metaphoric and tell a greater picture and a greater story. These channelings that I am giving now in this new energy are given so that it will clear things and not make them more difficult. If you apply this rule to many of the things that don't make sense that you have learned or wondered about and ask yourself, does it refer to something else? Is it a metaphor for something else? It makes the message so much bigger. So much bigger. We don't have specifics because if we gave them, it might hurt the hearts of the ones who've been teaching differently. And we won't do that. 
We won't do that. So we give you the generalization instead. Look at the things that have become objects and see if they are different than you thought. That's just one of many things we're asking you to do. Perception. Stop separating things. Right now, it is human beings' absolute normal behavior to separate. You separate to survive. And we have talked about this before. We've said the biggest difference between the old and the new energy is that the old energy separated and survived because you walked in the dark. The new energy has the light turns on where you can see each other. There's no reason to separate. Instead, come together. Easier said than done. I want you to start practicing it in ways you don't even expect. Here's an example. Without offending anyone, without hurting anybody's heart, You meet a man, and he's wearing a head cover. Let's discuss your thinking process. Immediately, the head cover would indicate his belief system, perhaps even where he's from, the lineage of what he might believe, and what that means, because you know just enough about it, he's not going to like you. And so what do you do? Normally... You go another way. Perhaps he's from the Middle East. You're not. A little uncomfortable there. There are many in the Middle East who wear the head cover. Everything in your body, everything that your brain has been taught to do is to separate him from you. And your brain starts to tick off the reasoning and the logic. You don't have anything in common. If you get into a conversation, it will be a bad one because he doesn't believe what you believe. You don't believe what he believes. He's doing the lineage of what he has been taught. You are not. You are free. He's not. You understand? And you walk the other way. That is separation. That is intuitive. That is survival. Human being, it's going to take a lot of different thinking about the way things work for you to change that. Well, let's pretend you figured it out. You meet a man with a head covering. And here's what it tells you. That in his reality, it's his way of honoring the God inside him. That's it. He believes in God. And so do you. He honors his God so much, he's not afraid of what people will think. He's wearing a head covering. That's a little like you. You're not afraid of what you believe either. You've got something in common with this man. Now here's what happens next. Did you know that he expects you to walk away? He's been wearing a head covering all his life. And he's walking around in a society that doesn't. He's seen it over and over. And instead, what do you do? You shake his hand. You look in his eye. You greet the God in him and the God in you. You've got things in common. 
You don't even have to talk about it. You don't even have to make friends. What do you think his reaction is? He sees a balanced person who doesn't care if he's wearing a head covering. He's not asking why. He just met a friend. Do you understand what just happened? Not only did you change your paradigm, you changed his. And maybe he will go from that place less apt to think that those who say they're esoteric are going to walk the other way. This is the beginning of a brand new set of rules. And we could extend this and extend it. We could talk about countries what they might look at that would bring together other countries with them for strength instead of separation. The new paradigm is going to demand it is a new survival. You hear you hear these things here in channel. And you say, oh, how nice. It's a, it's, a, it's a nice concept. And then you go outside, you forget. What I'm asking you to do is practice it. I dare you. <laughs> how about that? And the reason I know how profound it is, is because I can see what's going to happen. I can see it because I've seen it already. The potential is so strong, I know it's there. It's not fortune telling. To know a potential is 100%. You start doing this and you watch what happens. And it's not just a man with a with a head cover. It's the neighbor who doesn't believe what you believe. It's the one you've avoided. It's the one who perhaps even walks the other way when, when you come around. You get a chance in the chance meeting not to expect it. How about that? To walk right up to them have, and, and just greet them sweetly and, and move on. They'll think about that for a long time. <laughs> Is the God in you able to do that? The answer is yes. Dear ones, this takes work. When you start changing who you are, how you behave, and how you react, you're rewriting your humanism, aren't you? Uh You're rewriting it. That's the invitation. Never before in the history of spiritual humanity, since the seeding of the planet took place, have the cells of your body been more receptive to suggestion? Suggestion of behavior. What works and what does not work. I will say it again. The new balance on the planet is the paradigm of survival. That is to say, the balanced ones are the ones who are going to be seen as strong. These are the ones who are going to survive in the chaos around them. In the past, the ones who had chaos attracted the most attention and got what they wanted. Now they will be seen as flaying, flailing children that misbehave. And humanity will look for balance. Individuals, businesses, spiritual systems that make spiritual sense and common sense. The new age is also called the esoteric. 
There are many names for it. And if you're listening to this, I want you to combine these together. There are places on the planet where the word New Age means cult. It's replaced by the words esoteric. And so use these both interchangeably, if you wish, I am, so that you will understand the meanings of what follow. There are many out there who are channeling. And some of the names you recognize because they've been channeling them for a long time. I will go ahead and mention some of the groups that are represented in a moment. I do this in full love. Not to offend anyone. Not to make them different or wrong. But to open up possibilities that are grander, even than what they teach. There are many groups being channeled. Many books regarding these groups. We mentioned those of the Octori. We mentioned those from Sirius. We mentioned the Pleiadians and those from Orion. This is four, and there's many more. And it's confusing. I know what humans think. We live with you. We hold your hand through difficulties. We, we cry with you. We laugh. We are your support. And then when someone comes along and you read a message and it resounds of someone channeling those from Orion and you say, these are my group and you cling to it and you put a box around it and that is who you want to be. And when somebody says, well, what about the Octurians? And you say, well, I don't know about them. I've never heard of them. I just know about the Orion. And those are the real ones because those are the ones I resonate with. And that is true. They're helping me. They're helping me. And so what have you done? You've excluded the others because that's what survival does. I want to demystify this. I want to tell you who they are. <laughs> they have a similarity, dear ones, and I'm going to have to start at the beginning. And here we go. With things that are not provable, with the history of the galaxy that you might have heard from others or me, it is one of the most beautiful stories we could ever tell once upon a time. <laughs> a galaxy filled with the love of God, the source that had a system. Four billion years old or more of a time where you could develop planets that were already there, already cool and ready for life. And in this system, one at a time in the galaxy, one planet at a time, they would have the choice to be seeded with spirituality, 
have their DNA changed and a test of thousands of years of whether in the in the process of living if they could discover the God inside. And if they did, they had permission to go into ascension status where the physical actually melds into a multidimensionality and they become an ascended planet. And in the process of becoming an ascended planet, they are asked then to choose one other planet in the galaxy far from theirs and see them with their DNA. Are you with me? There are those who will say, well, where did the first seeds come from? The center, the great central sun, the core, that which you call God, the creative source is everywhere. The minutia of it is not important. What's important that you know is this. Number one, they look a lot like you. Number two, they have DNA like yours. And now I'm going to give you information we've given you before, but you should know it just so that you know it. When you start discovering life in your solar system and beyond, you're going to find that the DNA is common. You're going to find that your planet is not isolated from the galaxy in its processes of life. That evolution treats things differently because of the environment on different planets. But in basic terms, they're humanoid and they look like you. And they're not scary creatures with 14 eyes and three arms. <laughs> with shrieking voices. It's going to be one of the biggest things you find out someday. That life is like yours. I'll tell you, when you find that out and you realize what it means, you'll know about intelligent design. You'll know about a benevolence in the planet that has worked to make things the same. Four billion years ago, imagine the first planet to do this has no name. And the group that they were on, the, the names of the citizens, race, whatever you want to call, has no name. It was too far long, too, too long ago. It took millions of years, and they made it against all odds. It's a story. By the way, do we all know that was the beginning and what a story it is and what they went through. And then they seeded another planet, only one, only one in a beach of sand that goes as far as you can see. Only one grain of sand gets selected for the choice, a special one. They found it and did it. And you don't know that one either. It's too long ago. That one didn't make it. And so they seeded another. And that one didn't make it. And they seeded another. And it made it. And you don't know their names either. It was too long ago. As an average, every single planet 
has to have approximately a million years from seeding to graduation. How does that make you feel? Let me tell you what year you're in. If we said one, would it make sense? Well, you got a long way to go. But I'll tell you something. You crossed the marker of decision. The point at which the planets begin to understand what they're doing and what the goal is starts the clock. Don't let this, don't let this make you sad. Well, Carter thought it was going to happen a couple generations. Really? You'll all be walking around as light in a couple of generations. And there are those who believe that. Start using common sense. The good news is, dear one, that everything you've been through for over 30,000 years on this planet, slogging through old energy, is over. And now is the opportunity you came for. I'll get back to the other planets in a minute. This is why you arrived here. And the good news is this. It doesn't matter how long it takes. You're going to participate in every single lifetime of it. And when you arrive, let's talk about three or four generations from now. When you arrive as a new human being four lifetimes from now, let's say it's 300 years. You're going to awaken, and when you open your eyes, you're not just going to recognize your mother, you're going to recognize Earth. And your mind, within a few days, will be saying, welcome back, welcome back. And the child that you are, as soon as your eyes are focusing, will remember that's a cup, that's food. That's the creature who's married to mom. (laughs) You'll have it figured out. Perhaps in a month you'll be walking, maybe sooner. You won't have to learn to read. We've told you this before. Look for this. Doesn't this make sense to you? This is what evolution that is spiritual is going to contain. There's going to be some fast tracking going on we haven't told you about yet. There's some masters coming back and you won't see them as masters. You'll see them as inventors. It's okay. They don't care. (laughs) Fast tracking. For you, what's next? As they bring a multi-dimensional inventions to the planet that allow you to understand the templates of matter. Now, I mean, that may mean nothing to you. Do you understand that if you if you knew the template of matter, no matter what the object was, you could create it. If you had the technology to understand the template, you could create what the template is. Let me ask you this. I shouldn't even tell you because there's too much objection. (laughs) What if you could create fresh food? Oh, you're so smart. (laughs) The idea of the replicator came out of the imagination of a man who was a Pleiadian. And he remembered it from his planet as being real. And it is. 
It makes sense. Ask a physicist. Don't take my word for this. I'm telling you what could be. And the reason you'll be able to do it is because you won't be interrupted by war and horror and plague. Yeah. Is that okay? Yes. Do you see how this works? One planet led to another. Four billion years, a million years at a time or more. Revolutions around the galaxy. How many revs? Many. You know, don't you, that all the planets and stars go around the galaxy at the same speed. So there is a constant there. So every single galaxy has its own speed. It's the same as yours, by the way. And every sun and every planet on every sun has the same time clock if you measure in revs. So you can relate to each other as far as how long things take. If you talk to somebody else from another planet about years, they'll have no idea what you're talking about. Because that's your reality and not theirs. The Pleiadians are your parents. When their planet went into ascension, and they had the full God within, and they realized finally what they had gone through, why they had gone through, and what they were there for. Full Pineal connection, 100% DNA. Still physical. You know what that's like? <laughs> Don't look for their ships, all right? <laughs> They're entangled with you. Come and go as they want, just by thinking about it. You were the next one after them. But they had parents of their own. And the name of those parents, well, they could be Arcturian, or Orion, <laughs> or Syrian. And those had parents of their own. And they had parents of their own. And I want to tell you that every single one of those groups are your creative groups. Some are your grandparents, some are your great-grandparents, some even more. And I want to ask you this. What do you know? What do you know about the attributes of grandparents that your parents don't have? How do you feel about your grandparents living or dead? You look at them different than your parents, don't you? Your parents are hands-on, aren't they? And your grandparents, they're not. They're the ones who want to entertain you and help you and you're there all the time and they take you places. <laughs> Mom and dad, a little different. The Pleiadians seated you. They're the ones who are opening the time capsules. They're giving you all the information. They're the ones putting you through the tests. They're the ones who are saying, come on, let's go. Ah, But the grandparents, they're the ones giving the most help. Do you understand where this is going? Octorian, Orion, Syrian. You have in your DNA who they are because it comes with the territory. <laughs> Akashic inheritance. You know them. They know you. They're probably the most helpful groups on the planet. Don't separate them. Don't worship them. See the system, dear ones, for what it is. 
and absorb them all. That we have right now with us. That's interesting. I didn't know whether they'd come or not. (laughs) And they did. And they're here by free choice. And they're celebrating the truth and the demystification of who they are. And those who channel them may say they're from here and they're from there. I want you to tell tell yourself and your brain, look for the metaphors. Because they're they abound. But they are your grandparents and they are your great grandparents, and that is why they feel so good. And that is why the channeling from them is so pure and so excellent. If the channeler is doing it right. They love you. They know who you are. You're going to see more of them. And when I mean see, I mean awareness of perception of the old soul with things unseen but that are real. And so to this group of old souls who sits in front of me, I ask you, does this make sense? (laughs) And are you all right with it? It's important to my partner and to me as cryon in the new teaching mode that I am now in, that the old souls who sit in front of me are understanding what I'm saying and I'm not talking in code. I'm not talking right now in metaphors at all. I am talking about the reality and common sense of a system that is beautiful. Right from the creative source, which you call God. God is bigger than anything you've ever been told on this planet. Anything. And as you start to perceive it, I want you to remember one thing before we say goodbye. As you start to perceive the wonder of the creator, I want you to remember that's you. That's where it came from. Your Akashic lineage is God. Ponder it. It's about time you picked yourself up, stood tall, claimed it, said hi to your grandparents. Maybe they've been waiting a long time for that. (laughs) Too spooky? Mm. (laughs) For some. For others, the truth rings like a bell of purity and answers the questions that they've been asking a long time. For it's time. You got help. Acknowledge it. Work with it. Use it. And so it is. So it is. So it is. So it is. Ooh. And so it is, everyone. Just want you to know that today is the fifth year anniversary of the pulse victims in that nightclub in in. Florida, 49, were killed by a single shooter. Unbelievable. So, 
So, well, we will just see what Chris has to say. To stay in this good vibration, everybody. Wonderful, wonderful, good vibration. How fortunate we are to have this at at our fingertips, you know? All I can say... Yeah, go ahead, honey. All I can say what Lord Cryon is talking about is um, get ready for the briefing that Lord, I mean, Commander Vrillon will be giving instead of The nightly news. <laughs> I'll leave it there. So do you think it'll be Commander Brill on again? Could be. Or one of his mates, huh? One of his, uh, oh, yep. He's incapable of truly Starship mates. Are you watching? Look at world. Or he murdered For accidents. Or it is a map. on site. It's in chunk. For accidents. The working conditions. Way more time than I care to admit. Here we go. Welcome to On Contact. Today we discuss the working conditions of the Chinese laborers that put together products such as the iPhone with Professor Jenny Chan. So-called industrial accidents, or if it's man-made, there's a for almost a month, uh, a day and night on the job, we... Uh, they are on site in Chengdu City in Sichuan province. And finally, is the aluminum dust explosion uh, when human beings are polishing the iPads. The corners are so smooth and they are not made by machines. They are polished by human hands. Uh, someone just turned on the light and it triggered uh, the explosion and fire. Four people died on site and injured dozens more. <laughs> There is a reason U.S. manufacturers ship jobs to China. Workers in China earn a fraction of what unionized workers in the United States earn. They have no job protection, are forced to work punishing hours of overtime as much as 130 hours of overtime a month, live under constant surveillance, are severely disciplined for minor infractions, and must meet punishing quotas that leave them physically drained and sometimes injured and sick. And if they are unable to work because of job-related injuries or illnesses, they often are not paid sick leave. They are separated from their families, including their children, and housed in overcrowded dormitories next to factories that have round-the-clock production. There is little protection from chemicals and toxins, such as aluminum dust. Factories, in addition to this abuse, exploit student interns from vocational schools paying them even lower salaries than ordinary workers. The efforts by workers to organize and protest are usually violently crushed, with workers being beaten, jailed, and fired. There's been a spate of worker suicides forcing factories to put up barriers and nets. Jenny Chan, Mark Selden, and Peng Ngai did extensive field research for almost a decade to produce their book, Dying for an iPhone, 
They tell the story of the people who make iPhones, iPads, and Kindles, driving the huge profits of two of the world's most powerful companies, Foxconn, the world's largest provider of electronics, manufacturing, services, and Apple, with $2 trillion in market value, and the implications for global consumers. Joining me to discuss dying for an iPhone, Apple, Foxconn, and the lives of China's workers is Professor Jenny Chan. So I said before we went on, uh, Jenny, as a former investigative journalist, I thought you did tremendous work. I know it took you a decade to put it uh, together. Uh, I, I want to just begin, as you do very well in the book, uh, because it's important, uh, I want you to lay out for us the size of these uh, factories, because they're mega factories. They're, uh, 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 you know, the, the, I think the scale of it uh, threw me. Uh, so just talk a little bit about uh, how they work. They're almost internal cities with their own security forces and everything, their own banks. And So talk about these kind of factory towns. That's true. Foxconn is the largest electronics manufacturer in the whole world. It is a Taiwanese company where Taiwan and China's relationship improved a lot about in the 1980s. Taiwanese owner, uh, Gary Go, who actually found, uh, Foxconn or Honghai precision industry in Taipei, right? He is one, among one of the earliest entrepreneurs who invest in the coastal regions of China. And that really changed the game. Um, electronics manufacturing is no longer in-house, uh, in Silicon Valley, like Apple and other companies, they shift the jobs, uh, to, uh, South Korea, Taiwan, Japan. But later on, when China opens up to become the world factory, it really changed everything. And Foxconn is such an important case. Uh, it has more than one million in terms of the workforce, more than one million. Take a look, in Hong Kong, we have uh, about 7.4 million in terms of the total population. But Foxconn has more than one million in terms of their workforce. Um, they got the support from the Chinese government to build, as you put it very nicely, a factory city. There are banks, there are uh, stadiums, football courts, cinemas, uh, but of course, it is typically having the warehouses, multi-story dormitories, and mainly the most important thing is they have the manufacturing complexes 24 hours a day and all through the year without stop. And that is the secret uh, to make our iconic product in the Jennifer's factory that you and me have been looking forward to have the latest model of the iPhones, iPads, but put it into the historical context, in 2010, Foxconn was the only manufacturer or producer in the whole world uh, of Apple's iPhone and the original iPad, the tablet. But this background, that is really important. After 2008 and 2009, the global financial crisis, China recovered quite quickly when we compare with U.S. or Europe and other countries because of the heavy state investment. So Foxconn is also one of the key players uh, which benefit from all these bank loans and the important supply of the workers. They are mainly from the countryside, young migrants, 
who are also forced to do overtime work day and night, track hours a shift, to assemble the very popular hot gadgets for everyone. So this is not just um, a factory, it is indeed the keynote in global capitalism. Here we can see all the contradictions that are in play. Uh, it is building the hope and dream for the young generation who no longer wants to be like their parents, just farm on the land, which will not keep you starving where you, you can survive on the farmland. But there is a very difficult time for you to make it better in terms of life. And then the young people who also wish to have boyfriends, girlfriends, to an experience about the city consumption. So it is rare in this geopolitical um, economic space that we discover their lives in the dormitories, on the assembly line, on and off jobs, and that really began uh, a decade-long research, which I have never thought about that. Uh, doing a PhD seems to be a lonely journey, but indeed, doing this as a collective project, I find it as most meaningful, uh, maybe yet the meaningful project in my life, but this, but this is really one of that. I want to talk, uh, before we talk about the working conditions, uh, the, the creation of these incredibly large factories uh, have uh, has affected the social fabric. You, you write in the book about the stay behind children uh, because when they live in these dormitories, and we should say that they uh, married couples don't live together; they're segregated by sex. Eight people to a room, as you write in your book. Very stringent security. People, uh, even your spouse, isn't able to visit the dormitory. Uh, but it has had a tremendous impact in terms of breaking apart a family structure. Can you address that before we explain what happens inside the factories? Well, Chris, this is an excellent point that you make, a very good observation. Dormitory is not a welfare system that is provided for ordinary workers, no matter they're single or married. Yeah, and some even have their children, actually. But everyone only have an upper bunk or the lower bunk bed. Um, it is a crowd living condition. Usually 10, 12, or even up to 24 people are living together. Well, it is sex segregated, so either female dormitory or male dormitories. Uh, when I did the undercover research, I uh, followed the staff card, I put on the uniform, uh, sometimes just uh, follow um, another, what I call sister, to go into the dormitory. Um, but this is a very important time for me to understand better about the social significance of the structure. Leaving their home from the village in the city, the high living cost prevent them to rent their own apartments. So this is the background why husband and wives, they also have to get separated. Um, they are not managers who might be entitled to a couple, uh, a family room. So only one uh, collective dormitory room would house tens of thousands of migrants. Because this is the most cost-effective way to keep the migrant workers temporarily. Really. Uh, Foxconn, as well as other companies, don't really mean to uh, provide a permanent force 
So dormitory is an important social political space. You can easily be extended to work for long hours, and then you just get back to the dormitory, which is just next to the building blocks uh, where you are assembling the products online. And then uh, after about like 10 or 12 hours, you go to sleep, and then you go back to work. So this is a social reproductive system that is very cost competitive. You can have the extension of the working hours, but ultimately you only have migrants from everywhere and some are on the night shift, the others are on the day shift. So always there are some kind of disruptions. It is unlike us, maybe we have our pirates bathroom, but there are always noises, some quarrels or inconvenience, uh, security problems. So it is not a very present environment, even though um, Foxconn is not really uh, the only player in, in designing the dormitory system. Dormitory system is integral uh, to capitalist accumulation process. It is just a space or a social place uh, for people to get some energy and that they, they got enough power, labor power to work again. Um, and you are right, most of the time because they are just randomly put into the room, so you may not know each other quite well. Um, there is not very in-depth uh, friendship or, or relationship here. And the political consequence is some kind of isolation, nonetheless. Yes. And we should be clear, as you write in the book, that because of the variety of dialects uh, within China, uh, people can be put into a room and can barely communicate often with many of their roommates because of the, they don't speak that dialect. Well, uh, you are very sensitive to these um, social relationships, and that's right. Um, indeed, the opening chapter focused on uh, the 17 years old suicide survivor, and she does have some problems to understand each other because uh, everyone speaks uh, quite different kind of their own dialects or, or use some terms and languages that are quite different. Yeah, so if uh, there would be higher wages, I don't think everyone would have to be crammed uh, into such a small, tiny Space while you do not sunk your roots uh, with your family, like cousins or sometimes your husband and wife uh, together. Mm -hmm. It is indeed the very uh, competitive uh, job market and uh, environment is from afar. It is one of the most modern uh, workplaces in the whole world. Air conditioned, very shiny uh, glass door, huge uh, scientific park. Uh, but inside, as you look deeper, um, based on workers, uh, their poetries, the photos, the videos they share with us firsthand, uh, it really blew my mind and and taken me much longer time. Uh, than ever before to understand the struggle uh, faced by these teenagers. Great. When we come back, we'll continue our conversation about the exploitation of workers in tech manufacturing in China with the author, Jenny Chan. Hold on, everybody. My, my. News, we will get there. In the news, in the news. 
about the exploitation of workers in tech manufacturing in China with author Jenny Chan. Uh, so, Jenny, now I want to ask you about the working conditions, which you document in the book. Uh, and I think, you know, we should begin uh, by stating that these are totalitarian states within a totalitarian state. Uh, constant monitoring, constant surveillance, uh, but but just explain what the work life is like for these people uh, living, and, and we're talking about hundreds of thousands of, uh, I, I don't know how big the largest, maybe you know the largest factory center is, but we're just talking about massive city-like industrial centers. Uh, so explain what the working life is like. Um, the biggest one actually has more than half a million uh, labor force there. So workers are quite young, um, between 16 years old and about 30s. Some are a little bit older because nowadays a Foxconn, just like others, have some difficulties to really find young productive workers to uh, just do some repetitive work like a robot. These are their languages, and I do pay very close attention to their expressions. Um, every day, just like the same day, um, starting quite early, if you are the daily shift uh, worker, by about 7 a.m., you, you might be already uh, there because you're going to take the morning drill or, or morning assembly, but that is not paid. About 7.40, uh, you get online. Sometimes you are spending the whole day um, until like lunch break or, or some time later. You, you might get uh, a, a little break uh, from work. Otherwise, you are meeting the quota every hour. Uh, there is no any margin for mistake. Apple had their managers who are stationed online. Look, these managers are very concerned about product design quality, uh, but they tend to pay much less attention to their own supplier code of conduct. So there are rules and regulations, like overtime, uh, compulsory overtime is not allowed, uh, but in reality, they are working seven days in a week, uh, sometimes two weeks until you got a day off, um, and, and the bad uh, situation will be you only have one day off in the entire month. So 30 days and then one day. Why the one day? Because you're going to change from day to night shift, and therefore I cannot just keep going in this evening. I at least have to got some time uh, for rest before I, I turn into another cycle for a month. So working hours are pretty long, and uh, it is compulsory. Uh, you cannot just say, I got sick leave, or I have my uh, child who needs my attention. It is really a tough uh, regime. But I want to highlight that uh, because you you are very smart, you come up with the term about surveillance or workforce control, like a totalitarian regime. Um, I do agree that, um, in a sense, it is like... Uh, a uh, highly pressured, highly stressed environment because uh, there is no margin for mistake. The products are so expensive. Um, they are making iPhones uh, really high level. 
um, product, very sophisticated electronics products, right? So quality control is very important. This again uh, put them under more pressure. They are always being shouted or yelled at. Oh, you are working too slow, but they are indeed working to their limits already. Every time they can even express to us that when they are standing, they are like sleeping. So their poetries are very touching to me. It, it tells you the limitation about the body. Um, you just feel very fatigued after 10 or 12 hours a day. But the, the source of this pressure is not just about the militaristic regime. Uh, yeah, the Taiwanese leader had also served in the army beforehand. But it is indeed the supply chain system. Uh, or the global supply chain uh, structure that we have to got a handle to to understand a little bit. It is by Apple, Dell, Microsoft, Google, Samsung, all these giant electronics players, how do they shape the production process by placing the orders uh, on demand? So it's a just-in-time production model and in a way, no one wants to keep a high level of stock. Um, and when the goods are not moving, you are just losing money by putting it on onto the uh, warehouse. So all these really help us to understand much better about the uh, sometimes helplessness or powerless uh, situation faced by these young workers who have no family members around, some of them, for the first time getting into the city. And the states, uh, the Chinese government, despite the very uh, important labor laws and regulations that have been uh, implemented in the uh, 1995-2008, but these regulations and uh, rules seem to be just most of the time put aside to facilitate production around the clock. So it is the global supply chain, it is also about the specific state contacts uh, that shape their lives. But just one really short uh, sentence, it is not just about coercion, it is also about productive desire in them. Uh, just like you and me, they really want to have a better life now. It is China we are talking about the world global hegemon competing with U.S. and and other big nations. These young people, they also want to have their place um, in the city or or in their life. So there are many different hopes uh, and plans in in them, but ultimately many of these dreams shatter. It's, uh, you write in the book about the heavy propaganda campaign uh, to essentially prey on the hopes and dreams of these workers, including the sayings by the chairman of Foxconn that are uh, kind of, uh, you know, the inverse of Mao. Uh, it's all about conformity and productivity. Mao's all about revolution. Um, uh, I, I want you just to mention, we only have about four minutes left. First, quickly... Uh, because you have pictures in the books of people who have been poisoned. I mean, there are, you have pictures of hands that are totally discolored from handling these products. But they have to, they come in contact with a variety of toxins, including aluminum dust, which has exploded and created fires and killed people in factories. Just speak quickly about that. And then uh, I want you to talk a little bit about the student interns 
uh, because they bring in these kids from these vocational schools. It's really the exploitation of child labor. The, uh, these two phenomena you mentioned, they are related. Uh, the first about so-called industrial accidents, or it is man-made. There's a, for almost a month, uh, a day and night on the job, we are there on site in Chengdu City in Sichuan province. And finally, is the aluminum dust explosion uh, when human beings are polishing their iPads. The corners are so smooth, and they are not made by machines. They are polished by human hands. Uh, someone just turned on the light, and it triggered uh, the explosion and fire. Four people died on site and injured dozens more. Um, we had already made the uh, video call and sent it to, uh, at that time, the Apple's CEO, um, Team Cook, uh, and we also communicate with the CEO uh, of Foxconn, Terry Gore. Uh, Apple kept silence while Foxconn answered to the Guardian because it becomes a, a bigger scandal in the media then, and, and they say everything is perfect. And ultimately, in May 2011, uh, it exposed and killed. About the usage of student interns, they are brought in from technical or vocational schools all over China. Some are even younger than 16 years old, the minimum legal working age in China. And these young students are so-called uh, taking internship programs, but without learning anything useful or related to their majors. Uh, this is another forced labor uh, system that we, we can identify. Uh, why? Because these students are brought in in big number. Uh, if you have to recruit everyone in the labor market, it is timely, it is costly. Uh, having these students who came with their teachers, teachers are doubling as their teachers, but as well as their managers online. So teenage uh, student interns, it, it is really a moral crisis. It is not just about using their time, uh, wasting their time for study, but it is destroying their future in the long run. So the final question is really about the legal responsibility uh, of Foxconn and other companies, as well as Apple and other companies who are exploiting from their labor to profit themselves. I really hope that we have longer time to cover every important topics and the insights you just mentioned, and ultimately, it is about their hope to have more progressive change. We are not going to write a book that is really just about death and despair or, or hopelessness. It is also about hope and beginning some positive uh, energy and collaboration at home and overseas. So it is also about our labor and consumer movements that we are trying to energize. Great. And we should add that those teachers are paid by Foxconn because of the high rate of depression uh, and anxiety and propensity towards suicide by many of those younger workers. That's true. Uh, the teachers are paid. Somehow, I am also sympathetic with them. I did... Uh, communicate with quite a number of uh, teachers. Some of them also have their young daughters or sons who are studying, and they answer us they would never put their children 
onto the assembly line like that. So they do know. They do know something is very wrong and corrupt right here. And no one seems to bother with the huge expansion of vocational education in China. We are envisioning uh, a higher value add or a low wage economy, a digital transformation of China. So. Technology as well as um, skills, these are really important. But if you are not training them at all, you just want to have that, their energy and time to, to work up to 12 hours because because um, these teenagers, uh, the interns, are not classified as employees. So they are wages and benefits uh, indeed ultimately are lower uh, than the co-workers. So they are the cheap labor. Um, and teachers is somehow like a very passive role here because if they do not obey the order, mm-hmm. uh, maybe they also lose their job. But if they do so, they are complicit. They, they are also involved themselves in the uh, human chain, and that is a forced labor chain. Um, so I thought this is a very good conversation to open up uh, to, to think about uh, their so-called their choice uh, to to work in uh, Boxcom, hoping to gain some knowledge and experience useful for them, but ultimately it, it doesn't realize. So who should be responsible for all these? Um, and very interestingly, Apple indeed worked with uh, Stanford University and quite a large number of academics. Um, I would be really interested to know more about how actually they ensure or guarantee uh, good internship programs are in place and not like these. Um, none of the teachers or students find it meaningful uh, with their three months, six months, or even as long as a year uh, internship that is in the extension of their production needs. Great. That was author Jenny Chan on her new book, Dying for an iPhone, Apple, Foxconn, and the Lives of China's Workers. Amazing. Well done. Okay, we're going to jump right into this real quick. Tell us what we're going to play around with. This is called The Fall of Atlantis with Matthias, talking about how things got a little weird, and I remember it like yesterday. It wasn't fun. Okay, we're going to do this, and we'll go a bit over, but it'll be all right. Here we go. such an advanced civilization fail? I am your host and guide, Matthias Stefano. In this episode, we will explore how internal conflicts caused Atlantis to be destroyed and how its colonies created a new path for human civilization. All I know about Atlantis' fall was told by my grandfather and by our priests and priestesses that taught us about history. It's like for us now in America, in the Republics of America, trying to learn about 
the history of the colonies and and go to school to learn about the Spanish or British Empire. This history for for me was like trying to understand the history of my grand grandfathers and mothers, and that is why we all have to learn about this history because it was the story that made our countries, that made our colonies where we lived in. What we were taught about Atlantis, Ephesium, was that this civilization was meant to create gods and goddesses. That we as humans had the potential of the whole universe within and that we had to take that power outside and to understand how to build our world in order to imitate, to resonate with other worlds, what we call our ancestors from the stars. So this civilization for us was the mentor, the idea, the first code from which we understood what is the purpose of society, of civilization. The people from the stars taught us that when we create a civilization, the history, the languages of our countries are the different ways in which we can speak with the world. So other planets can talk with the soul of this planet through our civilizations. So if we want a civilization that is able to speak by the world, that civilization has to become the only one civilization in the world. But the problem with this planet is that we are a constant creation. So it's impossible for this planet to create only one idea of the self. It's impossible for us to create an only one world order. And that's why when an empire gets to the most expanded time and the most powerful expression of itself, that's the moment we know the fall is coming. Hephaestion, Atlantis, was meant to be the one connecting us all, creating this order in the world. And this goal was perfect for them because we started the time of Virgo. Virgo was the constellation that was in the skies when Atlantis was rising in the world. So that helped us to understand that this time would be the one to seed a new civilization and the one to order a new civilization. One of the main physical threats that Atlantis had was the ones coming from up. Outside the planet, the Confederation has many species that were looking to humans in different ways. Those who saw humans like the ones that were were going to be able to to reach the, the evolution that they couldn't, the unifying concept of every race, and other ones that understood that humans were just tools to evolve and they were using us like, like animals for experiments. So those are the ones we call it Siamur, and we now name them the gray ones. These were the ones that were following us with different ships that were like uh, controlling us from their ships and they also tried to took the power of the Pratikta. 
these Siamur were one of the species that were looking for the power of this technology. So this was one of the main threats that our civilization had and from who we needed to protect most. The rise of Atlantis time was in between the end of 16,000 BC and the beginning of 15,000 BC. This period was the one when Atlantis started to realize about its power and its purpose on Earth. And then during the period of 15,000 to 13,000 BC was a period where the empire of Atlantis ruled the whole planet. During this period, they built all the structures to fit the network of the physical world with the ethereal one. So they could download all the, all the information that we named the, the consciousness of God or the memory of the planet. We were able to connect and download information from every mineral, plant, star. So we would be able to understand the whole process of evolution and what we have to do with that. Atlantis had to go around all the planet and seed their seeds in cells, in blood, in DNA to all humans around. And that's why for the Arturian people it was so important that the blue ones, the Atlantean, the original Atlanteans, the twelve families, needed to be crossed in the blood with all the humans. And that made the Atlantean people the only ones able to survive in this planet because they became humans for the first time. That was the most important key for these civilizations to arise around the whole planet. But uh, this civilization has this goal to create a thought that could unite the whole world in the same spectrum, in the same idea, in the same code. So if the 12 families could rule the 12 phases of the planet, so everyone could think the same and everyone could be representatives of the Mother Earth. So what this was like is opening the portals of magnetical structures in the world through pyramids, through temples, so the structures could open and wide the connection with the magnetical energy of the planet so everyone could download the information. During Atlantean times, the 12 families were able to open every portal in the planet. So that helped every human to be aware and to connect. So every human was able to be connected to the network by itself. And that created the mind of the world. Atlantean civilization was so powerful because every human in its civilization was able to achieve the connection with the network. So it's like if instead of having cell phones today, we become our own cell phones where we could download and keep all the information from the whole network. So because of that, this civilization was the most powerful. But something that we were taught from the people of the Confederation was that this was just a process so the world could understand who she was. And after that, we needed to seek for other ways in which we could be transformed. And 
they settle a time for that. They said, you have to see the skies and you will understand that you will have only 2,500 years to do so. After that, you need to transform your civilization in a different way. Because everyone knew that. Everyone had this awareness because everyone could see the sky and how it was transforming every time, every day. So we kind of understood that we have not much time until we had to transform our civilization. Our grandfathers and grandmothers told us that that is why from the main colonies, from the main islands, the priests and priestesses like Jahut, Isis, Osiris, they came to our lands and settled the idea of the creation of a new civilization based on the self, on the construction of the being, instead of the ruling of the world. Right. <laughs> because of this, the 12 families settled in different parts of the world and they established their own power. And this made that a lot of people from Atlantis not thinking the same way. So each one of those families, instead of thinking like one, they started to think like different civilizations. They started to think by themselves. And this brought a, a problem for the Atlantean people because they started to see how their parts were, were, were separated. So the main idea of losing control for uh, this civilization from the Virgo era was something that got them crazy. This main mother civilization were trying to rule the time and you cannot rule the time because it's something outside of your own power. You can yeah. go through time, but you cannot handle it. Mm-hmm. And when they wanted to handle it, when they wanted to 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 get the power, they did the biggest mistake they could possibly do. They were the civilization that prepared humans to become to become gods and goddesses, and they start to believe that a god or a goddess was able to control reality. And that was the main mistake. They put the I over the am, and the am was more important than the I. So I am was was split in two parts in our civilization, in Atlantean civilization. And that created the idea that the main mother civilization had no idea about what to do anymore. Because our time, a civilization was ending and they wanted to control time so they could handle the power through all the eras and not just the one that they were supposed to be. And that was the problem. They forgot what they had to do, what was their process, and they became an empire instead of a government. Because of this, the people of Atlantis started to move from the main islands to the colonies. And they went away because the colonies were asking for the independence. So this independence that every colony was asking for made that all the economics that the Atlantean Empire had was finished because the colonies wouldn't send any more food or materials for the main islands. This 
ended the communications through the oceans and made a lot of people, the population from the main islands, to move through to the colonies so they could have food, they could have the materials, they could have houses, they could keep going with the with economics that made the countries being alive. So because of this, also the priests and priestesses moved from Atlantis. So the main teachings of Atlantis was finishing. So that, that brought the younger ones to the main colonies so they could keep going with the studies of the self. And that brought to Atlantis a, a problem in, in, in the main structure of their, of their civilization that people were living and the power was living and they had not resources to survive by themselves. So because of their, they losing this, this, this process, this time, this uh, power, they decided to go and conquer the other colonies. And this process was called like a civil war in which the main island tried to control all the rest of the 11 faces of the planet. Some of these colonies fought back and they had this war in different regions with Atlantean population. They were trying to use again the energy of the protecta, the energy of the sound, like they did in Lemuria time, so they could control the power of the colonies. But this was different. During the end of Lemuria, it was the time for the Virgo era to start. So for Atlantean times, it was the, the, the beginning of its new era. So time and space were, were letting them to go through all the planet because they, the time and space needed Atlantis so we could harvest this energy through time and space. But when serious people said, this is not your time anymore, you need to change. Everything needs to change. Now is the time for every culture of humanity to rise because this is Leo era. This is the time in which each one discovered its own power. So Atlantean people began the war against the Leo era. And that created these militia strategies to control the whole world. And that made the colonies be against the main island. So this war was brought to Europe, to Middle East, to America, and they kind of were killing themselves. When they used the energy that we had to make the connection around the world to rule every colony, what they did was to empower the main pyramids of the Atlantic Ocean to reach the energy of every pyramid and take control over the consciousness of every civilization. If you rule the pattern of the of the pyramids of every civilization in every face of the planet, they would be like controlling the mind of the whole population. So it was like sending some pulses of thoughts in which all the population would just think what whatever they wanted them to, to think. This made them become like totally the opposite to what they were created for. They were created to bring awareness and consciousness in this planet. And because they were losing their time, they were just becoming 
totally the opposite, uh, creating uh, unaware, creating unconscious in the planet so they could still rule the planet. So this cut the the connection between the pyramids. Did this destroy the connection between the whole network and stop the process of each human to be connected to the network by itself? So the pyramids start to shut down. The whole system start to shut down, and all this wide open pattern of connection straight from myself through the network was shutting down shutting down and that made the disconnection of the memory of the planet every neuron that represented every human was like dying like if we were into a process of amnesia uh, into this illnesses of forgetting everything like the biggest alzheimer you could possibly imagine <laughs> so the main system was shut up And when that happened, they they were able to use the energy to fight against the rebels that were in the colonies. And when they did that, they used this amount of energy against them, but because it was disconnected and the whole network was this distortion of unaware, of unconscious, all the energy that they used to go to the colonies it just went back to the main core with such a speed that all the vibration just destroyed the main island. They were trying to use this tool for war and because the disconnection of the network, all the pulses that they were sending outside, they just went back in one time. Oh that created the, the biggest destruction of the main civilization. And this was the ending of Atlantis as we recognize it. But <sighs> the worst thing was coming because of this separation of, of consciousness, because of all the shutdown of the, of the system and the death of the main pyramid. No other pyramid was able to control the weather to control the magnetism of the planet. So North Pole and South Pole start to move faster. They just went away from the main spots where they were and the whole network switched. When that happened, all the pyramids and temples were just left in places with no energy. So all the network of vibration start to move like waves. So nobody could reach it again. What this created was a process of a thousand years in which the disconnection was every year faster and every year more deeper. And when this disconnection ended, what happened was the destroy of the North Pole. When the North Pole destroyed itself because of all these magnetical pulses that were switching in the planet, all the water from the North Pole start to melt and it melts so fast that there were not walls that could possibly retain all this amount of water. These walls were made of ice and they were, they were closing this area between Scotland, Iceland and Greenland and the main dam that was holding that water in the North Pole was in La Mancha Canal that 
now we know as the sea between England and France. This region just broke and all the water from the North Pole start to melt and to go to the Atlantic Ocean. When the whole system shut down, the water went back to the oceans and that was the moment when the colonies stopped being connected through the ocean and they just went to the rivers because the ocean told us this is the ending of the connection of the world. We remember this like the big process of the flood, the big flood in the biblical stories in every culture around the world, in Mexico, in China, in, in Japan, in, in Middle East, in Africa, Europe. We all remember in different stories how the big water came to the planet and covered everything. This process was in a short period of time, less than 50 years, and everything changed so fast that the civilizations that were settled in the Atlantic and the Mediterranean seas, they just had to leave these regions and ask for, for the colonies to receive them so they could survive. The main colonies to accepting these people were the colonies in the Mediterranean Sea, in the Middle East, and in Central America. The people from Atlantis just went and mixed with the people from the colonies, and that was the ending of the civilization. We all had to learn about what happened at that time, because our history, our new history, was about not doing the same mistakes. And during the Leo era, what we have to learn, it was the power of the self to rule ourselves and to understand that we had to rebuild the civilization in some time, but we had to do it in a proper way. We knew that because of the line times would change us all, we needed to make these stories to survive through languages. So that's why we stopped connecting the network above and we began to tell stories with our mouths, with stories that we could sing, that we could tell to our kids. This story went through many priests and priestesses and people that were writing about the history of Atlantis and what happened to our civilizations so we could understand that they made all the mistakes that we could possibly do, that our civilizations were created to become gods and goddesses, but we stopped being gods and goddesses to create the idea of being a god and a goddess, which is totally different from our process. We, we start to think that we were over the nature when we had to become nature. That was the main goal of our civilization, to become the planet, not to be over it. And this was the imprint code that Atlantis civilization has left for the next 12,000 years of history. But the serious people, they told us, time, you cannot change. Time is like a mirror. So everything that happens in this half of the time, 12,000 years for each one of the phases, is exactly the information that we need to receive to understand what is next. So 
we would find that the Virgo era is exactly the opposite to the Pisces era and that Leo era is exactly the opposite to the era of Aquarius. So we now are living specifically the timeline in which the Atlantean times ended and a new era has begun. This process tells us that the last three 2,000 years were the mirror of Atlantis. But because Atlantis was an organized civilization in the, in the era of Virgo, that's why in the era of, of Pisces, with this era of just ideas and not physical structure, we had a very chaotic era of 2,000, 3,000 years that was the mirror of the Atlantan times. So all the power, the empires trying to conquer the whole world, this was the structure that we created in these 2,000 years before us. And that is why also is our civilization now in this past 100 years that created the network to connect the world again, each human to be connected again to the whole network of information. This is exactly the mirror of what Atlantis did. But also, because of that, we have to learn that we are specifically in the same spot when Atlantis ended. So in order for us to create a new civilization in the Aquarius era, we need to see what happened in Leo era. And Leo era was the time of the colonies, the time where Yahud and all its brothers and sisters created the countries that built the idea of building the self. So we are not trying to imitate the Atlantean times. We now have to see what happened after Atlantis. That's what is important for us. Which civilizations were the ones trying to build the self? Because the new era that is become, that is starting now is the era in which every self will recover its power by itself without anyone to saying what to do. So that's exactly the mirror. And that is why myself had to remember what happened to me in those colonies when we were ruling the world. Because this is the same story that we are going to live in the next 2,000 years. With a deeper connection to the planet Earth, we can now look to the skies, consciously connecting to the major portals that surround the planet. With this understanding and rediscovering our purpose here in the Blue Pearl, we can connect to the Manic Network with an open heart and allow the fifth and the sixth dimensions to connect deeper within us and our planet. Next season, we will explore the zodiac portal system surrounding us, dive farther into how the Orion War impulsed Earth's evolution and discover the ways in which the six-dimensional architects shape the patterns of creation. Okay, everybody, we squeezed it in. Wow. Contemplate that, everybody. And we should pass that on many people as possible. So, thank you everyone and thank you BBS Radio. This night will be the last night before Houston, Texas will be the point. 
of BBS Radio. Safe journeys to the whole family there. And Good journeys. Yes. Good vibrations. Namaste. We'll see you in a little while. We'll be coming back. Take a look at the stars and talk with our brother Richard and a few other wonderful angels. Namaste for now.
Before you begin, I just want you to know that uh, K. Pasha is very long-winded today. It's 48 minutes for Rich, for Rich, uh, for K. Pasha today. MSNBC, Washington State launches, quote-unquote, joints for jabs to encourage vaccinations. Pass the talking stick. Back to you, Rob. Yeah, yeah. I'm wondering about all the bribery going on. Oh, there was a commercial here in Santa Fe 
where you go to a certain location on the 16th of June and you can enter a contest to win five grand here in Santa Fe. If you get the jab, I mean, what's... Yeah, what's, yeah, I know. I, I've heard, I've heard others, um, giving away money, money, trucks. Where was that? I think that was somebody in Tennessee is gonna, yeah, they, they put a, a package together. You know, they're having a big old lottery. Get the jab and get some goodies. And I wonder why. I wonder why. Yeah, uh, I, passed the, I passed the talking stick. <laughs> okay, I'll, just one more thing. Uh, um, this brings up a sister call during the break, and she was looking around for homeopathic, uh, in quotes, vaccine or equivalent thereof. And we found somebody through Rama's uh, osteopath, cranial sacral therapist from Belgium, and he's working with a homeopathic um, certified um, certified classical homeopathist. And in New Mexico, as you were to take this uh, remedy uh, and complete the uh, the protocol, you will get an equal the same papers as though you had gone to get a. Johnson and Johnson or whatever else Pfizer, Pfizer or any of those Moderna. other things. You would get the equal papers saying that you have been vaccinated. Now that's a good thing. So I just yeah. wanted to Yeah, Ed. It's weird. Weird, weird, weird. <laughs> Too weird for me. Here we go. Yeah, well okay, here we go. with a weekly Pele report. This is a special edition for the eclipse that's coming tomorrow. Tomorrow is June 10th, 2021. And it's uh, eclipse. The eclipse is to do with the moon's nodes, as I wrote in the lunar planner um, extensively. And we'll talk more about uh, this weekend in a live Zoom call. The south node of the moon is the past. And looking at the path, where I have been. There is my past, the south node of the moon, the lunar eclipse two weeks ago, right? And, you know, for today's report, I really wanted to find a cave. <laughs> there's, there's a, uh, there are some caves around here, but it's, it's quite a distance, and I, I, I'm just going to kind of take this, uh, this place that to me has a little bit of that darkness, a little bit of the shadow going on, which the mantra talks about, and the eclipse is about, and these times in Gemini is about, and I'm going to talk about today. So that lunar eclipse is at 19 degrees, 47 minutes of Gemini, and it's conjunct Mercury. Mercury is right there with it, and they are all, three of them, 
squaring Neptune over there in Pisces. Whoa, I mean, we could talk about that for a couple hours. <laughs> in addition to that, though, you know, Venus, you know, has moved into Cancer, and she is coming into a square with Chiron on Saturday. And Mars is moving out of Cancer. Just as Venus comes, you know, into Cancer, Mars says, I'm out of here. And he goes into Leo, right? And, you know, with that going into Leo, he in conjuncts 150 degrees away from Jupiter. Up there, again, still in early Pisces. So the sun exactly squares Neptune on Sunday. And the other aspect that's really going on is uh, Black Moon Lilith is moving along rapidly. She jumps out of Taurus this week, comes into Gemini, and conjuncts the north node of the moon on Sunday. At the same time that the moon, you know, the moon has moved, you know, through the eclipse in late, you know, mid, late Gemini, goes into Cancer, and opposes Pluto. So Sunday is a very big day. As well as, I mean, Jesus this whole eclipse season is really big, okay? But, you know, uh, last but not least, going on kind of as a huge undercurrent through this whole time is Saturn square Uranus. And that first originally came around, I mean, it's going on all year, but it was February 17th. It was the first pass, seven degrees to seven degrees. Aquarius to Taurus, the fixed signs. And then June 14th, 13 degrees with Saturn retrograde. Then Saturn goes around and turns direct. And guess what? Christmas Eve is the third final wrap-up culmination of that Saturn square Uranus. Again, all of this is relevant to today's special Report. So let me look at the camera and talk to you about that. All right, everybody. So, where are we now? We are approaching the eclipse, and that is why this uh, report has so much to do with the shadow. What is the eclipse? The eclipse, the solar eclipse, is when the moon comes in between the sun and the earth, right on the ecliptic, I mean, like right near the north node, where the path of the moon crosses the ecliptic, and it blocks out the sun, and that casts the shadow on the earth. It's only about 90 miles wide or something, so it's, you know, you can't see it everywhere on the planet, but it is a shadow. It's interesting, I woke up this morning and I, and I went on to uh, uh, Google and said, you know, uh, uh, define shadow. <laughs> and, uh, you know, shadow is a dark, uh, you know, a darkness cast by an object blocking the light. We can put this in psychological, spiritual, soul, astrological terms, and we can say that it is the ego 
that blocks the solar spirit from fully coming through us and expressing itself through us. Gurdjieff said that, you know, our consciousness is less than 10% of the mass of our brain. Our ego is less than 10% of our totality of consciousness. That other more than 90% is unconscious. And that unconscious is deep down within us, and it is, and it reflects the shadow. And the moon's nodes, the moon's nodes where she crosses the ecliptic and the eclipse season that we have been in and are kind of, you know, really still, I mean, we are in the thick of it. It has to do with past lives, choices and decisions and karma that was put into place by what we have done before. And it comes into this life as unconscious. And if you've been with me for a while, you know that my whole thing is about what is life. The purpose of life is making the unconscious conscious. So we want to take that 9-8% ego mass of the brain and become conscious of our totality. And then there's no more shadow. <laughs> there's no more dark. There's only the light of the solar expression of spirit in and with and through matter. Now, what does this have to do with Gemini? What does this have to do with, you know, Saturn? I mean, this is, there is so much I want. I really want to go into the mythology of Gemini today because let's look at this north node in Gemini. First of all, we have to say that the, the south node lunar eclipse two weeks ago was stirring up and bringing up impulses, subconscious needs, shadow elements from our past lives. And it's like whenever something happens in this life that you can't explain, it has its roots in past lives. So... You know, our psychology only goes so far before we need to go into our spiritual uh, tools and techniques for uncovering the deeper layers of the unconscious. So, a couple of weeks ago, you know, the, this lunar, okay, the, the moon on her own south, no, these last couple of weeks then have been bringing up, stirring up, raising up. It's like the bats. The bats woke up. I was over in Tel Aviv, and, I, and there was this cave of bats. I won't forget. It's, it's kind of on the beach, down at the end of the beach. I think is a way. Yeah. Anyway, it's you know it's it's, it's relatively famous. And it's it's well known. Anyway, you know we went there, and it's full of bats, and almost like in unison, something will startle them or awake them, and whoosh. Huge black cloud comes out of the cave, scares the shit out of you. <laughs> this is the unconscious. This is the shadow. And and what makes the shadow? This has a little bit to do with Saturn and Uranus now, because our ego 
you know, we need to live in a family. We need to live in a society. We need to live with other people. And there are social, religious norms, ethics, morals, consensus viewpoints of what is acceptable and what is not acceptable. And we need to block, we need to suppress, we need to fit in, or we need to belong, or we need to act correctly if we're going to get that job, if we're going to make that money, if we're going to have that relationship. You know, we need to act a certain way according to the norms of our constituents, shall we say. (laughs) And so we suppress some of the less desirable traits or aspects of ourselves. And this is what becomes the shadow. The, what, the suppressed elements within ourselves become distorted. They become perverted, get moldy, stinky, twisted. And they get projected outside of us onto other people, onto society at large, onto governments, religious institutions, teachers, preachers, you name it. Gurus, therapists, all deal with this. In some way, shape, and form, I was asked in an interview this last week, which I'll post uh, lately, uh, coming up, what about fate and free will? I am going to propose (laughs) there's no such thing as fate. Our destiny is largely determined by our spiritual soul intentions that are largely unconscious and that are therefore projected outside onto the world for us and it appears as fate. It appears as things happening to us. I'm going to say there's no such thing as victims, even though there are victims. But the victims have hired the perpetrators to victimize them, to become consciously aware of some element of their own unconscious. (laughs) Get that, baby. It reminds me of Bruce Lee in Enter the Dragon. I think it was Enter the Dragon. In the end, he's in this whole room of mirrors, right? And he has to break all the mirrors in order to, like, find his enemy. I mean, it is such a classic scene. You know, this planet is like a house of mirrors. And you know what? We have hired everybody. Consider yourself the boss. (laughs) Consider yourself in charge. I'm going to hire a villain, okay, to steal my purse because I am overly attached to the stuff in that purse. And it is distracting me from... You know, where I need to go. I'm I'm going to get this guy to take that person away. Take that person away. Take that job away. Take away the things that we are overly attached to that are slowing us down, that are anchors or a ball and chain on our evolutionary path. Does it hurt? Yes. Deeply. The emotional cords get cut. Our sense of security, our sense of power, our sense of strength, our sense of control, 
completely threatened during these times of the eclipse in particular. And in particular, this eclipse. And this is why I want to get into Gemini. Gemini is the third sign of the zodiac. Three out of twelve. Okay, we're not that far along <laughs> on the evolutionary uh, journey. The new beginning is an Aries. It's an animal. It's a ram. And then it moves into Taurus. It's a bull. Boom. We got the ram, and then we've got the bull. Gemini is the first human sign. And it's very interesting that with Greek mythology, the whole emphasis has been on Castor and Pollux, the twins. But here's the mythology, and I, I mean, I can't go into the whole mythology. It is so fascinating. I would love to go into the whole mythology. Zeus you know, fell in love with Leda, uh, the queen. Okay, uh, Leda was the, the, the queen. Uh, uh, her husband Tyndarius and her Leda and Tyndarius made love one evening and later on that same evening Zeus turned himself into a swan and made love again two times in one night for the queen whoa (laughs) two sets of twins were born oh my Two were from Zeus. Two were from Tyndarius, human. The, the, so we, what we've got is a quad, quadruplets, quadruplets, a quaternity to deal with here that has been largely ignored, yes, you know, in the astrological interpretations. Helen and Clytemnestra were the two. So Helen and Pollux were Zeus's demigods, okay, immortals, could not die. And Castor and Clytemnestra were from Tyndarius, and they were human. So now we've got this male-female, spiritual-earthly, you know, quadrinity to deal with, to integrate, and to understand at this point in the cycle. So there is, okay, this whole dynamic of above, below, spiritual, earthly, light, and dark, which creates shadows, and the earthly side has lust, passion, revenge, uh, all of the earthly passions. And the spiritual is all of the light, love, unity, consciousness. So the ego, boom, is in the way and and it blocks the spiritual light. It creates this shadow. I'm going to read you a little bit about it. But let's look at some of these, uh, some of these aspects. Number one, And this is where the mythology gets crazy. We want to understand that these are all aspects of our psyche. These are archetypes. These are four archetypes of which they are all 
We, we, we all have Gemini somewhere. We all have Castor, Pollux, Helen, and Clintomnestra in us. And this, and this eclipse on this north node of the moon in Gemini and black moon Lilith on the north node of the moon in Gemini is bringing up our need to see, to own, and understand that, you know, we are on an evolutionary journey. We are on an evolutionary path to integrate all of these elements. So where are we? First of all, Castor and Pollux, okay, they were not the, you know, they were both, uh, you know, of course, warriors. This is, you know, Greece, uh, the, the whole masculine energy. They were horsemen. Pollux was a boxer. But you know what they did? Even though two women were uh, already betrothed to their cousins, they stole them as their own and took them away. And this, of course, angered uh, the cousins and there came this whole thing, where, you know, basically, Castor got killed. And Pollux, you know, they're always together in all of mythology, so Pollux super wanted to be with his brother. And so Zeus said, well, you can be together, but you have to give up your immortality for half the time. So half the time, they're in the sky, up above eternal, and half the time they're in the underworld, down below the horizon. So half of the year, right, Pollux brings Castor up into eternity, and half of the year Castor pulls Pollux down into the underworld. So again, we have this back and forth, the sine wave, the square wave, between the eternal and the temporary, between the spiritual and the earthly ego. We've got this whole thing going on. Now let's look at the women. Oh my goddess. Right? Helen. Helen, the immortal, was the face that launched a thousand ships. Whoa. The beautiful Helen. If you will remember, this actually brings in Eris, the goddess of discord, who threw the golden apple to the fairest in the, in the party that she was not invited to. And it was Aphrodite, Hera, and Athena. Anyway, that, that's a whole other uh, story. But they chose Paris. Aphrodite, uh, basically, they all offered Paris, uh, you know, well... Zeus was, like, too afraid to make the choice. You know, he didn't want to piss off one of the guys, you know, two of the... <laughs> so he brings them up onto this hillside where Paris, who is the, the son of the king of uh, Troy, is be, be out there on the hillside uh, shepherding the sheep. And the three goddesses are thrown at out there. And Zeus says, you figure out which one is the fairest. <laughs> you know? So, you know, uh, you know, the, the goddesses each offer him anyway. You know, uh, Aphrodite offers him the most beautiful woman in the world, which, of course, is Helen. And he chooses her as the fairest. So he gets Helen. The only problem is Helen is married to Agamemnon, Ooh. King Agamemnon, super powerful king. Yeah. 
And here's where the, the mythology gets really interesting because there are different versions. One version is that Paris went down there and he, uh, while uh, Agamemnon was away, uh, he uh, made love with Helen. They fell in love and he convinced her to elope. And so he took her back over to Troy and started the Trojan War. Oh, dear. The other version is that he abducted her against her will. <laughs> and that then started the Trojan War. Okay, so it's very fascinating that we have this kind of thing, because here's the thing with Helen. Passive. One way or the other, she did not engage, she did not decide. She was, you know, she was carried off or she gave into, uh, you know, her, you know, her uh, instinct or, you know, his will. But she was a passive, kind of beautiful, spiritual, passive passenger <laughs> that created the Trojan War. <laughs> Clytemnestra is even more. So there's the godly Helen, the beautiful godly Helen. Then we have Clytemnestra, who, you know, she was, you know, she was raised, and she fell in love and married. And then King Agamemnon uh, saw her, fell in love with her, and killed her husband and took her away to become his wife. And then, since Agamemnon, before pissed off Artemis, he's ready to sail his ships off to fight the Trojan War, and there's no wind. And Artemis says, if you sacrifice your daughter to me, I will give you winds so that you can sail to, off to war. So he tricked Clytemnestra. And, and had her send their their daughter, and he actually sacrificed her. Actually, he had one of his men sacrifice her on the altar of Artemis. Now, Artemis snatched her away just before she died, which nobody knows about, but she was rescued by Artemis. But still, the act of sacrificing Clytemnestra's daughter and having killed her, her ex-husband, well, I mean, not her ex, it was her husband, I mean, it's like, so this Agamemnon, anyway, when he comes back from the Trojan War, Clytemnestra had, well, he was gone for 10 years, and she fell in love with another guy, and that's a whole other story, he's got issues with Agamemnon also, sounds like Agamemnon was a real, you know, <laughs> anyway. Uh, he had a lot of enemies, and probably <laughs> yeah. not for uh, you know not for no reason. Anyway, when he came back again, there's a discrepancy. One is that Clytemnestra killed her husband Agamemnon out of revenge. She used a double-bladed axe, just like a ceremonial killing, like her like her daughter. That's that's the one Homer's version, I think. The other version, or Estes, or whatever, you know, says that she had her lover take him out. But they threw a net over him in the back, and he, they killed him. Either he, he killed him, or she killed him. 
So here we have this human, Clytemnestra, with her revenge. Or was it justice? This is up to, you know, this is up to the reader. This is up to us. This is up to, you know, was she justified, you know, in getting back at him for the evil that he had done? Or, okay, you know, uh, you know, was she just, again, passive and let her man, you know, kill him? And, and, you know, but there is this, one way or the other, she's willful. She is strong. She is passionate. She is more active, we would say. So we've got this spiritual Helen that is passive, creating uh, war and and death and violence. And, and then we've got Clytemnestra, <laughs> the willful, earthly, passionate one, who's also creating all kinds of, you know, destruction. <laughs> and then we've got Castor and Pollux, you know, that were stealing, uh, you know, bulls from these guys and started another war. It's just like, think of all these different aspects and elements as part of our own unique individual psyche. And think of Black Moon Lilith now coming up to the north node of the moon. And think of this solar eclipse as opening the gates of hell. Opening the gates. It's like this. there's an ancient, and this is deep within our reptilian brain through a long history Eclipses have been seen as evil times, as dark times, where the sun is swallowed. Solar eclipse, right? I mean, this is where, you know, sacrifices were made, and it's, you know, it has been associated with plagues and probably pandemics. I mean, pandemics. (laughs) I mean, whatever, you know. (laughs) Disasters. Painful. Serious, and this shadow element is is what this is. The shadow element is what we have suppressed in order to be accepted, in order to be loved, in order to look good, in order to belong. Da, 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 da. But it is okay, you know. In some ways, it's you know some of us are maybe more on one pole than the other. We may suppress our spirit. Well, this is the other side. There is this part of us that wants to escape. Outside time and space, go back to the infinite spirit and not deal with the shadow or the earthly element or these sexual, sensuous, physical bodies and money and blah, 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 blah. What are the three taboos that are mostly around this shadow element? Sex, money, and death, Right? These are the things that people, oh, let's not talk about how much that cost or how much I spent or, you know, who I slept with or, you know, uh, you know, uh, about people dying or myself dying or suicide or, you know, and, you know, it's just you know, all kinds of taboos around these subjects. And we can understand that. Let's just look at one. Uh, one example I could use is money. So, you know, we're taught with a lot of religions, you know, at least I was taught, right, you know, uh, it's easier for a rich man to get uh, through the eye of a needle than to get into heaven. Money is the root of all evil. So, you know, there's this kind of social thing. Don't be greedy. Don't be selfish. Don't be a narcissist. Don't be grabby-gurdy. Right? That's, that's bad. 
And yet there is this other aspect within each and every single one of us. You know, and it is the ego that says, hey, I got to survive. I got to buy groceries. <laughs> I need a car to get to work. Okay, you know, and I want, you know, da 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 you know. And so, you know, if we suppress this natural survival instinct and try to deny that we need money, we're going to have money issues, we're going to have money problems, we're going to have shadows around money, we're going to project... Okay, you know, oh, you know, Bill Gates and Elon Musk and, you know, all these billionaires, Bezos or whatever, you know, they're all, you know, bad, evil, because they got money, <laughs> right, you know, and, and, and we could, you know, get ripped off, get money stolen, have somebody, uh, you know, maybe give us a whole bunch of money and feel all guilty about it, and then, you know, I mean, we will have issues, <laughs> I'm saying, we'll have issues around that. And you can apply this to sex, you can apply this to death, you can apply this to all kinds of different areas and realms. And this is a time during these eclipse seasons where the unpredictable, shocking, uh, you know, uh, surprises happen personally and collectively. Now, I will say that it has to be really, it, it, it has to be aspecting one of your natal planets or one of your angles, ascendant, midheaven, descendant, or IC, or particularly your personal planets, Sun, Moon, Mercury, Venus, Mars, or of course your nodes, to get a real personal experience right now of what you have suppressed, what you have denied, what you have locked up inside of you, what you need to contact, what you need to integrate. And you'll you'll have other people and the or the world or the government or you know the airlines or your boss or you'll have somebody, your kids, okay, somebody is gonna like trigger and you know when you are triggered, it's shadow. And when you blame or judge, you spot it, you got it, right? So this is all about making our unconscious conscious. So during this eclipse season, the bats are awoken. Whoosh! <laughs> Shit, it's the fan! Whoosh! It's very scary and very insecure and, and it feels like fate. But it's not. It's destiny. It's soul-driven, even though the soul is unconscious. And so it appears as fate. I want to read to you a little bit out of this book. One of my favorite books, Mythic Astrology. Astrology, Powers in the Horoscope. I mean, I bought this ages ago by Ariel Gutman. And Kenneth Johnson. Wow. It's so great, man. Lots of pictures, lots of mythology, lots of stories. Okay. Today we think of Gemini primarily as a sign of intellect and of duality. The symbolism of the intellect, of course, is derived from its ruling planet Mercury. The duality of Gemini has to do with the fact that this is a double sign. Twins. Hence... 
It often represents the conflict between the ego and the shadow in any given personality. The ego strives always to take the conscious path, whether founded in the individual will or in the mores of society at large. The shadow, our hidden side, represents all the values we have repressed or refused to acknowledge as our own. Values which can be either feral and violent or spiritual and transcendent, depending upon the value system we have used to shape the conscious ego. The shadow side is always creeping out of darkness and into light in the Gemini-type personality. This is why we think of them as changeable, inconsistent, and potentially treacherous. Though the myth of Castor and Pollux gives us little information in regards to this duality of shadow and self, the feminine manifestation of the myth is much clearer. The Gemini twins were part of the fourfold quaternity, Helen and Clintamestra. Helen, the daughter of Zeus, is beautiful and passive. She never steps outside the bounds of normal behavior, even when her lack of inner power and resolution triggers the Trojan War. Her more human sister, Clytemnestra, is possessed of a darker energy. She murders her husband, King Amemnon, upon his return from the Trojan War. I talked about how that's maybe, maybe not, right? Okay. But if she is darker and more violent in temperament, she is also filled with a stronger will. The duality of the two sisters is only too apparent. Helen is godly but passive. Clytemnestra strong but motivated only by her passions and desires. Or revenge and justice. Separately, they can only produce destruction, whether through action or lack of it. It is only when will is united with spirituality that positive, directed action can take place. Uniting above and below the spiritual and the human the, uh, the godlike passive and the passionate active. Uh, this is the masculine and the feminine. I mean, we are, we are caught in the maze, the matrix, the middle of, let's understand that all evolution on this plane occurs through polarity. We gotta deal with these polarities and not get pulled too far in either direction, but hold, whether it's, you know, uh, the representative of man with Lucifer and Armin, or just, you know, wherever, you know, we are, we're in between. We're angels and demons. It's Dan Brown. <laughs> I love that book. Anyway. So that's just some thoughts for today. Right? My shadow is like a cave full of bats, 
silently waiting in the dark. A part of me that will break free and shock me awake with a start. Trauma, Uranus, sudden unpredictable events, square to Saturn, the conscious ego trying to maintain control and, and do conscious, you know, be conscious. Uranus is the personal unconscious. So this whole year of 2021 is this unconscious shadow breaking through into consciousness. And what are we going to do with it? <laughs> what are we going to do with all that passion, all that will, all those personal desires, all that, you know, wait a minute, what about me? Ah! And our grasp and control of our lives or reality or our future or, you know, our situation severely threatened, apparently, from outside forces, but as we spoke of, it's actually unconscious inside forces. See what I'm saying? Anyway. You've got to sit down with big speakers and a big screen and click the link that's below in the notes, okay, to watch Pink Floyd and listen to Pink Floyd. Brain damage and the eclipse from the album Dark Side of the Moon, one of the best albums of all time. What else? If I can, if I can sing and play the guitar, I'm going to try to do a song here at the end uh, that I wrote many years ago. But uh, I'm a little rusty uh, at the guitar. Anyway, what else is there? Oh, my my course. Uh, if you want more of this, okay, you know uh, this eclipse is happening in my tenth house of career and vocation. Boom. So I'm stepping out. I'm coming out with a whole course next month in July. What will happen when? Looking at the astrological cycles of a human lifespan. Just by knowing how old someone is. With astrology, you can get a sense of what they're dealing with. And of course, that course is going to go a lot deeper, a lot farther, and it's even part of my bigger school that I'm putting together, but it's a, you know, it's a whole weekend, uh, 14 hours and yeah, it's, it's a lot of worksheets, a lot of, anyway, uh, I'll put a link, uh, to that also, uh, in the notes uh, below this video or just go to my website, newparadigmastrology.com. I want to thank you for listening. I want to encourage you to just really get the idea and really understand that it's going to be okay. We get caught up in the here and the now, in the feelings and the emotions of what is occurring in our, in our physical psychology, psychology right now. What astrology does and Uranus does, you know, is it brings us up and it brings us out. There is a long-term picture, a long-term path. Hindsight is 2020. 
5, 10, 20 years from now, we're going to look back and go, oh, yes, that was super painful. Yes, that was hard. Yes, that hurt. But thank God that happened. And we can have compassion on ourselves and we can have compassion on the perpetrators. We can have, we, you know, we can see this game as a game of consciousness. No holds barred by the soul. Our soul spirit can be ruthless. Life can be hard. Life can be ruthless. Take our eye, take our heart, take our arm, take our health, take our money, take our love. I mean, whoa. Evolution is no uh, smooth ride in the park. It's a bumpy, bumpy, bumpy road. So when the bats get released, when you get shot, when life blows your mind, no! You are life. Life is you. Life is for you. Life is behind you. Life is supporting you. And you will be okay. You're gonna make it. <laughs> your soul is eternal. And when you tap into your soul, instead of the ego that's just, you know, that's mine. I need that. This is where the meditation, the yoga, and the spiritual practice comes in so that we can see and get in touch with our eternal spirit self and not get so wounded with this earthly self. One more time. My shadow is like a cave full of bats. Silently waiting in the dark. A part of me that will break free and shock me awake with a start. Wake up, baby. Namaste. Aloha. So much love. All right, everybody. I don't know what this is going to sound like, but I call it the stars. The stars.
creeping into Leo, um, it's it's going to bring forth, right? As Capaccio was saying, there, the, the shadow material is is uh, not so shadowy, right? And so we're going to get we're going to get lots of stories previously hidden are going to. Uh, come into the public view. So we got that to look forward to. Hidden stories being revealed. This is going to be the, an age of revelation. Now, not like Bible revelation, which is a metaphor. You know, it's all metaphor, you know, as, as Chiron said earlier today, you know, you know, all, all these messages from spirit, you know, they, they they have to use metaphor because that's what humans can understand, right? So it's gonna be it's gonna be exciting. Anyway, um, my eyes are too tired to read you anything tonight. I guess we can get a little bit of uh, Tanya in here, and before we go to the conference call. Okay, well, Rama's kind of in the other room creating the conference call right now. Do you have maybe a few more words to share with us, Richard? <laughs> oh, okay. Let me, let me, uh, let's see. Let me close my eyes and, and pull up tonight's astrology chart from memory. Um, yeah, see the, see Jupiter, the Jupiter effect, right? Now, see, Jupiter is the Roman name for Zeus, right? Who was the, uh, you know, the, those 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 stories are so strange. See, because Zeus Zeus kept chasing humans around, right? He'd fall for this human and that human girl. He'd go yeah. chase these girls. Yeah, and he'd get them pregnant, and he'd get a son or a daughter here or there and everything, you know. But his wife, Tara, A-T-R-A, she was dogging his ass all the time, right? And she was, she was blocking him and harassing him, and he'd get, she got really pissed at all his, uh, Girls that you know he went running after and everything, and, and she, she she just had a she just had a long time of being a really pissed off lady, right? And uh, and and that that was another part of the, the story, you know. You know, Zeus was a you know he was just a uh, he was the Hugh Hefner of the gods, you know. Couldn't keep it in his pants. Yeah. Uh, he could not keep it in his pants. No, he couldn't. But see, he had a big heart, and he just loved the ladies. Yeah, he did. But again, these are these are metaphorical stories, right? So, what's the lesson? You know, the lesson is self control, right? And another lesson is, you know, many of these. Uh, Characters in, in mythology, you know, they 
high levels of passion. Their passion would grab hold of them and they'd go off and they'd do something unadvisable, to put it politely, you know, and then they'd get in more trouble. You know, they'd get in trouble with their, with their priests or their priestesses and, and all of that, you know. And then, then there was uh, several of these humans with, you know, they'd make the trip to Delphi to, you know, consult the oracle of Delphi, you know, which was, uh, was that Aphrodite or Artemis? Ar- I think it was Artemis, right? Yeah. And uh, Ar- Artemis, Artemis would say, well, you know, here, you really want to know what's going on? All right, here, here's a little bit of your destiny. And he'd give a little, he'd give a little hint out. And then, you know, that would just confuse the humans even more, you know. And then the other stupid things that humans did, right, <laughs> is they would try to change their destiny, right, uh, by some actions that they take on us, right? Never worked out very well at all, you know. Don't try and change your destiny. Embrace your destiny. Right. Right. So that's why that's why astrology can be useful because you by studying your your chart and meditating on it, you can you can you can find information, you can gather insights, um, and you can cooperate with the energies rather than try and run around either not knowing, not knowing the available opportunities, and equally as important is recognizing areas that you should just stay away from. (laughs) Just don't go there, right? Like, you know, <laughs> Jupiter. Jupiter is is you know, Jupiter is all about opportunities, whereas Saturn is more about don't go there. Just don't go there. Yeah. Right. It's time to go, Richard. All right. Namaste, my friend. Thank Namaste. you. We'll talk to you you next week. Yes, so much coming up here. Thank you for a heads up. Yeah, it's good. Look, it's going to be tricky, right? And and Mercury's retrograde. Yep. Not not, not open yet to the 22nd of June. Right, Mercury retrograde. So good tidings to our movers here, Don and Doug, on the middle of Mercury retrograde. Take care. Apply your details. Well, they're okay because they planned this move before Mercury went retrograde. That's true. And Mercury is more about shorter travels than longer travels. And they're doing a fairly long travel. Yes. And we're moving yep. halfway across the country. That's true. But it's going to be better for them technical-wise because they're 
their network connections to the internet, right? That's how they, you know, do their business. They're going to be operating from the middle of the country, so it'll be easier for them to reach the East Coast and yeah. Europe. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Good advice. Thank you, Commander. Okay, Rama, the number for our country. 720-716-7301. And the pin code is 353-863-POUND. Say that first number again because you kind of started off on a different tone. Seven two zero. Seven one six seven three zero one. And the pin code is three five three eight six three pound. Okay, see you there everybody. Namaste. Happy day. Here comes your ghost again. That's not unusual It's just that the moon is full And you happen to call Ten years ago I bought you some flames You brought me something We both know what memories can bring they bring diamonds and rubs. Now I see you standing with brown leaves falling all around and snow in your head. Now you're smiling out that window of that crummy hotel over Washington Square. Our breath comes out white clouds, mingles and Speaking strictly for me, we both could have died then and there. I believe in prophecy. Some folks see things not everybody can see. Once in a while,
back, everyone. This is from the Kennedy Center, and I think there's more. This was last Sunday night. Special uh, honoring to Joan Baez there. Yeah. I'm... I'm getting there. <laughs> a, mo- a pregnant pause, everyone. That's really where we are. We're in a pregnant pause uh, in this transition from the old to the new. Here we go. This is something different. Oh, okay. So I let the waves 
Playing for change, everybody. Is there a person's name there? Oh, I didn't see. By the sea, Mel. Mel Simi. Mel Simi by the sea. That was lovely. Okay, Ramos got some more for us.
That was called The Gates of Istanbul by Lorena McKinnon. Oh, yes. Is that, are we done? Is there, wasn't there something else you were to play for us from the Kennedy Center? Oh, this is, uh, well, this is just 43 seconds of We Shall Overcome. That's all there is? Um... Well, play that. That's okay. You can play uh, And then you can find something else, too. Oh, I, I have something else here. Okay. Hang on here. Coming. Commercials. I just lost my bookmark. Here we have this large pyramidal structure, and the witnesses, they can't believe their eyes. And I started a number of years ago inviting younger acts, um, young women songwriters and some young men songwriters to join me on stage and to open, etc. One of the first ones was a really beautiful, enchanting, and gifted songwriter. Please welcome Mary Chapin Carpenter. Dedicating this to my late sister Mimi, I was to sing this song with her. Leaves with tears, 
Because we had to get a new receiver, everybody, the whole Kennedy uh, presentation uh, is on the old receiver, and it's going to take a while for it to get on the new one. So we will now take a little jaunt and listen to our sister, Tanya Gabrielle. This is 18 minutes. Here we go. It's Tanya Gabrielle, Wealth Astrologist. Welcome to Star Codes, where we look at the forecast in the stars and numbers. Now, we are going to focus on the Capricorn full moon today, which happens on June 24th, with the moon at 3 degrees Capricorn, the sun at 3 degrees Cancer. And it's exact on June 24th at 7.40 p.m. Universal Time, and that's 2.40 p.m. Eastern Time, New York, and 11.40 a.m. L.A. Pacific Time. And, of course, you don't need to be a Capricorn to benefit from this forecast. You have Capricorn somewhere in your chart, so this full moon is showing up in Cancer and Capricorn in your astrology birth chart and impacting you in a very specific way. So Capricorn's the sign of dedication and work and career. So this full moon signifies a renewed commitment and dedication. So the question really is, what are you dedicating your energy to? Let's look more closely at the dynamics and the codes in play. First of all, there's Capricorn and Cancer. There's a gorgeous trine from the sun to Jupiter and from the moon sextile Jupiter, which is a beautiful triangle, Jupiter being all about joy, expansion, wisdom, justice. And there are two oppositions, Venus opposite Pluto and Mars opposite Saturn. So when you consider that the full moon is an opposition between sun and moon, there's a lot of rebalancing of energy that is going on here. So Taking authority of what you find is the key to your inner peace. So not being afraid of what shows up, accepting the truth as it appears, not judging it, wishing it away, ignoring it, whatever the case may be, accepting how life shows up, dealing with it and moving on. That is the key to not wasting energy and not wasting time. And it takes effort. To do that, obviously, and Capricorn is 
the sign of all of those, not wasting energy, not wasting time and effort, digging in and creating security. So if you want to build a strong structure that can withstand anything, it takes deep, committed effort and patience. So you want to decide what to keep and what to let go in this whole process. And that's a real metaphor for Capricorn too, which is an earth sign. So Capricorn, which is where the moon is, deals with facts. And Cancer, where the sun is, deals with feelings. Now, the moon is the ruler of Cancer. So we're really coming to terms with the true nature of our feelings. For example, all of our opinions, assumptions, judgments, evaluations, fantasies, wishes, those are not facts. Those are fiction. And they're a particular point of view, the point of view that you have, right? It's it's the you that is the voice in your head that believes and truly feels that that what is actually fiction is fact. But this is the false sense of self. And it's false because it doesn't actually exist. It's made up of ideas manufactured by programming. And Capricorn represents this programming. Capricorn represents the top-down leadership and the past and cultural indoctrination. And due to the nature of this particular full moon that has so many oppositions, we are needing to find that inner balance now so we're not pulled into the past or pulled into the future. And so it's very important to understand that there's nothing real behind this voice in your head that really is just regurgitating indoctrination. It's just a voice. And your conditioning is part of this programming and it behaves very similarly to programming. So some of the biggest fictions that are created by the voice in your head are about the past and the future. And cancer represents being, you know, having worries about what might come. And there's just this whole sense with this full moon of really confronting the past and future and and, and what what they truly are, which is they're all made up. They're not real, right? Being stuck in the past or worrying about the future, which is very Cancerian, which is where the sun is, is a real waste of time, a waste of energy. And even more dangerous than that, it can take you down rabbit holes emotionally, right? Drama, all of that. So you may think that when you think about the past, that you're remembering the past the way it was, but you're actually just remembering your version of the past, the past from your point of view. And what is your point of view in this case? It's the ego's point of view. It is not objective. When your mind recalls the past, it is a story that it spins that is all about you. You are the center of the story. How you felt, what you did, what other people said to you or did in a relationship to you, how that felt to you. In your memories, you are the central character of the story, you are the star of the story, and therefore it's an incomplete story, as all stories are. And incomplete stories are not the truth. They can't be the truth because it's not the whole truth, right? And this is why we suffer so much when we get stuck in the past. It's an incomplete story that's told. We can't learn from it. It's very often a sad story, or a story about resentment, or some other story that leads to some feelings and drama of some sort. And then there are all the fictions that are 
created through our imagination around these stories. For example, could I have done something different? Should I have been different? Et cetera, et cetera. Or, or this person shouldn't have done that. Or, you know, life isn't fair. Why is this happening? How can God do this? That kind of stuff. So there are a lot of these sort of magnifications of pain that we create. And those thoughts arise in our mind anytime something happens that is unwanted, right? But they only create more pain. So when you use the words could or should, which, you know, in my, in my view, they are not good words to have in your vocabulary because first of all, they're downers. And second of all, they pretend to, to like know about something. It has no basis in reality whatsoever. They're really useless and they're untrue and they cause suffering. So things couldn't have or shouldn't have been different. They were what they were and there's no changing that. And it's the ego constantly wants to change things, right? So such thoughts of should and could are very torturous and they can linger in people for many, many years. Uh, Totally unnecessary suffering is caused by them. So the truth sets you free from the suffering because the truth is the whole picture and not just your limited mind's point of view of what happened. And the truth includes the whole truth. It includes the higher perspective, the understanding, the growth, the wisdom, the soul's perspective. And that's when you grasp the whole picture, the purpose that some event might be serving your soul. And purpose is what Capricorn is also all about, right? Capricorn knows and teaches that every event serves the soul in some way. There is a higher power. There is a higher order at work, a divine order, and it is wise and it is benevolent. And this order is represented by Capricorn. And if you don't trust in that order, you become a victim of life. And that's the shadow side of cancer is feeling victimized. So your soul willingly chooses to experience whatever you've experienced. And this is for its own growth, for its own evolution, because your soul knows that it will gain something from every experience in some way. So people don't generally see when they use words like could have or should have as really fabrication. And they also don't see that they're never going to get an answer and that by doing so, they're actually getting themselves into more pain. And that the ego is magnifying that suffering. And so this is really a web that is created, you know, like the hamster wheel voice in your head seems true and reasonable, but it's actually causing you to hurt more and thinking that this shouldn't have happened or life is unfair or you could have done something differently. And these statements seem to be true and that's what makes them so easily taken on. But they are literally imaginative alternative scenarios that have no place in your present moment awareness. Because there's only one way out of this craziness, and that's the present moment. But the ego will not suggest that. The voice in your head is not 
what is going to bring you that inner peace. Only the truth can do that. The truth is not found in the limited egoic mind. You have to be willing to look somewhere else for the truth. And where do you find it? Well, it's in resting in the present moment and opening up and listening to that inner wisdom that is always there. It speaks silently to you. It speaks wordlessly to you. And it's in that present moment that you find the acceptance and the peace. And this is where you can rest from the that self-torture of what if and could have and should have. And so, okay, so we looked at that, but then what about the future? So that was the past, could have, should have. The future is even more of a fiction, obviously, than the past because it hasn't happened. So the mind loves to think about the future. It's almost like a huge distraction from the present moment, you could call that, right? And sometimes you do need to think about the future just for practical planning purposes. But much of the mind, what the mind thinks about the future is just pure, like, imagination, conjecture, made up. So, for example, if you're going to some kind of meeting or social event, you imagine yourself being at this meeting and how you're going to be and blah, blah, blah. And is that useful in any way? I mean, it's one thing to prepare for the meeting, do what you need to do before you get there. And some of that is important. You imagine what you need to bring, you prepare you see how long it will take you to prepare to even to, to to travel or drive to the meeting. All of this makes sense, right? This is practical. It's using your rational mind to prepare for something that is going to happen or most likely will happen. But it's very different than imagining yourself in the context of the meeting that has not happened. What pe- what you'll do, what people will say to you, imagining how the meeting will turn out. That is pure fantasy. So these thoughts of imagining yourself in this situation don't come from your rational mind they come from your egoic mind and the difference is that you're at the center of the thought so you are the one that these thoughts are about right so is that a useful thing to do is it useful to imagine a positive outcome that might be helpful in overriding some negative voice in your head yes That is somewhat useful, but there is another way of approaching this being present in the moment. The best thing to conquer any fear or nervousness about the future is allowing you to be so in the flow that your actions and feelings and speech are all inspired. In other words, you will bring balance to your life by discarding the egoic mind that wants to know what's going to happen in the future and control it to discarding that completely because this egoic mind for the most part will sabotage your life rather than try to work with accepting life. And it basically turns your attention away from the present moment. And so this is very important to understand because the way you create joy and peace And total flow in your life is to be present. That's how you create the best possible outcomes. You you don't prepare for how you're going to act and how people will act towards you, right? So 
creating the best possible outcome for yourself is also very Capricornian. Capricorn is a sign of leadership. It governs your career. And so being in the present moment should be taught to anybody who is in the world of career, who runs their own business. It certainly isn't what business schools teach. So it is important rather than trying to mold yourself into an image of a successful person, just be in the moment, respond to life as it happens. Be natural, be natural, right? Prepare for that meeting, but then let go and respond to the moment, to whatever shows up, right? Respond from that place of being in the flow because you are a spark of the divine. See yourself as that. See yourself in this way and not as a fantasy where you're trying to imagine all scenarios before they happen or worry about how you were in the past. It's a fact that you are a spark of the divine. And so any other way you see yourself is fictional. And so you're just trying to create a buffer of security that is false by the ego if if you don't distrust. And so this is just part of your spiritual journey, your spiritual path, your path home to love and trust and forgiveness and happiness and peace. So allow the moon in Capricorn and the sun in Cancer, the nurturing sun in Cancer, to love your life into reality, to just be, no strings attached, past, future, they're not even relevant to you anymore, aside from practical planning purposes, which is in the moment, (laughs) rational thinking, there is nothing you need to pay attention to regarding the past or future, just live in this moment, and this is really what the oppositions between uh, Mars and Saturn and Venus and Pluto This is what they are teaching is to be in that place of beauty, of release, of total dedication and acceptance so that you are literally available energetically to life, fully available to the person in front of you, to the work you're doing that's in front of you, to the joy you're feeling to the connection with nature, you're just there. You're not comparing. You're not, you're just absolutely blissfully there. So this is the message for the Capricorn full moon. And of course, you also have a star code, just like this full moon forecast has a star code map. You were born with a star code map. And I have a free masterclass for you where you can discover all about your soul code at starcodeclass.com. And not only will you learn all about yourself, but you'll learn all about the souls of your family and friends so that you can have the ultimate compassion and empathy and support for them along the way, this incredible journey on earth. So enjoy that masterclass at starcodeclass.com. And I look forward to seeing you next week in our next Star Codes podcast. Bye-bye for now.
I don't know what happened to the paper drama, so you're going to just have to tell everybody what this is going to be about. Oh, okay. Between yeah. kitties and everything else. Oh, Lord. Yeah, let me get there. Um, yeah. Um. What I could do is read the a holographic oh, universe decoded. And who's in there? Um, I think that the nice state Teresa Boulard show back up on that one, right? Yeah, and yeah. David Ike. And David Ike's in there too. What a combo! Yeah. Now, seeing Andrew Collins and Mary Rodwell. Here we go. Wow. What a team. It's coming. <laughs> experience through our mind and senses are all part of our reality. What we hear, what we see, what we touch. But what if life as we think of it is only part of a much greater story? Throughout history, many scholars have postulated an assortment of theories to explain the fundamental nature of reality. One of these theories suggests the universe is like a hologram. They believe that our 3D reality is more like a projection from a flat two-dimensional field that exists on a thin surface at the edge of the universe. As extraordinary as this seems, it's a theory that initially emerged years ago from scientists studying black holes. If this is the case and the universe is a hologram, then it begs the question, what are we? Are we existing as light projections within the hologram? And how might that impact our perception of reality? Holographic reality, the physical that isn't. And how we can appear to be experiencing a world of solidity when it's nothing of the kind. It's similar to video games. When you're moving three dimensions in a video game, what you're really doing is just changing two-dimensional pixels and changing the colors and making it seem like you're moving it in different dimensions. When you look at these scenarios like the black hole, you start realizing that, okay, maybe this might just be a giant hologram uh, of some sort. We are living in a reality where the base form is waveform, waveform information like Wi-Fi. And the five senses pick up that waveform information 
They turn it into electrical information. They communicate it to the brain, and then the brain decodes it into digital holographic information. It's the same information, but in a different decoded form. Just as the information in a Wi-Fi field looks very different, even though it's the same information, when it's decoded onto the screen of the computer. According to Professor Costas Scanderis at the University of Southampton, the idea is similar to that of ordinary holograms, where a 3D image is encoded in a two-dimensional surface, such as in the hologram on a credit card. However, this time, the entire universe is encoded. So the idea of the holographic universe is, is a similar idea where there is a, a higher reality that is the, the true reality. And it is the source of this reality. And then that, that higher reality has encoded a substrate of some kind with this information. And then there's a coherent source of energy that flows through that. And then that information projects into this physical universe. So with the holographic universe, it's saying that the most fundamental thing of this universe is information. And then that information informs how the universe is formed, whether it's in form of energy, forces, particles, and so forth, or even us. And uh, some of the more recent developments, certainly in my theories, with the holographic mass solution, where we see that the universe very much acts like a hologram in terms that uh, it seems that all the information is uh, present in every point. So, for instance, in the theory I'm writing, we were able to figure out, for instance, the correct temperature for the background radiation of the universe, the correct size of the universe, the correct mass for the universe, the correct values for many of the fundamental constants of the universe just by studying one proton. In the dynamics of that one proton is all the information necessary to understand the whole universe, which is very much a holographic principle. And so there is a lot of evidence that's emerging supporting a holographic view of the mechanics of our universe. Physicist Leonard Susskind, one of the originators of the holographic principle, has stated that a hologram takes three dimensions of information and stores it on a 2D surface. In the same way, even though objects are physically consumed by black holes, all of their information remains imprinted on the event horizon as a hologram. The information that creates us, creates the physical universe, comes from the very edge of our own physical universe. But in the same way that we, we look at a hologram, we can perceive some kind of 3D perspective to it. That's exactly what is going on down here. So everything we see, everything we feel, is simply a projection like a sea of information or a sea of energy and like waves on that ocean they intersect and that forms the information patterns that then project into the universe when the wave is the ocean and the ocean is the wave 
when the universe is within the proton and the proton is within the universe. Understanding this fundamental perspective is key. The implication here is that the universe is a flow of information where each point of information contains the whole of creation. If all the information is in every point, then all scales are related. And this, so the scalar relationship uh, from, for instance, all the way from the Planck scale all the way to the universal scale going with protons, electrons, planets, stars, galaxies, superclusters, and so on, all these scales are like fractal division of this holographic structure of space. And so this fractal division of the space that produces all of the scales in the holographic structure means that every scale is then embedded in every other scale. So from every scale, you have access to the network of information of all the other scales. And all of a sudden, you can see the universe and creation as a whole as information transfer across scales from infinitely big to infinitely small, like like a flow of information in which we are at one of the scales, at, at the center between the Planck scale and our universe. And so we are part of this information flow, the event of self-awareness and consciousness and so on, being part of that flow. And that means that from being part of that hologram, from being part of this fractal holographic structure, you have access to all the information, information that's non-local to you. That means information that's not necessarily directly in your environment, but maybe information about something very far away from you because everything is entangled into this holographic nature of our universe. This suggests that the information comprising what we perceive as 3D reality is stored on a 2D surface, including time. This means essentially everything we see and experience that appears as real may in fact be an illusion. So this reality is a holographic dream, in effect. But it seems so real when so many of our dreams don't seem real. We know they're dreams. We wake up, we say, I've had a dream. But this one seems incredibly real because of the power of the mind. I mean, I don't know about, you know, your dreams. I, I, I dream often in three dimensions, if you like. I, I experience in my dreams what appears to be a the world that I experience here. But how can that be? Because we accept that dreams are actually going on here. So it can't be physical, can it? We're having multiple experiences at the same time, over multiple dimensions at the same time. But the one we are actually aware of that seems real is this one. As the brain decodes this waveform information into what appears to be this solid world. 
we share our existence with other holographic universes, if you like, that coexist with us and that they can be seen as a part of what might be seen as the multiverse. The multiverse itself would be the source. That would be the projectionist. In other words, that which is creating all of this in the first place. But then what is the projector itself? The projector is essentially what we would call the ether, the actual structure of the multiverse through which information is carried. We are living in a multifaceted series of dimensions or universes that all overlie each other and are all accessible and that are bound together by some kind of primordial source. And that primordial source is what I call the mind of God. Note that I said the mind of God. I didn't say God himself. This is all thoughts, all consciousness bound together through the process of quantum entanglement. Quantum entanglement is the idea that every particle that's created has a twin. And no matter how far away those twins get, they are still entangled. They are still linked instantaneously. So in other words, if you tweak one, it doesn't matter how far away the other one gets, it will respond in an equal and opposite manner instantaneously. As a lay person, trying to understand consciousness, which I think is what we're talking about here, I believe we are all part of a consciousness. Some would call the source, whether you want to label that with bigger names or whatever. Um, I call it the source, universal awareness, lots of different names. One time, I believe it was Wolfgang Pauli or Schrodinger, one of those fathers of modern quantum physics, and they asked, how many minds are there in the universe? And the answer was one. There's only one mind. And so we may experience ourselves as having these individual minds, like my mind is mine. But in reality, we are tuning in. Our brain is like a receiver, like a radio receiver for this field of consciousness and mind that we are all bathing in. We're like fish in the sea. So similar to the fish, maybe not knowing that there's water around it, we are in this sea of consciousness and we may not know that there's consciousness all around us. And we're just tuning in to these different frequencies or stations of consciousness based on how we have tuned our frequency. And it's by our, our will and our intention that we shift our dial to tune into different levels of consciousness. If the universe is a hologram, that means we are too. This may mean that each one of us contains the entire universe within ourselves. If you take the holographic print, that waveform print, and you cut it into four and fire the laser at each of the four pieces, you will not get a quarter of the picture. You will get a quarter-sized version of the whole picture. Mm -hmm. So every part of the hologram contains the information of the whole hologram. 
What does this actually mean? Well, what it means is that our reality is the product of a multi-dimensional emanation coming from a primary source. So almost like a singularity that as it emanates out, it's almost like it, it is broken up like light through a prism and that every single ray that comes through that prism could be seen as an individual universe and that that thereafter is broken up again and again and again. And all we ultimately are is one part of that emanation. Information is the main fundamental building block of this universe. At least that's what science is saying now with the holographic model. That information is most fundamental. And then that information informs what gets manifested or what gets materialized out of the quantum field. So those particles and energy, everything that we experience here in this, this sensory physical world is real. It's just informed by information that comes from a source beyond this physicality. If the universe is holographic, the question people often ask is why does it appear solid? Well, there's a misconception about what we call the material world. You know, if you look really uh, precisely as what the material world is, uh, you don't actually find a thing, right? It's not a thing, right? Like if you look at an atom, if you look at the proton, uh, what are you seeing? Well, first of all, you're seeing 99.9999999% space, right? The atom is mostly space. Uh, so, you know, right there, you know, it's not a thing, right? It's not a billiard ball. It, it's actually a no thing. It's, it's mostly space. And the boundary that we, that we define, that we see, that we touch, you know, that we bounce against is a electrostatic field that is basically a little bit of oscillating energy. And this electromagnetic oscillating energy bounces against each other, right? And it feels like solid. It's like solid space, right? And, um, and, and when we look at a proton in the nuclear of the atom, we find the same thing. All we can say about a proton is that there is a region of space where there's a little bit of a denser electromagnetic field or denser electrostatic field, we call it a particle and so on. But basically all we're describing is little energy events in the space. Based upon the research and conclusions of American scientists David Bohm and Carl Prebrum, a universe in which individual brains are actually indivisible portions of the greater hologram and everything is holographically interconnected, the parapsychological phenomena, such as telepathy, may merely be the accessing of the holographic level. To put it another way, in a universe that is a hologram, our brain, indeed every neuron and every atom in our brain, contains in some semblance the whole universe. And we are truly all part of a global mind. I believe our brain is like a physical modem for 
translating our multidimensional awareness. So it's giving us something in a physical form for us to be able to relate to and have a physical experience. But consciousness, whether you call that mind, is non-physical. The way that I've come to understand reality is this. We have a physical container of a certain frequency with a um, mind, I call the brain, the, the modem that allows us to translate it into physical form so that we can actually understand it. So that's what the brain is. But consciousness, whether you call that mind, is non-physical, is a an awareness that is connected to humanity's the, the matrix, but also to humanity's consciousness, if you like, as well. And so what we're doing is having an individual perception through our human brain of a human experience that will be different for everyone perceiving that same consensus reality. So that we have all that unique experience, but ultimately we're all coming from the same place, which is our consciousness, which is connected to everything, not just human beings, but the star beings, the interdimensionals, and all creatures. Just because we see it as solid doesn't mean it isn't conscious. It just means that we are not aware of its consciousness. The body is the mind. The body is just a decoded holographic expression of the mind. Yes, even the body, everything is holographic. Therefore, we are decoding the energetic fields that we call the body, the information fields, the waveform fields, into the very body that we think we're inhabiting. <laughs> and our perceptions will dictate the nature of how we do that and how we experience that body. I wouldn't say that the holographic universe is a product of mind. I would say that the dynamics of information flow through the structures of our universe, of, of, of the holographic fractal universe, produce the effect that we call mind or that we call consciousness. But that effect is at every scale. It's not isolated to the human, meaning that like in order for the human to become self-aware, it had to have all the steps of evolution along the way to get to there. So every bit of that is part of the mind, of the consciousness, of the evolution of the whole. It's one thing learning about itself. And so you could say from that perspective that Consciousness and the mind is present at all levels. It's the result of this evolutionary transformation that's occurring every billionth of a second everywhere in the universe. Bohm and Prebram have also suggested that many religious and mystical experiences, such as a feeling of transcendental oneness with the universe, may also be due to the accessing of the holographic realm. As they note, perhaps the reason so many great mystics of the past have talked about experiencing a feeling of oneness with all things 
is simply that they have learned how to reach that part of their minds in which all things really do possess cosmic unity. The mechanism that information is transferred on a multidimensional level throughout not just this universe, but every universe, and that the information that is being conveyed is the same as what we would call consciousness. And that consciousness is the product of human interaction or the interaction of any life form with a primordial source of, of knowledge, of wisdom, which I like to refer to as the mind of God. You know, something that is all information, every aspect of life anywhere in the universe, not just in our universe, but every universe is contributing to this and that this is the source and that the conveyance of this information through the ether allows the manifestation of the physical reality. As a lay person, I just see it as frequency. So for me, we're in a 3D frequency, which everything appears solid. But obviously, really, everything isn't solid in terms of what science is showing us. It's all molecular, you know, that you go to the, the very atom and that there's nothing actually solid at all. So it's only because we are perceiving it as solid simply because we're the same frequency as whatever it is around us. But if we could, that's why we can't see spirits or at least some of us can't see spirits because they're a different frequency and extraterrestrials are a different frequency. So as we expand in our, our consciousness and awareness, the more we can see those other realities and frequencies. The theory that reality, as we consciously experience it, is actually a hologram, goes back to many ancient cultures around the world who believed that we exist in a dream or illusion. One of the best examples of the ancients having an understanding of what we would call the holographic universe is the Hebrew Kabbalah. And this talks about the fact that the physical universe in which we live is merely emanations of a primordial divine source before he entered into the physical world. There was like this lightning bolt of activity that penetrated through into physical reality and penetrated through into humanity and that we all have some facet of that original emanation within us. Many of them said they got this from the sun gods, you know, whatever. They knew that the material world was actually the result of a deeper reality. And this deeper reality is actually a field of information that's occurring at the quantum scale. And so what we see in our world is really the iceberg tip of what reality is. And those discovery meet nicely with some of these ancient knowledge uh, about the deeper meaning of reality. Assuming that we're living in a holographic reality, what then are the implications for humanity? The implication of living in a holographic universe would uh, essentially mean that 
we are part of a larger, higher-dimensional object. And it would be prudent for us to figure out what that object is because, in theory, if we could get and understand that object in, a, in its entirety, we would be able to know what direction humanity is headed. We would be able to see the universe front and back. We would essentially time travel in, in many respects if you could actually see the entire let's say, four-dimensional object that we're a part of, or a higher-dimensional object. And so it would be kind of like finding the cheat codes to the matrix. If we could understand that we exist within a multiverse and that overlaid on our own physical reality are multiple other universes, quite literally, then an understanding of this this, this process could bring us closer to the intelligences and thus the knowledge and wisdom that may be held by beings, consciousness, uh, intelligences as a whole that exist within these other realms. So to try and find out the route back to the original source could then take us beyond that into these other universes we are multidimensional beings and we have so much more potential to direct the course of things here. So rather than being in reaction to all these outer circumstances that we're presented with in our world, we can shift into being more at realizing that we are at cause. And through our consciousness and through our remembering of who we really are and the potential that's within us and the fact that we are the source of this, then that is when we can really shift the course of things. That is when we can really start to put in new codes and new information into this hologram and then manifest it here in this physical reality. The takeaway, if we believe that this is a holographic universe and we're all part of it, is not to take life too seriously, to enjoy the adventure and to realize that it's offering us so much awareness and understanding and that at the end of the day, it's far better to see your reality in that way than as a victim of it, because it's quite exciting down here. <laughs> I believe that if there is an intelligence behind this sort of holographic universe, it would be what I guess would be some sort of like alien simulator. It would have to be somebody or something extremely interested in, in creating simulations of this universe for, for whatever reason. So I would almost have to venture that it's a scientist, but maybe that's bias. <laughs> it, it really is a self-introspective of, of our being, of our, who we are, of who we are in relationship to the universe, to reality. How come we're here? How come we're where? You know, how come we have self-awareness? How did this happen? What are the mechanisms that made that happen? And then we can align our technology to the same mechanism so that we become harmonious. It teaches us about the fact that we are all part of the same source and that we should unify as human beings and take care of each other and support each other and transform our society to a society that's thriving 
instead of a society that's struggling in conflict, trying to have more of the resources than others. And this can lead, this understanding, these physics can lead to the unification of, of the human race. We are the imagination of ourselves. And it's that imagination that manifests in the way we decode information into holographic reality and thus the nature of the physical experiences that we have. But the great news is now that we are in a time when people are beginning, like never before in my experience, to question again, not only what's really behind world events, but hey, what is this place? Who am I? What is going on? And the answers will transform this world and it will transform human life. In a universe where individual minds are actually fractals of the greater hologram and everything is interconnected, the holographic universe theory may well be the intersection of cosmic unity, where science and spirituality merge as one. In our next episode of Deep Space... Think energy, frequency, and the role of plasma if you want to understand the universe. Oh, my. <laughs> Keep on saying what's new, Pussycat. <laughs> wow. Nassim Harameen, David Icke, and Teresa Ballard all in one. Mm -hmm. Okay. So now we're going to have another. This is a Pleiadian Syrian Lyran. Oh, it's, uh, how long is that? Mm, let's see. 48 minutes. That was uh, uh, Regina Meredith, Ple Arcturians, Pleiadians, and Lyrans. What does it say down there? Let's just real quick talk it loud. So Many extraterrestrial groups who visit our planet have messages for us about the long history of our galaxy. Galactic historian Debbie Solaris shares details of her meetings with Arcturian beings who set her on a path of bringing love and acceptance to humanity. Through her Akashic Record readings, she also shares more details about other beings who have visited our planet, including the Lyrans and Pleiadians, and how human starseeds can uncover their own galactic origins. Okay.
I had two extraterrestrial contact experiences where I met up with five Arcturian beings. I was having massive downloads about galactic history, star races, astronomy. Earth was created to be a living library of different genetics through different, many different star systems. A lot of people have this misconception that Pleiadians are all good. Not necessarily. My understanding with the Lyrans is these are very open-hearted, childlike people. Which is how they got hoodwinked. Yeah, they got hoodwinked. We have to understand that we have the genetics of all of these species in us. Including reptilian. Including reptilian. This is going to be a fun ride for everyone. We're going to be talking with Debbie Solaris about the starseed origins of humanity and which extraterrestrial races most represent, work with, and even interfere with life here on Earth. Debbie has had some of her own experiences and does intuitive sessions with others who have questions about their origins as well. And this conversation is going to go into some of that. Welcome. And also... What I love, which your work has really compiled beautifully, is the history of the galactic origins of the species that we carelessly bandy about, you know, in today's world of information, disinformation, and misinformation. So I thought it'd be good to have a nice, sane conversation with you about all these species that populate our galaxy. Oh, yeah, it's going to be uh, really super interesting to talk about all of them. (laughs) I think it's going to be. First of all, how did you originally become fascinated with star origins? Because that's not where everybody naturally gravitates in their life. Um, Well, it's actually through my own experiences. I had uh, uh, two extraterrestrial contact experiences in 2012. Um, And uh, I noticed after I had those experiences, so they were out-of-body experiences, uh, I was having massive downloads about galactic history, um, star races, um, astronomy, um, all information that I've never, ever even known about before. Well, that's what I was going to ask you. Were you already studying and curious about these things, or this just kind of came about? It just kind of came about. When I had the experience, it was during dream time, but it wasn't a dream. It was definitely an out-of-body experience because everything seemed like it was in hyper-reality. And uh, I, I did notice that I was on some board, uh, on board some sort of a craft, and it was uh, um, very uh, the the energies were very intense. It, you know, the colors were intense, the the details were intense. Was part of you afraid or fighting it at all, or Not did at it all. seem okay? Not at all. Okay. Yeah, no, it was, I, I, I never felt any fear. I just felt maybe a little bit of curiosity and maybe some bewilderment, like, you know, why, what, what, where am I, where am I at? Why am I here? What's this, you know? Um, uh, and the ship was sentient, so it was uh, kind of like a, a living being of its own. It was directing me towards some sort of a space where I met up with uh, five Arcturian beings. Well, Arcturians, to a lot of people, come as guides to humanity. Yeah. And it's not an uncommon position for them to have. Now, I'll just toss out, um, some people see them as kind of very tall and oftentimes blue in color, for example. Mm -hmm. What was your experience of the Arcturians, and what did they show you? Well, it was interesting when I uh, approached the room... uh, I was 
already formulating questions in my head and they were answering my questions even before I could finish the question in my head. Um, right. Which was pretty, uh, so they were, you know, definitely tuning into me telepathically. And I was really surprised at how, um, they were able to pick up on my telepathic thoughts. Mm-hmm. And, um, as far as how they looked, um, it was really hard to look at them directly mm-hmm. because their frequency is so high. And I got the impression that they were actually pulling down their frequency in order even to have an interaction with me. Mm-hmm. And and they looked, their auras were big. It was like, mm-hmm. that was the first thing I noticed was the auras. Um, there was colors in the auras I had never seen in you know mm-hmm. our spectrum here. Uh so when you're in the higher realms, you see there's a multitude of even additional colors. You know, as many beautiful colors as we have here on Earth, there's a multitude of those those colors. Um, the other thing that I noticed was um, when I was glancing at them, you know, it's kind of like in the periphery or sideways. Um, they had larger heads, uh, somewhat larger eyes. The eyes had pupils and irises. Uh, they weren't super tall. I know some people talking about, um, you know, Arcturians are tall. Um, these ones weren't tall. I don't know. Maybe they were pulling down their frequency mm-hmm. to look ten mm-hmm. less intimidating. Um, but they just seem like uh, the, the energy that emanated from them was just love and acceptance. And I felt very comfortable with them. Well, okay. So what begs a question right now is um, why you? Why did this happen to you? Oh, that was one of the first questions I asked. Right. Yeah. I was just like, why, why, why is it me? Um, and, uh, they told me that I was part of their family, that I have chosen to be on earth to do a great mission, uh, but I've forgotten. And, uh, and a part of the reason was because I had sent out a prayer two weeks before, you know, asking for assistance for, for the, for the planet, you know, planet earth. Oh, interesting. And this came after that. You didn't expect it necessarily to come in this way. Oh, no, not at all. No, <laughs> now, what were you doing in your ordinary life, your regular life? What were you doing? I was uh, actually a health inspector for a lot of years, <laughs> which is a very non-spiritual, you know, um, I was uh, worked for local government down yeah. in Colorado Springs, uh, and I I really had an ordinary life. I the mean, governmental tracks, you yeah, know, with yeah. benefits and yeah. all of that. Yeah, and I, you know, I was, I'm, I'm a prior Navy, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a Navy veteran, so, you know, so I had that background, so I was really not oriented towards spirituality at all. Okay, oh. we've got so much to go through yeah, here. I know, we got a lot. Because yeah. I want, I want to get through the history of it all. Now, we can start where you want. Um, we can start with Lyra. Yeah. I want to start with where the humanoid story came in. The reptilian story came in and just let you tell that story of what happened and you had a lifetime within there mm-hmm. and tell your own, interject your own experience of what you saw when you feel the time is appropriate and what happened to these races, where they colonized and so forth after. So just tell us the story now. Okay. Um, this is something that I, I share oftentimes in my Akashic readings because many of us have had connections with Lyra and Vega. Uh, Lyra is where uh, it's called the home of human consciousness for a reason. Um, the reason for that is because at least in our particular galaxy and in this universe, it was where um, the 
the experimentation into physicality began. So initially, before that, we were all these etheric beings. We were soul shards of source. We were splitting into oversoul groups. Um, I always refer to Galactic Center. Um, Galactic Center is kind of where everything began, where there was this integration of masculine and feminine energies. That's the actually the source template is the feminine and the masculine. So everything that we, we see even in Atlantis and in, you know, future civilizations are based on that template. Uh, Lyra also followed the same template. Uh, Lyra was created um, to be a, um, a starting off point for sentient beings to ex- be able to experience physicality and, ex- and to be able to experience this, this, this separation, you know, the separation from source. Uh, Lyra was a very beautiful, um, very paradise-like, you know, uh, civilization. It existed for thousands of years in peace and unity. Um, uh, however, even in Lyra, there was two separate human races or humanoid races that were created. So there was a um, the the white or Caucasian Lyrans that were very tall beings. Uh, they looked a little bit more Nordic, maybe. Those beings were more father god consciousness oriented. So they had more of a push forward energy, more physical energy. Uh, the blue Vega beings were more of a mother goddess consciousness orientation. So those beings, even though they were highly technical, um, had more interest in uh, reflection and spirituality. Um, and so kind of what happened with the whole Lyra story is, is kind of a lesson for a lot of us, I think. Uh, a lot of us, I think, it's easy to fall into complacency and naivety when everything is going well. You know, when everything is going well, it's easy just to kind of take it for granted and to not be consciously aware of what's happening around us. That is what happened. That's the Lyran story. Okay. The Lyrans, um, and even to a certain extent, the Vega beings, uh, felt that I, I think they just, kind of got complacent and so when the draconians that were in the constellation next door so the draconians were of a different consciousness you know these were beings that were originally kicked out of their own universe out of a different universe and they ended up uh i think somehow got deposited in draco okay uh they were not very happy about that obviously um they felt that they were an ancient race of beings. They wanted to conquer, uh, you know, the, you know, the, the, the galaxy, at least, uh, if not the universe. Uh, these beings saw Lyra and they pretty much saw a sitting duck. You know, they saw the Lyran system, uh, and they thought, you know, wow, they got a lot of resources on their planet. Uh, we could use some of those resources. We're going to conquer that system. Um, but they did it through deception, which is really, I think uh, we're kind of seeing the same themes even oh, yes. in today's world. world. Yes, very yeah. much so. Uh, so they reached out to the Lyrans and they wanted to create some sort of a treaty or an agreement um, that they were going to trade their resources for or, or their, their technology for the Lyran resources. 
And the Larians didn't really vet them very well, or they didn't really um, think, you know, okay, why are these beings all of a sudden interested in us? You know, they were they just saw the technology and thought, oh yes, we could really use better technology. <laughs> sounds like some Earth people. Yeah, I know. Like, it sounds like us. Yeah, yeah, it does sound like us. I mean, these people were us. I mean, yeah. at one time, you know. I mean, so um, so they basically just said, you know, well. And they just kind of rushed into this agreement uh, and allowed, you know, the access to Lyra to the Draconians. The Draconians used that opportunity to to pretty much uh, see where where their weak areas were. And they ambushed. Um, It was probably the most catastrophic event. So they ambushed the entire system. some of the planets that were initially hit was Avalon, Avion, Vila, and there was a few others. Um, uh, it was so catastrophic that um, I think Lissa Royale Holt, Holt um, says that 50 million Lyrans lost their lives. Mm-hmm. Um, I have my own personal memories of what happened in Okay, Lyra. let's talk about that and talk about the nature um, and physicality of the Draconians. Oh, Absolutely. So, Tell us about them, and then tell us about your personal experience. Okay, um, there's a there's a certain caste system within the Draconian races. So there's 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 more than just one type of Draconian. Um, I think a lot of people just tend to lump them into, oh yeah, they're lizards, you know, right? You know, um, but there is actually a higher caste, which was the the dragons, who were more, to my understanding, were more neutral. So they weren't. They weren't really uh, the harbingers of the war. Okay, they weren't the warrior class. Yeah, they, no, the warrior class is the next level. There was a rivalry between the dragon caste and the warrior caste. Mm-hmm. The warrior caste always felt like, um, well, why are they top tier? We should be top tier. Um, mm-hmm. If we conquer, you know, many different systems, you know, maybe we can topple them off of their. Position. Now, are these more what we would understand as classic reptilian-looking beings? Yes, yeah, absolutely. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then there's lower reptilians, you know. So there's reptilians whose genetics were used maybe for some of the reptiles here on Earth, you know, mm-hmm. that were, um, you know, back in the dinosaur ages. You mm-hmm. know? So, um, so uh, these even getting into the common creatures of today, alligators, crocodiles, and so forth. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, lower draconian tier. Genetics. Genetics. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I think for a while the Draconians had taken over Earth. Um, as a matter for a fact, Earth access used to be uh, Earth uh, pole um, used to be aligned. North Pole used to be aligned with Thuban, which is in Draco. Uh, mm-hmm. Now it's aligned with Polaris, as you know. Mm-hmm. But um, but for thousands of years it was aligned with Thuban because Draconians had control over Earth mm-hmm. for a while. And so there was many experimentations for genetic experimentations that occurred on Earth. Okay, so let's let's go to your personal experience during those wars. Okay. And before we start kind of colonizing Earth and time frames and the different species that came, because we are the potpourri. We are the bar at the edge of the yeah, universe. Yeah, we are. we kind of a nice, interesting blend of 22 <laughs> different star races. Yes, and we'll get to... Uh, quite a few of them, but not all of them. Yeah. So what what did you what was your personal experience? My understanding from I guess my own you know access to my own Akashic records is that I was an Arcturian emissary um, that was 
I, I didn't incarnate as Laren. I was I, when I saw myself, I looked like an Arcturian. But because Lyra at the time was higher dimensional, I was able to be there in Arcturian form. Mm-hmm. Um, I was there acting as an emissary and an, as a, I think, uh, um, an advisor to the Laren Council. You know, kind of like an Arcturian advisor. Now, was this when the troubles began? Were you present? Oh, oh yeah. Oh, yeah. I um, I remembered uh, warning the um, the Larens not to get into any agreements. Business dealings with them. <laughs> yeah, with the Draconians. But, but they didn't heed my warnings, uh, evidently. Um, uh, what I saw in my, my own personal, uh, past life regression work that I did on myself was, and it, and it traumatized me. It re-traumatized me. It, I had to do some work around it, some, you know, but, uh, it was horrific. Uh, they, uh, when I, when I think about how horribly they attacked Lyra. What, was, what, by what means? It was through quite a bit of bombing, uh, lasers, uh, uh, there was troops on the ground that was, you know, slaughtering people, chopping them up into different pieces. I mean, it was oh just horrific. God. It sounds like low-tech warfare with high technology available. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Okay. It was like they wanted to terrorize the parents as much as possible. Right. Which they definitely they did. did. Yeah. Okay. So that was, apparently you didn't help them avoid that one and back in your role in the day. And so after this devastation, what happened? When did the the two split off and where did they go next? As far as as far as the species, the Lyrans, for example. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. My understanding with uh, some of the the Starfleet. So so Lyra did have enough technology to have Starfleet. OK, it was in the beginning stages. So that's why they were so interested in draconian technology. But. And they didn't have quite the weaponry or, you know, some of the sophistication of the, you know, draconian ships. But uh, my understanding with Avalon, uh, the planet Avalon, was that most of the fleet headed to the Pleiades. Mm -hmm. Uh, With Avion, they decided to do things differently. So they were, I think they saw the mistakes that Avalon made and they thought, okay, we need to survive. So... So it was all about survival at that point. Uh, so we're going to split up our fleet. Some of us are going to head to Sirius. Some of us are going to head to Andromeda. And some of us will head to the Pleiades and other systems. You know, And there was actually many more systems. I'm just kind of using that as a general frame of reference. But um, And this was the Lyrans? The Lyrans, yeah. Okay. And so this these beings were of a... And now, when you were talking about the, there were the Caucasian Irons, there were the blue, uh, Lyrans, there were the blue Vagans. Um, the Vagans mm-hmm. also got involved with the wars. They mm-hmm. got involved a little bit later, so they didn't have quite the devastation that Lyra had or the other Lyran star systems, but, um, but they also had better technology. Uh, okay. Yeah. So let's talk about the, Spiritual, psycho-spiritual development, mental uh, development of the Lyrans. What were their capacities? Uh, as far as when they were in Lyra? Or, mm-hmm. When okay. they were in Lyra before they were damaged and went through the trauma and then uh, emigrated to other places. Uh, my understanding with the Lyrans is uh, these are very open-hearted, childlike people. Um 
which is how they got hoodwinked. Yeah, they got hoodwinked. Yeah, mm-hmm. and, and the draconians knew it. Yeah, yeah, they, yeah, they yeah. knew it. You know, um, uh, you know, when I when I work with people with Laren, you know, heritage, um, these are people that feel very connected to the land. They love a simpler lifestyle. Uh, a lot of them tend to, if they do healing work, they tend more towards herbology or naturopathic medicine. Anything empathetic? That, yeah, very empathetic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. I would say so. Um, um, but their downside with is the naivety, the tendency to be attracted to uh, um, maybe, uh, let me see if I can find the right words. Uh, they're attracted to relationships that are not for their best interest. Uh, even with Laren's I work with today, um, a lot of them get into very unhealthy relationships until they get very well integrated. Um, after they do the inner work, that's not the case anymore. But Because uh, they're so naive and they're thinking this shiny thing is going to somehow make them better or whole or offer them something rather than learning to develop it from within? Or Yeah, I, I, kind of what, what I see with, with Laren starseeds is that there's a sense of incompleteness within them because they lost their star system. Mm-hmm. So they, they have this feeling of, I can never go back home again. Kind of maybe looking for external power. power yeah. yeah. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah. Okay. Thank you for sharing that part. Now, let's take a look at how how long ago the reptilians came here, um, where they initially resided, what they were up to. And then, in contrasting that, uh, let's take a look at how long ago the Pleiadians arrived here and what they were up to, just because these are probably the most well-known groups to our viewers. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, let's do the reptilians first. Um, the reptilians obviously expanded you know, their forces out throughout the galaxy. Uh, uh, they didn't initially go straight to Earth. You know, I think a lot of people think, oh, you know, they went from Draco to Earth. I think it was kind of a progression. Um, they they kind of uh, operate towards, uh, you know, a, a mindset of where where is the most strategic spots and where can we have the most power? And so I think after the Laren Wars were over, they looked at Orion. Orion is a huge, huge constellation. A lot of stars in Orion, uh, and it's in kind of a strategic spot in our in our galaxy. So they they felt that you know if we can take over Orion, you know it would uh, you know it would be a, a you know a very good vantage point for them. Um, and Orion is really close to uh, Sirius. It's close to Procyon. It's close to Zeta Reticuli. It's close. I mean, it has a really great vantage point as far as astro- astronomically speaking. Right. Um, the reptilians uh, started creating bases and outposts in some of the uh, Orion systems, uh, you know, star systems, particularly Rigel, Bellatrix, and Betelgeuse. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, in the meantime, you had the Vega. Most of the Vega people, I didn't get a chance to mention this before, they were also sending refugees out. And their ships were heading towards Sirius and Orion. So there was uh, Vega ships that ended up in Sirius A and also some that ended up in the belt stars of Orion. Mm-hmm. Um, so these were people that 
I, I think there was a mixed crowd in some of these Orion systems. I always liken it to Star Wars. Right. It's, the cantina. Yeah, the cantina. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I always bring that up. But, um, but it's, it's, it's a fun, you know, a fun analogy mm-hmm. of what Orion was like. But, um, but what I, what I did see with Orion is, uh, uh, there was a lot of conflicts. Um, duality consciousness, uh, was prevalent there because you had, it was kind of like it became the melting pot of the, the galaxy. So kind of like the United States is the melting pot of the, mm-hmm. of the planet. That's how Orion was like. And so you had all these different beings that were trying to coexist with one another and they were squabbling over territories and, and planets and things like that. Um, uh, and the reptilians obviously were interested in conquering the belt stars, mm-hmm. you know, because they're all or That's nothing. That's what they do. Of, yeah. yeah. They're all or nothing kind of beings, mm-hmm. you know. So, uh, so these beings, I think, uh, were in constant conflict with what initially was developed, um, or, or eventually what was developed was the Black League resistance fighters. So these were, um, a, a, kind of a military, military force in the, uh, Orion Belt Stars that were trying to fight for their freedom and their unification. Now I just want to make really clear is that, that there's no all black or all white in these systems. Um, the Black League resistance fighters weren't necessarily all good, and the Empire wasn't necessarily all evil. Right. Yeah, yeah. I hear you. Actually, okay, so then at what point did they start making their way to Earth? I think this happened, this is my understanding, is uh, um, the the Black League resistance fighters asked for help from the Galactic Federation. We, we, we bring up the Galactic Federation quite a bit, which is an alliance between uh, benevolent beings that wanted to keep, you know, peace and unity throughout the galaxy. Okay. Mm-hmm. And there's many different types of beings that are members of the Federation. Uh, not necessarily all humanoid either. There's right. a lot of non-humanoids that are also members of the Federation. Uh, the Federation started getting more and more involved with the Lyran conflicts, you know, trying to create some sense of, of peace and, you know, maybe an outreach to some of the different groups in Orion. And this took, um, quite a few years. So it wasn't like an overnight thing. I mean, this took, uh, you know, Orion had been in conflict for, for millions of years. So, uh, so these beings, uh, are these uh, the Galactic Federation? From what I can, uh, what I saw, um, helped to bring about, and I think it was a collaborative effort between the Orion groups and the uh, the, the Orion Light Council, which mm-hmm. is actually based out of Orion Nebula, and also uh, you know some of the the Galactic Federation, the Pleiadians, Syrians, you mm-hmm. know, all of them. Uh, they ended up creating. Uh, a, a sense of peace and unity throughout the Orion system. So Orion has become, I think, uh, one of the newest members of the Galactic Federation. Okay, okay. But then there was dark factions in the Orion system that didn't necessarily want to be part of the light. So they had to look for new, new, new frontiers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for new frontiers, <laughs> you know, new place to, you know, do their, you know, do their, you know, power, power stuff, you know, their power work. Well, so, Earth is juicy. 
Yeah, it's got a lot going on here. Yeah, no, a lot of was... beauty, a lot of resources. No, as I some was a... kind of naive human beings. Yeah, some some really you know undeveloped human beings. Yeah, 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 you know. So so Earth looked like a really likely spot. Okay, it looked like you know oh, yeah we can you know yeah it's a smaller planet but it's a lot going on in Earth. Earth was created to be a living library. So Earth was kind of uh, was created to be like this composite of of different genetics through different many different star systems. That's why you see all the diversity here, even with you know the humans here. We you know there's a right. lot of diversity here. Right. And you know all of us carry a multitude of of genetics from different star systems. Exactly. Yeah. To your point, we have to understand that. We have the genetics of all of these species in us, including reptilians. Including reptilian, Mm -hmm. we have all of this within us because they've been here a long time. And as you say, not just them, but the reptilians are master geneticists, so they could work with human DNA. Mm -hmm. We had hybridized species. All we always have. Oh yeah, there was hybridized species that came out of uh, Sirius. Right. Yeah. You could even say that all of the various features of human beings and the races all had various influences from various star systems. I think it's a fair thing to say. Absolutely. And I think it's important to note that with each of these beings come some advantages and disadvantages in terms of how our deep, deep psyche has been uh, developed over millions of years. So there we go. We've talked a little bit. They're still here. Barbara Hanklaus coming out with a new book. Mm-hmm. She's really going further and further than she's ever gone into the uh, effect of the reptilians in the fourth dimension on planet Earth right now. It's it's fabulous. It's not out yet. I just got a galley from her. So we're going to go take that trip through her as well a little later. Yeah. Now let's go to the Pleiades. Speaking of Barbara, yeah, now well. let's go to the Pleiades yeah. and talk about their influence because you say they've been here about 225,000 years. Oh, yeah, yeah. The Pleiadians have went through their own similar evolution that we've um, in you know their history that we've gone through here on that we're now currently going through here on Earth. So their evolution started a million years ago. So a million years ago, they were struggling with a lot of the same issues that we have here on Earth. Maybe not quite to the extreme that we see here on Earth, but as a result of colonization or a split within their own people, or what did both? Okay, yeah, All right. Both. Yeah, yeah, it was, uh, I think it was, you know, they were expanding in their own, uh, so the Pleiades is a star cluster, and there's quite a, quite a few different stars, and each of these stars have their own civilization, their own culture, um, so under the umbrella of the Pleiadian, you know, unification, but, uh, um, but there was also a split in the Pleiades where I think the Pleiadians, because they were trying to heal from their the, the wounds of their ancestors. They're, you know, they're, most of their ancestors were, you know, Lyran refugees. Um, right. And so they they dealt with uh, trauma signatures with, within their own genetics, and uh, so they be, they became ultra focused on the light and what what didn't know, know how to integrate the darkness within them, which created the split of you know your positive Pleiadians and your more rogue Pleiadians. So a lot of people have this misconception that Pleiadians are all good. Not necessarily. They may look beautiful, but they're not all good. You know, I mean, there there's some some there, there's some rogue ones, and some of the rogue Pleiadians ended up joining forces with Orion. That's a whole other story. But um, but there was you know so the, so there was this split, and then they had to find their way back towards integration, which is kind of what we're seeing here on Earth right now. 
where, you know, factions are very split right now, especially mm-hmm. here in our country. But we're also trying to find our way back to integration. Um, Do you think that there is a reptilian influence at the base of the chasm and split in our world? Oh, without a doubt, yeah. Yeah. And what do you think they're, do you think it's an end game for them because really their time's coming to a close or this is just a continuation of what they always do and toward what end? I think it's an end game. I think they're pulling out all the stops at this point. That's what I feel. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I, I don't see their reign lasting for much longer. Mm-hmm. I think uh, within the next 10 years, we're going to see a lot of masses, mass changes uh, politically, economically, socially, you know, on economically on all spectrums here mm-hmm. on Earth. Um, and some of it's going to be really hard. It's going to be hard for people, especially those that are, aren't already awakened, which, you know, obviously doesn't include, you know, most of your viewers here on, on Gaia. Right. And, and this is true because one thing we're all part of, is the systems that have been created and that we've helped either create or allowed to happen. And once those start deteriorating to give way to something better, uh, people lose the security of what they become comfortable with. Yeah, Even right now, just the argument between kind of old economy mm-hmm. and the old way the financial markets work, which are just screwed up. Oh, now, yeah. I mean, now the stock market, you have the worst time, uh, worst tumult in history in America, and the markets are just rising by the day they're just having fun this doesn't make sense anymore so whatever corruption is at the base of those systems will have to give way to something ultimately healthier and then you have something like a bitcoin and cryptocurrencies where people can't get their minds around it yeah but i can't hold anything and that makes people anxious how do i invest in something i can't spend or hold (laughs) so you got that dynamic going on then you have people saying no let's go back to working together let's go back to collaborating in real ways and production lot of conflicting thoughts and ideas going on even now that will probably deepen, as you say, oh, yeah. as we go into this next decade out of necessity and absolute necessity, we have to change our systems. Oh yeah. It, it can't, it can't continue the no. way it has been. Uh, and we saw this same evolution throughout even, uh, you know, prior star systems uh, like Sirius, you know, Sirius had their own internal conflicts. Um, a lot of people think of Sirius as, oh, that's the home of the Ascended Masters, and it's all love and light. I mean, they had they, they, it took them millions of years to get to that point. Yeah. Uh, same with the Pleiades, same with uh, Orion, you know, same with uh, the only star systems that I think didn't go through that similar evolution was Andromeda and Arcturus. Uh, yes, oh, I, I'm going to tell you what, what I had planned here, as you know, I have way too many notes because I'm so curious about what you have to say. Yeah. What I'd like to do is this. Um, I want to get into every one of those cultures and how they have lived and so forth and their history separately. I'd like to have you back for another show if that works for you because there's no way we have time to do all that in the time left and instead focus now, uh, kind of wrap up where we're going, where we've been on this history, how they ended up here and then we're going to go into the others later and multidimensionality and multidimensional contact, interdimensional contact Absolutely. in our next show, yeah. which I'm sure the producers are saying, what? We didn't plan that, but we'll do it. Yeah, <laughs> but I, 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 want to, I want to talk about um, the work you do and, and why it matters to us to know about our galactic history as human beings and individuals. Who ends up on your doorstep? And maybe a couple stories and of what you've 
dealt with, what people are dealing with, and take us through that. Okay, that would that would be an interesting segue. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, the reason why, I mean, this is just through you know thousands of Apashic readings I've done throughout the last few years, but um, I'm finding that uh, even though you know we're all ancient souls, we've all had experiences in multiple star systems, you know, multiple dimensions. We still kind of carry the same themes, the same lessons, the same, uh, you know, challenges, you know, uh, throughout each of our incarnations. Uh, so as far as galactic history is concerned, uh, you know, I mentioned a little bit about, you know, kind of what the Lyr- the Laren pitfalls are, because we were talking about that quite mm-hmm. a bit. I see the same thing with other star systems where, you know, they because of their evolution, they they uh, they develop certain personality traits, or, or certain skill sets, or certain mindsets, and it's really interesting sometimes for me to see. Oh yes, this person. I know where you're from. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was like, yeah, you know, I was like, yeah, I can tell where you're from just by your personality. Yeah. Well, let's talk about that. Yeah. yeah, no naming names, of course, but yeah. maybe a few different clients that have come across your doorstep yeah. that you found really intriguing. Uh, I love um, Andromeda Galaxy Souls. Uh, okay. I. I mean, I love all, all of them. Okay. I mean, it's, it's kind of like, you know, who, who's to say like who's better than the other, but, um, I have clients who, from Andromeda Galaxy that are very high vibrational, but they have a hard time fitting into the physical reality here on Earth. Um, Andromeda Galaxy, I just want to point out, is a different location than Andromeda Constellation. Okay. So, yeah. So Andromeda Galaxy is the galaxy. It's 2 million light years away. Um, Andromeda constellation is 2,000 light years away. It's, it's the constellation. It's within our galaxy. But um, So there's Andromeda constellation people and Andromeda galaxy people. The Andromeda galaxy people are ancient souls that are co-creators, and uh, they're, uh, they're usually love to work with frequency. Um, but they have a hard time sometimes navigating around... Uh, reality or uh, or physical reality um, however once they get aligned with um, with the physical reality they're master manifestors you know so these these people can manifest almost anything so a lot of them do end up becoming quite successful at whatever chosen work that they do mm-hmm. um, uh, I had a client that um, she was an energy worker um, she actually ended up becoming a good friend of mine, but um, she started off as a client, and she's here in Denver. And uh, she uh, she was doing all this energy healing, but she didn't have any frame of reference or any explanation of what she was doing. Right. She just knew how to do it. She just knew how to do it. Yeah. And so she, she had an Akashic reading with me, and uh, she – and so she – so we kind of did an exchange where she would do a, you know, a healing on me and I would do an Akashic reading on her. And, uh, I told her, Oh yes, you're from Andromeda Galaxy and frequency work is natural for you. I mean, you don't even need tools. You just use, you're just channeling in those frequencies from the Andromeda Galaxy. And, and she was fascinated by this and, uh, and then when she was doing a healing on me, I was seeing images of the Andromeda galaxy, you know, mm-hmm. and I was telling her, holy cow, girl, you're bringing in some 
frequencies. Um, and she's like one of the most phenomenal energy healers I've ever encountered. Oh I mean, my God. she, she That's just, wonderful. Can, she can heal people of back pain. I mean, all kinds of illnesses. Uh, you know, she's just super phenomenal. But um, what she got out of her interaction with me was an understanding of why she is the way she is. Yeah, that's fascinating. Yeah. Okay, have you? Uh, let's talk about a couple others, like a maybe Pleiadian encounter, because everyone knows them. Uh, a Pleiadian being and what their challenges might be, and if you had some reptilian clients. I have actually. Um, okay. We'll do the Pleiadian first. Yeah. Um, so. I had a uh, Pleiadian client who uh, she was a um, a dog groomer. Pleiadians are empathic people. They're empathic with a capital E. They love animals. They love to work with animals. And uh, she was struggling in her relationships. Uh, she um, she was always attracted to narcissistic men. And. Uh, and she didn't understand why, you know, she's falling into the same patterns. And so I did a reading for her and I said, well, you're from the Pleiades and in the Pleiades relationships are very open. You know, the Pleiadians, um, it's not uncommon for Pleiadians on the Pleiades to have uh, polyamorous, uh, you know, relationships. Um, but they're also very, very devoted, you know, in their relationships. Um and because Pleiadian starseeds tend to be very empathic, um, uh, and they see the potential in everybody, you know, I mean, it sounds like a codependency type of thing, <laughs> you know, they, they, they take on these projects, you know, they're like, you know, oh, well, you know, I, I see the potential in this guy. I really love him. And I think if I just worked with him and helped him heal, you know, we'll be good together. Yeah. But it never works out like that, you know. So it's not like that, you know, it's not like that in the Pleiades, but when they come here to Earth, they don't realize that, you know, hey, you know, not everybody on Earth is like they, you know, they are in the Pleiades. Right. Yeah. So right. different, different pool to choose from. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So this particular client, um, she, it was kind of like the light bulb went off in her head. And, you know, and she said, you know, oh, I'm going to change you know, everything, you know, I'm going to change everything that, I'm, you know, so now, you know, I think she's embarking on some healthier relationships. But what was fascinating about her, too, is that she brought all her kids in, you know, all her adult kids in for. And they were I mean, open to that? Oh, yeah. No, cool. they, were, they were. I mean, they, they came. As they a probably family. saw the changes in her. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. 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 Um, and she made some physical changes, too. I think she lost some weight, took care mm -hmm. of her health. And mm -hmm. um, so. Uh, so, yeah, they absolutely were open to it. And all her kids were from different star systems, which is kind <laughs> of fun. Yeah, it's fun. fun. OK, fun so group. let's get to the reptilian clients. What happened there? Um, I do get a few reptilian clients. Um when, and is there a pattern to what they struggle with? Yeah, there is actually. Uh, reptilians are um, not comfortable with expression, expression, expressing of themselves um, because they've gone through years of evolution of being hunted down and killed, mm -hmm. especially here on Earth. So uh, a lot of my reptilian clients uh, usually want to keep their you know, their, their sessions really private. Um, and this includes, um, people with, rep, with reptilian influences in their genetics. Um, uh, like the Anunnaki, that sort of thing. We, we can talk a whole other topic. We're gonna, uh, let me write that down for our next conversation. Yeah. Anunnaki. Okay. Um, 
that's that's a whole group. Okay. <laughs> yeah, we can go down many rabbit holes with that one. All right. Um, but uh, um, but usually they struggle with um, being feeling accepted. And I know that sounds kind of weird coming from reptilians, but most of my reptilian clients are more dragon cast. I see. You know, so they, there's a gentler energy to mm -hmm. them. They're not as, you know, warrior-like. They're not as aggressive. Um, a lot of them come to be teachers and healers. Reptilians are amongst the most gifted healers that you'll ever find. Mm. I mean, it's like the destructive capabilities that they have when they're on their dark aspects turn into restorative capabilities when they're... Um, when they go light. Like, yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, they are... I actually have some clients who have reptilian guides and they're the most beautiful energy. They have this beautiful green energy. It's just like, you know, you just want to bathe in their greenness, you know. For and it's so nice that you're bringing that in. Yeah. Because uh, people that know about that species tend to have so much resistance and fear in general toward them. Yeah, I, I personally don't feel any animal, even though, you know, I, I perished during the Lyran Wars, you know, millions of years ago, you know, I, I could hold a real big grudge against reptilians. Mm -hmm. I don't really hold a grudge against them. I I see them as being like humans. There's good ones, there's bad ones, mm -hmm. you know, you just have to use discernment when, you you know, you're operating in the higher realms. But, yeah. Uh, Maybe give us one more example of a client from another place, because we're going to go to all these places in our next conversation. Sounds good. Um let me check in on a recent one I did. Um, oh, I had a client who, um, she actually been to a lot of different places. And uh, she had, you know, she, she started off in Lyra. She had this twin flame relationship. This is one of the videos on my YouTube channel. So um, uh, my um, people that listen to this uh, or watch this show can um, access her full story. But um, she had this, she was holding a flame for this twin flame. Uh, you know, she's, she's holding a candle for him, like for, for 30 years. I mean, just because she, she felt like she had this, uh, she had, she, she had this contract with him. And is she, this someone known to her or not known to her? Oh, no. no she, she knew, knew this person. She, she okay. knew, they met in college and they had okay. this relationship, but he ended up marrying somebody else. She mm -hmm. married somebody else, and but they stayed in touch. And But she was holding a candle for this guy, and uh, he was always kind of like stringing her along. Mm -hmm. and, and it was breaking her heart, you know, because she ended her, her marriage – and he ended his, but he was still connected with the ex-wife. Yeah. And he was quite wealthy. You know, he was a, you know, I think a CEO. He had quite a bit of, you know, position of power. And what I saw in the records with them was that um, he was, he was, he spent lifetimes being a healer on earth, but he was, he was poor. He was destitute. And so in this lifetime, he made a different choice. He wanted to experience abundance and wealth. So he knew that if he went back to his original old flame, he wasn't going to have that abundance and wealth mm -hmm. that he had with the ex-wife. So. Interesting. So, Interesting. Yeah. Well, there's just so much. It's fascinating, all of it. Um, yeah. We have so much more to go over, uh, which we'll do in another hour conversation at a later date. We'll bring you back here. Okay. Sounds and good. I just want to thank you for uh, your dedication to chronicling the things the way you have. 
Um, I found your site just wonderful, and it has all these fabulous graphics on it, and you can go into the backstories, and some of which we talked about today, and we will be talking about. So, um, yeah, thank you for the hard work you do, and it just, of course, to me, it's fun and fascinating. Anything that gives us more knowledge of who we are as a species and where we might be going to me. And how it has an impact on us personally. And how, yes, absolutely, personally as well. Thank you so much, Debbie. Thank you for having me here. Mm-hmm. It's been a real pleasure. I, I really uh, appreciate your interest in my work. Yes, thank you. Fascinating topic. You can look further into Debbie's work at her very artistically illustrated website, debbiesolaris.com. You might also enjoy my interviews with Barbara Hanclow, also on reptilians and other dimensional beings here in the Gaia Archives. Until next time, thank you for joining us here on Open Minds. It doesn't stop coming, everybody. No turning back now. Okay. Well, I am going to uh, turn up the sound here on... uh, We're going to get into a little more of the mundane chapter of life here, going to take a little walk toward the Kaiser Report. Yes, what? Yes, 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 yes. Okay. Here we go. Send a warning to others. He is being held up as an example. Keep your mouth shut, or this will happen to you. And as campaigns for the 2022 presidential elections get underway in France, some are raising concerns that politicians are going too far in demonizing their opponents. That does it for me today. I wish you all the best. We're glad to have you with us here on our International Warriors of Our Now's Kaiser, and this is the Kaiser Report. I'm here with Stacey Herbert, and this is Summer Solutions. Every year, we try to dig into the solutions, and we've got a special guest today, Jim Kunstler of Kunstler.com, Stacey. Right. Remember, James was a guest on our series Front Running. So, at that time, we were looking at all the radical platforms of the various candidates for the Democratic presidential nomination. And there were radical things like UBI, MMT, and all sorts of other ideas. Well, they've all become basically law now. We all have them implemented. So we're going to talk to them about a few of these. But, Jim, welcome to Summer Solutions. Pleasure to be with you both. Will the money printing continue until morale improves? And just how much more can morale improve anyway? Like stock markets are at all-time highs, housing prices soaring. Well, wages are at all-time highs. So, like, how much more money printing are we going to endure? A happy, happy, happy uh, is America now. Um, it kind of depends on how worthless the money becomes as the uh, punishments of money printing continue. And I think we can probably all agree that there's a great hazard in printing no end of 
money with quotation marks around it because it's becoming increasingly detached from any real productive activity in the on-the-ground on economy. I remember back during the uh, time of FDR, there was a lot of money printing going on, but there was also a big works program. So people were out there working and building and infrastructure and bridges and roads. But this time they're just printing and money and giving it to folks, and they're not expecting anything in return. And we're getting a lot of inflation, but we're not getting anything done, Jim. Let's remember that even back during the 1930s and the Great Depression, that uh, notwithstanding uh, the high rates of unemployment, we still had a great deal of productive infrastructure, and we were still, in fact, producing a great deal of, of value and goods and things of, of worth. Um, and, you know, what we, what we had could still be classified as something like real industrial growth. The problem that we have now, uh, especially with the shenanigans of the central banks, is that we are entering a, a period of history of, uh, uh, of non-growth and the reversal of growth. And if you don't have that thing called growth, you don't, pr you don't produce enough surplus wealth to service the debts that you're piling up. And now that we're piling up the debts at a kind of astronomical hockey stick uh, uh, a path, uh, we're, we're guaranteeing that we're going to have a debt system in which there's no expectation that debt ever gets paid back, which is not a credible debt system. And that's kind of the hinge of the problem. So we're kind of going through a period as well of deglobalization or certainly tensions between the rising power and the declining power and the declining power of the United States and everybody else, essentially, including Europe. So will that be a solution in a, in a way to the problem with especially the Rust Belt and all of the, the, the people who Hillary d declared were deplorables, people who used to have jobs and, and manufactured wealth and had great jobs and stuff like that? Like, will that be a solution for them? Solution is a bit of a tricky word, uh, because we must remember that reality has mandates of its own. Uh, reality compels us to have to endure certain conditions, and uh, one of the conditions that we're being asked to endure now is the withering and, and reorganizing of uh, uh, international trade. You can call that the global economy. You know, we're, there's going to continue to be exchanges between nations, but, uh, you know, the power differentials are going to change, not just in, in the ability to project force, but the ability to project economic domination and power. And that's now changing a great deal. And I think the bottom line is that for the West, the uh, world is going to become a bigger place again rather than a small, the smaller place that, uh, uh, you know, when uh, Tom Friedman published the Lexus and the Olive Tree, he made the point that globalism was going to become a permanent installation of the human condition. And that's proving not to be exactly true. And now that it's withering, you know, we are facing a new disposition of things, including basically a lower standard of living for the Western advanced economies. And, and probably in the United States, considerably lower than, than what we've been used to. And we're trying desperately to compensate for that by printing all this money 
to pay for the stuff, to pay for the standard of living we have now, which is actually uh, leaving us behind. The ability to add value in a manufacturing economy and very export-led economies shrinks, what it sounds like you're saying there. And so global standards of living deteriorate um, as everything becomes kind of commodified. Uh, and there is no, um, I guess, David Ricardo's sense of competitive advantage amongst nations. It just becomes one big global commodified goop. Commodified musical chairs, maybe. You know, where, where, uh, uh, where we're constantly shifting around in the, in the, the circle of uh, futility, trying to keep ahead of everybody else. When in fact the general pool of what's available is shrinking, and and the most crucial part of that is the energy pool. And you know we've discussed this before. I'm kind of uh, I regard the the energy inputs to the economy as being central and crucial. And we're facing the situation now. You know the the shale oil miracle, which was supporting American energy production at a very high level was already being challenged before COVID-19 hit. And the main problem with the shale oil miracle was that they spent 10 years jacking up production of oil to a tremendous level, much higher than the previous 1970 peak. But at the same time, they were proving that they couldn't make any money doing it. And so they had gotten all this tremendous amount of investment uh, in, in the 10 years after the 2009 Great Financial emergency, and uh, now that they've demonstrated that they can't make money producing all this shale oil, they can't get additional investment to continue those operations, which have to be continually, you know, re-upped and re-upped because this is a resource that depletes so rapidly. You know, the average shale oil well loses 60% of its mojo after the first year and is generally out of business after four years. So they have to constantly re-drill and refrack. These are tremendously costly operations. You know, the old oil costs $400,000 in today's money to drill an oil well. And it was like a cash register that ran for 30 years. The shale wells, you know, cost between 6 and $12 million per well to drill. And they're, you know, they, they start crapping out after the first year at 60% of uh, loss. So, um, it, you know, it, it, it's unfortunately a, a loser game, and uh, we got a lot of uh, kind of we, we it allowed us to postpone our problems, our reckonings with with energy. But now that's over, and you know it's coincided with the the terrible destruction of the COVID nineteen uh, you know the reaction to the virus, and uh, it, it's placed us in a great deal of peril. The absurdity of fracking, as you said, it kept on losing money. And our pointing it out, of course, saw us, our program be mentioned in the whole uh, director of national intelligence was saying that was somehow, us saying that somehow caused Hillary to lose the election in 2016. But nevertheless, it was, a, it was possible because of 0% interest rates. It was possible because of the exorbitant privilege of the U.S. dollar. So, James, tell me, the U.S. dollar turns 50 in August, as we know it, the, the all-fiat global reserve standard, no backing by gold, no need to send our gold overseas due to our huge trade deficit. 
Does it survive much longer? How much longer can this live? Is Are we going to... The, the elite enjoy the exorbitant privilege, but the majority seem not to um, have any sort of privilege off of this at all. The financial economy has been uh, detaching from the real on-the-ground economy during that whole period, and it's become, uh, it's become especially extreme uh, over the last few, really the last 10 years, since... Uh, we, since the central bank started messing around with exorbitant money creation from nowhere. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it, now that the, uh, the, the amount of creation has become uh, just uh, out of this world, you know, going from uh, uh, deficits, uh, annual deficits of less than a trillion dollars a year to now something like, you know, I think we're, the, the U.S. budget is like ten trillion dollars this year, including all of the, you know, the various rescue plans of this kind and that kind. Uh, ten trillion dollars a year out of nowhere, where, where you just can't match that with the uh, production of real wealth. That means that your, you know, your financial system is completely abstracted from real economic activity, and that tends to suggest that you're going to harm your currency. So I, I would be. Uh, uh, of the group that, that believes that the currency is going to be uh, damaged sooner rather than later. And, uh, you know, look, we're seeing it already in the, the the price of cars. I think the average price of car is over $30,000 now, just in the last year. You know, you go to the supermarket, there's not a single item that's under $4, you know, including a jar of peanut butter. And, uh, you know, we're seeing it. But, um, uh, you know, the old uh, saying goes, there's two ways of going broke. You can have no money. Or you can have plenty of money that's not worth anything. And we seem to be choosing that, you know, the second one because it's easier for the authorities to get away with that. And by the way, you know, the whole modern monetary theory that this exorbitant money printing and spending and fiscal spending is based on, you know, represents kind of the final uh, horizon of detachment from, from being real, from having a real economy. I don't think we're going to get beyond MMT. All right, that's incredible. Uh, we're going to pick this up in part two with Tim Kunstler. Don't go away. Okay, here we go. Oh, my. Now, I dream about youth coach. It's almost everyone. Do was Welcome back to the Kaiser Report with Max Kaiser, Stacey Herbert, and James Howard Kunstler. We're going to pick up where we left off in our Summer Solutions conversation with James. James, it seems that all this money printing now, really, it's taken on a different character. You know, people aren't really expecting there to be genuine growth. It, it, it feels more like palliative care in a hospice. I feel as though America's become a giant hospice and the money printing is to ease our pain as we essentially commit financial suicide. That's a very good way of putting it, and nobody else has put it that way. Very interesting. Uh, you know, if you really want to talk about solutions, uh, I think that the best way to go with that is probably for Americans to somehow wrap their minds around uh, the following dynamic. You know, it's not that complicated. 
Uh, reality is sending us this message about, uh, you know, what kind of conditions we're, uh, uh, we're going to be meeting of, uh, you know, resource scarcity and capital scarcity. And uh, the real message is to get smaller, to get more local, uh, to downscale the gigantism of the things that we do. You know, for example, we, you know, we've got a nation that is now relying almost solely on super-duper giant corporations to deliver goods that are, you know, made 12,000 miles away. Uh, if you really want to have an economy, you've got to employ people where you live. You know, uh, also, along with that, you've got to have people who occupy not only economic but social niches in your community so that they play different roles in your community so that you actually have a society that, that has some dimension to it, not just a society of consumers who are like Pac-Man, you know, going across the board, uh, uh, you know, gobbling up cheese doodles. So to rebuild that kind of economy is going to be a tremendous task I think we're going to be forced into it by necessity, whether we like it or not. You know, we're going to be dragged, kicking and screaming uh, into rebuilding our local economies, making something, uh, even if it even if it ends up occurring at a lower kind of standard of living than what we're used to, because you know the human project has to go on, including the American version of it, and uh, this is going to be quite an emergency that we're going to have to uh, really put our shoulders to the wheel through and, and somehow uh, uh, pull our way through. I have a question about that, because can we get there from here? Because it seems like we would need a civil society as well. We would need to have adult conversations between these various tribes in America. It does seem like, I mean, I've never seen it like this before, Sure, there were problems in the 60s and 70s, but it was like the people against the government, essentially. And now it's like the government with one set of people, the elites, the cable news hosts, the think tankers, against the deplorables. So how can you ever even want to bring, how can we get to the point where they bring manufacturing or wealth creation or, or hiring local if if you think most Americans are deplorable and that they're white supremacists and, and, and horrible people. So how do we get to the point where we want to help them? Uh, I think you're describing what I would call the woke hysteria, which has become a tremendous interruption in our history and in our national life. And uh, I would look at it this way, that you know, when you're in a, an economy and, and a society that is under tremendous stress, and is generating a huge amount of anxiety uh, and uncertainty. Uh, you're gonna, the, the society is gonna respond by doing crazy things. And uh, this happens in history. You know, the, we have the medieval hysterias, and you know, we have all kinds of uh, uh, tremendous social uh, upsets when when things like this happen. So. Uh, you know, we're just going to have to probably wait it out. I think that the, uh, it's, li- it's liable to kind of solve itself because hysterias tend to burn themselves out. This one ha- has quite a resemblance to the Jacobin Rebellion in the latter stages of the French Revolution, where the Jacobins come along in 1793 
and they're really quite crazy. This is Robespierre and Saint-Just and, and that old gang. And they start to impose all these crazy new social conditions on the population. They say, you know, you're not going to have the Catholic Church anymore. We're going to have the worship of the great spiritual being. Uh, you're not going to have a seven-day week anymore. You're going to have a ten-day week. We're going to change all the names of the months of the year. And this went on for about a period of 11 months. And finally, the French people just turned around and said, wow, we've had enough of this. You know, you guys are out of here. And they cut off Robespierre's head, and that was the end of the Jacobinism. And, you know, the world didn't hear about them again, you know, after that. That was it. Well, you know, different versions of them sort of rebounded and came back in the, in the, in the form of, uh, let's say, the, the Leninists in 1917 and the Nazis, you know. And, but periodically, you get these hysterias, and they're a product of this tremendous anxiety that is caused by uh, a culture that seems and fears that it's going to lose uh, so much uh, stuff of value to them, including, you know, their, their, their whole way of life, their, their daily routines, um, uh, their ability to pay for uh, their shelter and their food. And these are very crucial things. And the COVID-19 emergency actually ruined a lot of households. And, uh, you know, I suppose that that's uh, causing just a tremendous amount of pain and suffering out there. And uh, a lot of those aren't the wokesters, because the wokesters tend to be the people who are doing better. You know, and they want to teach us all tendentious moral lessons about how to live right. And, uh, you know, it's becoming extremely tedious. I've lost a lot of friends over this, and, you know, I hear that other people have too. And so uh, I don't think that sentiment has been more divided in this country since the Civil War. I hope it doesn't get to that. You know, the bottom line of what we're talking about now is simply this, is under these conditions, expect a lot of disorder, you know, of one kind or another, whether it's financial disorder, you know, the bottom falling out of the dollar, or social disorder, riots and looting, or intellectual disorder, you know, being asked to believe things that are palpably untrue, uh, or, uh, you know, even disorder in science, uh, or the science, as we're calling it lately, where, you know, uh, the scientific authorities present ideas as being truthful, and we find out nine months later that they're not. And that's a terrible blow to the, you know, to the intellectual life of the country. So, a lot of disorder. And I think that people discount that and don't pay sufficient attention to the potential for that. What you're describing there is, uh, you know, a breakdown of institutions, right? Education, religious, social institutions. But, I, mean, I guess because in the last 30 or 40 years, every bright spark of the box has gravitated through Wall Street, right? People don't go into education anymore. They become quants at a hedge fund. People don't believe in God anymore. They believe in Wall Street is America's uh, Vatican. Uh, we, we pray to uh, in the likes of Jamie Dimon as our God. So we have no underlying fundamental institutions anymore. We only have greed. The problem with everybody, uh, you know, with half a brain trying to go to Wall Street to make it a gazillion dollars, is that it, it represents essentially uh, racketeering which is, uh, racketeering is defined as, you know, making money dishonestly. And unfortunately, that's, that's uh, now infected all of these institutions. And, and uh, ironically, two of the worst places that it's infected are education and medicine. And, you know, both of them have uh, very, uh, they, they are um, fields of, uh, or sectors of our daily life that have very high ideals and aspirations. 
you know, in medicine, the whole point is to do no harm. And in education, the idea is to search for the truth. And we've got racketeering going on in medicine that's so bad that nobody wants to really go to the hospital anymore because they know they're going to come out bankrupt, if not harmed even further medically. And the colleges are now doing two kinds of racketeering. They're, they're racketeering the college loan system, and they're, they're engaging in intellectual racketeering by uh, presenting fields of study that are unreal and uh, uh, that, that are, uh, you know, religious fantasias. Uh, uh, um, so, uh, they, you know, they've both rendered themselves uh, to be failures. And, and you can't have this kind of intense failure, institutional failure in a culture and hope to survive intact. Well, we're also kind of like idiocracy, heading towards idiocracy at a time when, as you mentioned, like a lot of these institutions are collapsing, our economy is, we're being outcompeted. We're like getting rid of like states like California getting rid of advanced math because they're, um, it was like they said white supremacy, even though most of the students were actually uh, Asian who were uh, getting into the advanced uh, math classes. Things like that, like it just doesn't make any sense. But the whole racketeering as well, like in this new infrastructure bill, or maybe it's in the six trillion dollar budget, who knows? But in there, there's something like between fifty and a hundred billion. None of it's ever transparent or open or, or discussed. But there's like a hundred billion to build uh, for the chip manufacturers to build semiconductor chips. So these well, things- you know, the bottom line of racketeering is that it's simply dishonest. Yes. And when you have, and so what we're seeing is a society that is absolutely pervasively dishonest, that can't tell itself an honest story, you know, that can't discharge real justice, that can't, uh, uh, ex- that, that, that never accepts any consequences for the things that it does. And that's just extremely dangerous. But I must say, in the case of medicine and education, the solutions are there. But they're a little unappetizing because, once again, they're going to be mandated by reality, not, not, not by our wishes and our preferences. And, and the way that will shake out is this. The system of higher education is going to collapse. You know, a lot of colleges are going to go out of business. And universities are going to downsize drastically, even the state universities. And in medicine, you're going to see the complete collapse of the, you know, amalgamated uh, hospital insurance rackets. And that's going to devolve by necessity into local clinical care. That's what I'm saying with these semiconductor chips is healthcare is a racket and therefore the government ends up spending, paying for Medicare, Medicaid. They have to pay for it all because nobody could afford it. The same thing with education. Okay, nobody could afford it. Tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of dollars of debt, trillions over the whole population. They, they want to wipe those debts out because nobody could pay them. The same thing with the semiconductor chips. It's like Intel spent $100 billion on share buybacks. Instead of innovation and building factories, they turned down Steve Jobs when he came to them with the iPhone. So it's a total racket. And what's going to happen is that, well, the government, the taxpayer, has to come forward again to bail out the semiconductor chip thing because our whole structure, everything is a lie, as you said. Well, yeah, and, you know, one of the main ideas in my long emergency book uh, that came out a while ago, quite a while ago, was the idea that, uh, as this long emergency gained traction, uh, one of the manifestations would be that uh, the federal government would become increasingly ineffectual and, and impotent and unable to discharge its obligations or fulfill its promises. And I think we're seeing that climax now 
in the extravagant promises of, you know, getting billions of dollars to keep existing rackets going that are already, you know, dishonest, that aren't really working. For example, the one you, you just mentioned about education, you know, they, they seek to uh, wipe clean the college debt slate, right? But why? So they can continue a new round of debt and a new round of, you know, running education exactly the same way. You know, reality is that we're not going to keep most of these rackets or maybe any of these rackets going. You know, we're going to have to rearrange daily life and the activities of daily life. And uh, the, the we're going to have to reconstruct real communities. And it's going to be very hard. It's going to be attended by a certain amount of disorder. And we're just going to have to grit our teeth and get through it. Wow, Lester. Jim Consler of Consler.com. Thanks for being on Summer Solutions. A pleasure to be with you both. All right, that's going to do it for this edition of Max Kaiser and Stacey Herbert. Kaiser reports Summer Solutions. Thanks to special guest Jim Consler of Consler.com. Until next time, bye, y'all. we've got the statement of committing financial suicide in our face. So that's, it's real and it has, it it has its uh, good points in the sense of looking at what's really going on in having a little discussion about what we do next. <laughs> so we're going to play our friend, uh, this is Professor Wolf. Uh, so here, no, that's not it. Uh, since 2008, including the one. No, 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 no. <laughs> Wolf, momentito. Okay, there we go. Call eight seven seven three seven eight. I'm an update a weekly. Welcome, friends, to another edition of Economic Update, a weekly program devoted to the economic dimensions of our lives, jobs, debts, incomes, our own and our children's. I'm your host, Richard Wolf. I want to begin today with two bills, one of which has been passed in the House of Representatives in Washington, and the other one uh, is being considered. The first one, uh, which is called H.R. 51, if you're interested, was passed by the House shortly, uh, and is only the second time in U.S. history that the House has voted to give statehood to Washington, D.C. So that issue has now come up again, and I want to talk about it because it gives us a window into American politics that we need to think about. First of all, the Republicans are lined up to stop it, and the Democrats may be lined up to pass it, and they have the votes to do so, if they will be unified, which is far from clear. 
Here are the basic arguments. The District of Columbia has a population of 725,000 people. That makes it a more populous place than either the state of Vermont or the state of Wyoming. So in terms of size, it is not going to be, if it becomes a state, the smallest state in the United States, not even close, number one. Number two, it is a question that has long been put forward that the people of that state do not, excuse me, of that area, District of Columbia, do not have representation in Congress uh, and that they therefore have taxation because they have to pay without representation, which is something we're not supposed to have here in the United States. The Republicans know that, and they also know that they're typically in favor of local rules, state rights, all of the rest of it, and that makes them vulnerable. So they've come up with an alternative to make the District of Columbia part of the state of Maryland. Why is that a proposal of an alternative? Answer. Then there's no additional senators and no additional congresspersons, but it's the senators that's key. Because if the District of Columbia becomes a state, it will have the right to elect two senators like every other state in this country. And given the demographics of D.C., it's crystal clear that those two senators will be A, Democrats, and B, black people. And you can see now why the Republican Party, especially the Republican Party of Donald Trump, uh, is freaked out, to say the least, by this prospect. I want to talk about the larger issue. The Republicans don't want to get statehood to the District of Columbia, and they don't want Democrats and black people to vote at all. Uh, you all know, as the whole country does, that they have literally blanketed the 50 states of the United States with legislative proposals in every legislature to make it harder to vote or difficult to vote, to, to get the vote down. But this is not new in American history. When the United States began after its revolutionary war against Britain, it instituted voting, but not for most Americans. You may not know this, but it wasn't just black people at the time, slaves, who were not given the right to vote, but women were not given the right to vote. It took them more than a century to do, to get that right. It was also the case that if you didn't have property, you were not allowed to vote. In other words, the idea was limit the vote to a very small part of the population. So the notion of democracy was always qualified in the United States in ways that some today find downright embarrassing. It took a struggle. And why? Because if you make the vote limited to only a few, then the politics will respond to their desires and needs and leave everybody else in a secondary position should be interesting to think about. You know what then happens? The people left out are bitter about the people who aren't left out. And the people who aren't left out are frightened that if they don't get cozy with the leaders that they put into office, there may be a difficulty in them holding on to the preferences they get by being a small part of the electorate. That happened between the property and the property less. But it also happened, particularly after the Civil War, with white versus black. To keep the blacks out, then politics responds more to the whites than the blacks. That sets up the conflict between white and black, which keeps the folks at the top 
in power because they've divided everybody else. Think about it. It's important. H.R. 1 is the effort of the Democratic Party to counter the Republican effort to stifle voting. Same issue coming at it from a slightly different direction. It's an important struggle to watch. It will shape politics in profound ways. The second update we have time for today is going to be dealing with President Biden's proposal. Uh, he's now made three major proposals. The COVID relief plan, the infrastructure plan, and what he now calls the American family plan, or human infrastructure. All kinds of proposals that I've talked about and that we will talk about again. But he has also proposed that he will pay for these programs, and they're expensive, not only by borrowing huge amounts of money, which we've talked about and which he will do. He's proposing to do it, and the Republicans will make him do more of it. But he has also proposed to do something about the grotesquely unfair tax structure we have in the United States. So I'm going to go briefly with you, bear with me, through the major parts of his proposals to show two things. One, how unfair our tax system has been, something, by the way, produced by both Republicans and Democrats. And the second thing I'm going to emphasize is how very modest President Biden's proposals are. So let's begin with corporate profits tax. When Mr. Trump became president, the corporate profits tax in the United States was 35%. That wasn't as much as the corporations ever paid because they got out of it with exemptions and deductions and all kinds of loopholes, but that's not for today. It was 35%, and in December of 2017, Mr. Trump dropped it to 21%. A staggering gift to corporate and business America coming at the end of a 30-year period when they had done better than in any 30-year period in American history. At no time did the rich and the corporations need a tax cut less than when Mr. Trump gave it to them. What is Mr. Biden's proposal? To raise it from the 21% Trump lowered it to, to 28%. He's proposing to bring it back only halfway the distance. And he's not going to get that. It's clear not only from Republicans who will oppose it, but from at least two Democrats, a senator uh, from Arizona and a senator from West Virginia, who have indicated the likelihood they wouldn't go along with it. So we'll end up with uh, 23, 24, 25%. Somewhere in there is the guess. That's not a big daring proposal on something as unfair as the corporate profits tax. One last point. Corporate profits tax across the board in this country now take 1% of GDP. 20 years ago, it took 4% of GDP. So the burden of taxation on corporations has dropped drastically, even before Trump, who dropped it. It is something to think about. The second thing Biden proposes is to raise the top rate for individuals on their income tax from 37%, what it is now, if you earn over about $400,000 a year, to 39.5%. 
I'm not going to say much about that. That's not a stupendous increase from 37 to 39 and a half. And just a reminder, the top rate under the last administration of Franklin Roosevelt, the top rate on the richest Americans was 94%. Mr. Biden wants to bring it up to 39 and a half. You can draw the obvious conclusion. Capital gains. If you work hard for a living, you pay a much higher rate of tax on the wages and salaries you get versus a person who doesn't work but owns stock. If the stock goes up in price between the time a person buys it and sells it, an investor, they pay a capital gains tax, which is maximum 20%, nowhere near the 37% of your regular salary and wage income if you're in the top bracket. Mr. Biden proposes that if you earn more than a million dollars a year, which is a tiny minority of Americans, you will have to pay your individual rate. You cannot use the 20%. Everybody else can. So that's a small increase for a very small part of the American population. Next slide. If you die today in America, and you die at a point where stocks you paid $10 for are now worth 100 That's a capital gain of 80 bucks per share. That isn't taxed as part of your inheritance. It's not counted. In other words, when you die, your obligation to pay any tax on your capital gains is zero. It's erased. It's an enormous gift to people leaving wealthy estates to their descendants. It makes a joke, the notion that we should all have a level playing field. We should all start from the same place because it means some people start with an enormous bundle of wealth and other people start with nothing, unless they're so unfortunate as to inherit their parents' debts. So requiring capital gains to be taxed at death is an interesting move. It does affect those at the very top, uh, but given the uh, loopholes that are in the law, the effect will be, how shall I say, modest. And indeed, everything about Mr. Biden's proposal to change the tax structure is modest. It looks good to progressives, and I understand that, because compared to Trump, or compared, for that matter, to the traditional Republican Party establishment, it is quite something. Way better, no question. But in terms of the longer history of the United States, it is what you would expect. The Democrats are not as grossly favoring corporations and the rich as the Republicans. That has been true for a long time, and since Mr. Trump veered extra to the right, Mr. Biden is not the equal amount, but a little bit of tilt the other way. Okay, so much so that I want to make a final comment about it. It's becoming harder and harder for American capitalism to solve its problems. You can see that with the failure of how we coped or failed to with COVID. 4% of the world's population in the United States, 20% of the world's deaths from COVID. This is a criticism better than anything I could say, just those numbers. And the economic crash, and the unemployment, 
and the inequality and the instability and the, the social problems are crowding up on us. Mr. Biden's is a very modest effort to change direction. My opinion as an economist, it's way too little and it's coming too late for little to be enough. Time will tell, but it's important to understand the dimensions of this situation. We've come to the end of the first part of today's show. Before we get to the second half, I want to remind you, our new book, The Sickness is the System, When Capitalism Fails to Save Us from Pandemics or Itself, is available at democracyatwork.info slash books. And as always, I want to thank our Patreon community for their ongoing invaluable support. If you haven't yet, please go to patreon.com slash economic update to learn more about how you can get involved. Please stay with us. We'll be right back with today's guest, Professor Michael Hiller. Welcome back, friends, to the second half of today's economic update. It is with great pleasure that I introduce all of you, viewers, listeners, to my guest for today. He's Professor Michael Hillard. He's a professor of economics at the University of Southern Maine. His research, which I have followed for years, covers labor relations, working class history, and in general, the political economy of capitalism. He's the author, most recently, of an important book, it's called Shredding Paper, Labor and the Rise and Fall of Maine's Mighty Paper Industry. It was published in December of 2020 by the Cornell University Press. So first of all, Michael, welcome to Economic Update. Uh, it's a pleasure to be with you, Rick. Good. Well, you know, let's talk first about your new book. I know you worked on it for a long time. And I want to introduce it, if I may, briefly, since I know you're modest and you wouldn't want to tout it yourself. This is a very important piece of work, and I want to stress to folks why. You might think, well, it's a particular story of a particular industry in a particular state, and it is all those things. But it's also about what might be called an American tragedy, because it's a tragedy repeated over and over again, from one end of this country to the other, as capitalism, the system we live in, promotes and develops an industry that becomes large and important and employs lots of people and builds an entire economy around itself until some later point when the very small number of people who run that industry decide that they can make more money going somewhere else or doing something else and then the whole edifice, sometimes built up over many decades, collapses. And it's important to understand this, and what Michael has done, and I should say Professor Hillard, of course, but I've known him all these years, what he has done is given us a really granular analysis of a case study. And that's, that's why it's so important for so many of us. So let me begin, besides congratulating you for it. Tell us, in your view, uh, is it reasonable to look upon 
for example, what happened to the car industry in Detroit, or what happened to the glass industry in New York State, or the photography industry in New York State, and I could go on and on, as as everyone listening or watching this program knows, is it reasonable to say that a basically tiny minority of the people involved in this industry were in a position to make decisions, which they in fact made, to wipe the industry out, affecting tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of people who had no participation in making that decision. Is that a reasonable understanding of the research you did? Uh, yeah, uh, thank you, Rick. I mean, I think you framed it really well. Um, and as you and maybe some of your readers know, I mean, one of the basic ways to think about the history, long history of the industry, um, is to use the colorful metaphor that um, Joseph Schumpeter coined about 100 years ago called creative destruction. Uh, those kind of people know, uh, know that he got all of his ideas for that metaphor from uh, Marxist analysis of British capitalism in the 19th century. Uh, but the story of creative destruction is one of um, how overlapping uh, forms of progress in developing technology and products and uh, the change in where things are made and, and the change in the nature of capital and the decision makers over time means that some industries that were once mighty, like the paper industry, um, will be set by uh, a rapid process of decline in a great injury that people work in the industry. So there's two questions about this kind of story, which is that, uh, first of all, is there a way of managing decline um, so it's not so harmful to human beings who work in the industry? Um, and how much of the decline is really inevitable? And I think what my book does with the case of paper mills in the state of Maine is to sort of say something significant on both accounts. So um, the core of my story is uh, how a shift in the political economy of American capitalism around 1980 to what I would call the Wall Street takeover of American industry um, uh, led to an acceleration of decline because basically, as most of your listeners probably know, we've had this model where corporations that lay off workers, shut down operations, do all kinds of financial engineering, can make massive amounts of windfall for shareholders. And I have one case study in there of uh, how Scott Paper was uh, uh, the investors installed this guy named Chainsaw Al Dunlap, who was kind of famous in the 1990s for ripping apart companies and making a lot of money for shareholders. So I did this with Scott Paper, uh, that included three bills uh, uh, owned by Scott and Maine in the mid-1990s, uh, basically uh, destroyed some very profitable bills um, uh, that were just out of business shortly after his regime. And then the other part of it was that um, he pocketed $120 million in windfall and shareholders pocketed $6 million in windfall. So that's part one of the story. Like, what initiated this? Well, it was the type of uh, the tiny elite that makes decisions for corporations shifting as the American political economy turned towards what's been alternatively called shareholder primacy, the idea that you maximize profits for the shareholder. That's the only purpose of a corporation. Um, and yeah, so um, so in any event, but the other question is like, is you know, so so could that decline been managed better? Um, and one of the things that I talk about in my book at the very end um, is two things that might have made a difference. Um, one would have been worker ownership, um, because uh, the people who worked in the mills, um, you know, paper mills are unusual as factories because. 
Um, up to this date, workers have an unusual amount of skill and control of the labor process. Um, and what it means is that, you know, uh, more than many other industries with assembly line type uh, workplaces, this was an industry where the workers really did run the mill. And so owning it was not a big leap. Um, and what they saw in the period of the 60s, 70s, and 80s is a certain new turnstile of outside managers who came in and ran the company very poorly. Um, and sort of, you know, injured brands by making bad decisions on the shop floor. I could go through it. It's a long story. Um, so I think worker ownership would have made a big deal. And one of the paper mills that I feature most, uh, the SD Bourne mill outside of Portland, Maine, uh, the workers, in fact, really tried to do that and then were kind of blocked by their owners. I think the other thing that could have made a difference is something called industrial policy. Um, which is like, you know, what we're hearing right now is that um, the Biden administration wants to invest in a lot of uh, so-called green technology and infrastructure and create manufacturing jobs in the United States. That's the federal government targeting industry uh, to support well-paid employment. Um, so I make a case that, that the competing countries around the world that sort of uh, ate the lunch of the American industry had the benefit of that and our workers did not. Yeah, you know, it's, it's remarkable to me. Right there are the lessons, and I want to draw you out a little bit uh, on that. Because the same broad movements of financialization and Wall Street dominance and short-term shareholder profit maximization and stuff like that, that's one way of organizing capitalism, and we're living with the results. But it's crazy to think that it's the only way, that it's the absolute necessary thing that might have happened. Uh could you talk just briefly about the case study you did where workers at least came close to the idea of taking over and, and setting up not only a different management and ownership, but a different direction that the industry might have gone? Yeah, well, so I think one of the things is that it came at the end of a five-year period where paid uh, workers in Maine got radicalized against capitalism, um, uh, precipitated by a couple of strikes where um, uh, sort of Wall Street, um, uh, couple of CEOs who bought into the new Wall Street ideology provoked strikes in order to fire unionized workers and replace them with non-union workers. And that catalyzed a radical movement against capitalism that had never existed within the industry. Um, I point to a very signature moment uh, in 1987 where Jesse Jackson uh, showed up and gave a speech against capitalism. Uh, it was brilliant to about 4,000 workers at a, uh, a rally uh, during the strike, and that kind of metastasized or spread into a growing sort of stock corporate breed. Um, so, so workers more than ever really have come to the conclusion that the people at top had abandoned them and injured them, and they had no more legitimacy. And to them, the model uh, that might have made this again happen in this SD Warren bill outside of Portland, Maine, was to have workers take over um, to democratically own the, the mill um, and to make investment decisions and all pick their managers and all those kinds of things. I think of that um, in Scott's paper um, was worrying on behalf of the entire industry and setting a precedent um, because it would have created a clamor. I think in Maine, you would have seen many mills that where the workers would have gone in that direction. So that was a pivot point. If you know, it's hard to do counterfactual history, but I feel very confident if they had succeeded, um, they this would have set a model for the rest of the state. And we're talking about fifteen or twenty mills that were still in operation then. Was there ever any planning? One of the questions I get all the time: Was there anybody in Maine 
in a position of authority, who understood what you just, what your research showed, that industries that rise in the history of capitalism fall, and that the fall is painful and destructive, and you want to plan for it, like anything else you know is likely to happen, right? You buy health insurance because you might get sick, and you do this and that because this and that might happen. Was there anybody in a position of authority who said and did something to plan the institutional way to save all those people who lost jobs, all those communities that lost, you know, commerce and all the rest of it? Did that ever happen? You know, uh, uh, what's interesting is that I think, uh, so, so I, I finished my book by talking about kind of more broadly how uh, mainers uh, over the last 30 years have come to understand what we call neoliberalism, uh, which is the regime of uh, sort of aggressive uh, free trade, free markets, being deregulation uh, that came under the Reagan and Thatcher period and is still with us to this day. Um, and what I sort of, um, really just sort of an ethnography for being a maker, you know, being somebody who follows the economy closely and is connected to policy makers when Democrats are in office, that sort of thing, um, is that, you know, the one thing that, um, that governors, uh, in particular, whether very right-wing or left-wing would do, is, uh, they would pursue, um, <clears throat> trying to see if they could find some new investors for the mill. Uh, there are these desperate kind of end of story and end stage sort of efforts to save the mills, um, but it was not planning um, and it accepted the rules of the marketplace. Um, and I profile how there was uh, there, this, the largest industrial, second largest industrial facility in Maine is owned by the federal government. It's Kittery Naval Shipyard, um, and uh, it was slated to be closed by Congress back in 2005. In a statewide movement led by Susan Collins, of all people, you know, pressed Congress to change its decision and save these 4,000 jobs. And they've, in fact, been added about 1,200 jobs since this happened about a dozen years ago. Um, so I said that as an example of a model um, that really doesn't exist in any other industry but could. Um, but it's fair to say that uh, where people now, I think, in the state reject the idea that we should leave the state out of things, that we shouldn't pay for these things. Now there's an embrace of it, and I think it's seen in the national politics that we have now that rejects um, sort of the, you know, free trade, uh, deregulate, leave the market alone model. Michael, we only have 20 seconds, but I want a 20-second nugget from you. Is it reasonable <laughs> to infer that whereas before in American history, industries left Detroit or Maine or upstate New York or wherever, and that now over the last 10 or 20 years, we're seeing the similar thing only on a national basis with a couple of exceptions of high tech in California and so on, but that basically where Maine went, the whole United States is at risk of going. You know, I would sort of put it this way. I mean, I think this has been a feature of capitalism from the beginning. Um, you know, that's why I made allusion to thinkers 100, 150 years ago that recognized it. Um, I think really what the contingency is at this point is rather can we learn from history and can we learn from models which in which uh, both the local level, I think, uh, worker ownership is a profound option, and then actually having some kind of planning with the industrial policy. Um, I think maybe the good news is that we're at a point where a lot of the country is open to those ideas um, and we just need to continue to have. What I hope is the social movement 
that continues to push this. And one of the things I'm, I'm proud about with my book is that um, the main labor movement's reading my book. Um, so, uh, you know, I think, think there's, a, there, there's a new chapter ahead of us, I think, that I'm a little bit more optimistic about. Wonderful. Michael, I wish we had more time. Thank you so much for your insights, for publishing, for doing that work. And to my entire audience, I think we've learned something, and I think you can think about the impact <laughs> okay. Of it all. Uh huh. Your lives. And I look forward, as usual, to speaking with you again. Okay. I was just going to say that we're getting to the bewitching hour here. I'll just say that, uh, Caroline, okay. hold on. Hold on. Ready to start planning and take on that home improvement project? When it comes to financing, we have the right tool for the job. Sorry. Sorry, 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 sorry. Buttons. Buttons, buttons, buttons. Let's just tune out the sound so that this can be... All right. Uh, uh, she... Uh, to synopsize, um, uh, the collective is telling us that we are very quickly as a race of human beings um, becoming fully aware of our our free will choice and the ability to uh, exercise our sovereignty and uh, so I'll just say this a little bit at the end here understand that we live in a world in which human beings have long been subject to so many forms of humiliation, degradation, overt mind control, and subtle mental programming, desperation carefully manufactured from consciously created economic and politics situations, including in some cases political revolutions that only reinstated the elite in a slightly different way, that we have a hard time believing that all these lies, illusions, and hypnosis could ever produce even one independent human thought. And indeed, they are not producing that. The independent thought, the awakening, we are seeing now has nothing to do with the old way of thinking or feeling about life on earth. And this is in heavy black letters. It has everything to do with growing a consciousness sprung from the soul level from experiencing and aspiring to the reality enjoyed in the higher realms and from the co-creative essence of our own spirits as they reach higher in the empowering energies now coming to earth as it were any other era, the era before the one we have just entered, in other words, the Kali Yuga, which was an era of destruction. We might agree with everyone that consciousness was low all round, even amongst most of the spiritually aware. Yet as we have now entered the Sat Yuga, a time of enlightenment, peace, prosperity, and justice, we do not see Earth as headed for disaster in a short amount of time, and that she and all of us 
all require rescuing. All of what we name, the cruelty, violence, corruption, is coming into the light now and being shown for what it truly is, a violation of human spirit and human sovereignty. Those at the head of these schemes are even now, in some cases, facing courts of divine justice on earth, in space and other planets. They are not escaping simply by jumping into underground hideouts or leaping aboard a spacecraft. We are aware of where they are and as and how they will be brought to face their crimes and, and answer for them. Some of the shadow realm are coming into the light now by their own free will, and that is how it should be. The idea of forcing situations or people has had its day and will not be permitted to continue. So let's see, there's one little more section here. That is turn the page. I'll just read the last little section here. Hold a concentration of love and higher light for earth and all her beings each day and give thanks for the freedom and the sovereignty of both planets and all living beings. And Caroline has a really clear picture here of a couple of flying saucers as real as they can be in full color. And so... May we soar like eagles, also very high, circling the universe on wings of pure light. And we pass this talking stick with that emerald serpent feathered one, Quetzalcoatl, and all the children of light. And that includes those fairies, feathers, and crystals, and rainbows, and angels, and hobbits. Here it comes, rainbird. Oh, I got that. All right. <laughs> so thank you, thank you, thank you. Oh, it was a fun evening again, again. <laughs> <laughs> Where, are we having fun yet? <laughs> I, yeah, that's a famous question, and it better better be waking in all on all fully functional, as they say, ways. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I'm all for that part. So, yeah, thank you again, and I look forward to what Rama has to close this, so I'm passing this talking stick to you, Rama. Here it comes. Okay. Tell us what you got there, honey. This is... Life is like music, Ellen Watts. Okay, here we go. Existence, the physical universe, is basically playful. There is no necessity for it whatsoever. It isn't going anywhere. That is to say, it doesn't have some destination that it ought to arrive at. But that it is best understood by analogy with music. 
Because music, as an art form, is essentially playful. We say you play the piano. You don't work the piano. Why? Music differs from, say, travel. When you travel, you are trying to get somewhere. One doesn't make the end of a composition the point of the, comp of the composition. If that were so, the best conductors would be those who played fastest. <laughs> and there would be composers who wrote only finales. <laughs> People go to concert just to hear one crashing chord, because that's the end. <laughs> Same way in dancing. You don't aim at a particular spot in the room. That's where you should arrive. The whole point of the dancing is the dance. Now, but we don't see that as uh, something brought by our education into our everyday conduct. We've got a system of schooling which gives a completely different impression. It's all graded. And what we do is we put the child into the corridor of this grade system with a kind of, come on, kitty, kitty, kitty. And yeah, you go to kindergarten, you know, and that's a great thing because... When you finish that, you'll get into first grade. And then, come on, first grade leads to second grade, and so on, and then you get out of grade school, you go to high school, and it's revving up, the thing is coming. Then you're going to go to college, and by Joe, then you get into graduate school, and when you're through with graduate school, you go out to join the world. And then you get into some racket where you're selling insurance, and they've got that quota to make, and you're going to make that. And all the time, the thing is coming. It's coming, it's coming, that great thing, the, the success you're working for. Then when you wake up one day about 40 years old, you say, my God, I've arrived. <laughs> I'm there. And you don't feel very different from what you always felt. By expectation. Look at the people who live to retire and put those savings away. And then when they're 65, they don't have any energy left. They're more or less impotent and... Uh, they go and rot in an old people's senior citizens community. Uh -oh. <laughs> because we simply cheated ourselves the whole way down the line. <clears throat> we thought of life by analogy with a journey, with a pilgrimage, which had a serious purpose at the end, and the thing was to get to that end, success or whatever it is, or maybe heaven after you're dead. But we missed the point the whole way along. It was a musical thing, and you were supposed to sing or to dance while the music was being played. I think we have reached our pinnacle of this evening. It's morning now, here, and we're going to pass this talking stick to our brother, Don, and we just say again, safe journey and a happy, uh, happy journey, and uh, we send good vibrations your way, um, and coming home to a place that you've known for a long time and uh, 
may we all pass every test along the way. And we're so grateful to have become together family with you all. Uh, at BBS Radio, Station 2, best radio in the universe. So aloha, everyone, and sa-nam. Sa-nam, Until we meet again in Houston. Namaste, everyone. See you on the bridge and in your dreams.